Digital Gonzo, episode 110, dated Friday the 16th of November 2012, The Fellowship of the Ring, part 1. Legend tells of a ring created by an ancient evil that gave its wearer the power to enslave the world. Believed lost for centuries, it has now been found. Is it secret? Is it safe? This is the One Ring, forged by the Dark Lord Sauron. Sauron needs only this ring to cover all the lands of a second darkness. He's seeking it. Seeking it all. His thought is bent on it. No one knows it's here, do they? Do they, Gandalf? enemy is a gift. Let us use it against him. You cannot wield it. None of us can. The ring must be destroyed. It was made in the fires of Mount Doom. Only there can it be unmade. I know what I must do, but I'm afraid to do it. One does not simply walk into Mordor. There is no other way. Welcome back to Digital Gonzo, the Lord of the Rings movie specials. Tonight we're talking about the first half of The Fellowship of the Ring. My guesting co-hosts are Chris Eason of Gameburst. Meg of Arnon. And Sharon Shaw of Dorkcast and Our Marriage. You may have heard of it. <laughs> Hello. Words cannot describe what these films mean to me, but with the aid of these two and a bit of music, I'm going to give it a bloody good go. It boils down to the production and attention to detail that went into every scrap of what you can see, hear, and feel coming off the screen. Every person in the cast and crew knew sooner or later during this experience that they were taking part in an enormous feat of human endeavor that left all other movie construction behind. In bringing a world to life from the printed page and attempting to make it match the imaginations of so many, they had a near-impossible task on their hands. But the immensely hard work and dedication of everyone through pain and strife resulted in works of breathtaking splendour and lifelong bonds of fellowship. As a creator, watching the making of materials on the extended edition DVDs, I find a strange feeling gathering in my chest each time. A powerful mix of intense admiration for the craftsmanship of all involved, envy of the experience, and deep, deep longing to be part of something this positive and this capable of inspiring others. It made me want to be a link in the chain. That is why this is my 319th podcast or thereabouts. I started this show with two close friends to get something out there that started from a place of love. 
Every time I put one of these together, it's nearly always with like-minded individuals I have met through the process of podcasting. Every time I talk about a show with the community that has built up around these recordings, it is, in effect, a desire to replicate this project with what I have available to me. In the hope that as well as entertaining many, I may instill in one or more of you a similar yearning to step up and take your place in the chain as well. We do what we are able and forever wish we could do more. So let's start with a brief history of Arda, the world in which the continent of Middle-earth is situated, or Middle-earth, because apparently it can be used for both. I did some checking, and uh, uh, Tolkien himself used the term Middle-earth to describe the entire world. So a lot of what we have to talk about, actually kind of contrary to what we do in Gonzo all the time, uh, has to come from a place of symbolism more than practicality. I'd love to be able to have clear definitions, but ultimately, when I tried to pin it down and I tried to do my research on this, I got deluged with names and dates. Uh, Chris, how much do you know about the Silmarillion? Um, I've read it. <laughs> do you understand it? Um, roughly. I mean, I remember the main points. Mm. Um, I think the last time I read it was probably five years ago. Okay. Well, I, I read it a few years ago myself, and it, it details thousands of years of Middle-earth history with many, many people in an extremely biblical way. It, it, as it stands right now, it could not pass for entertainment. It would have to be run through the filter of, uh, I don't know, I, I would actually say animation is probably the best um, outlet for this because it would cost bajillions to actually produce if you were going to do this as a film, and I'm not sure entirely who they'd be aiming it at. Yeah, I think well, they're only would only be aiming it at diehard Tolkien fanatics who would pick apart the inaccuracies that inevitably are going that to is, be produced. That um, is a very fine <laughs> point. They're, ultimately, the only way they could do it is to weave it into existing stories where it's relevant, um, yeah. because ultimately the, the diehard fans, as always, don't have enough money in their pockets to make a project of this magnitude worthwhile. Even if they did, though, how would you put something like that together, bearing in mind that it was created as a mythology, not yeah. as a, um, an, a factual um, sequencing of events? It's not a story. It's, it's a history, ultimately. Mm. Yeah, and how do yeah. you produce that in, in an entertainment format? Uh, maybe just some, <laughs> a long series of flash animations. <laughs> simplifying it greatly. Okay, either way, I wrote myself a brief history of Middle-earth, and I've gone back to the drawing board to make it even briefer, because I was still swamping you folks with too many names. So here we go. Just tell me if I'm going wrong here, Chris. After Eru Iluvatar, that's God, created the world of Middle-earth, the first age began. This was mostly elves fighting the devil, who was named Melkor, and later Morgoth. I know Tolkien says he doesn't do allegory, but the... um Pretty allegorical. Uh, I know the Valar... <laughs> singing the world into being and there being a dodgy one that is cast down and becomes the devil is a bit allegorical. <laughs> it's pretty applicable to the Old <laughs> Testament, wouldn't you say? Yeah. It's yeah. Like that's the, I don't know if he maybe wouldn't have written it that way if he had you know, actually no, produced it. It's difficult it as a book, to tell because yeah. the Silmarillion was not produced by him. It was um, put together from his notes by Christopher Tolkien his, yeah, um, so maybe, so maybe four years after his death. Maybe he would have phrased it differently so it wasn't as allegorical as it or maybe he'd have said, oh, no, you're not supposed to release this as a book. <laughs> Heavens, no. There were many thousands of years where the sun wasn't even up yet. Then the sun came up, and the elves had lots of run-ins with uh, Morgoth. The Second Age the second age was much the same, only now 
dwarves and humans had entered into the mix, either in the First Age or the Second Age. And Morgoth was now gone and replaced by his lieutenant, Sauron, who was the main antagonist. The the whole Second Age lasts 3,441 years, and the servant of Morgoth, Sauron, disguised himself as an elf uh, named Anatar and convinced the other elves to make... It's it's the elves, isn't it? They they make the 19 rings, the seven, the nine, and the three. There are also lesser rings that no one ever talks about in the films. I think this is um, how we can actually explain why Gandalf doesn't know immediately that the one Bilbo's got is the one ring. Because there were lesser rings around, he just thought it might have been one of those that by happenstance turns you invisible. He didn't realise it was the ring. He was very aware, uh, being an extremely wise man and wizard and uh, Maiar spirit, of the one ring and of the history of the one ring. Yeah, I think of everyone making magic rings at that time, there's so many that try to track it down to one. Now, someone actually asked, what does it mean to actually control all the other rings in in this one? It's very symbolic, again, and it's kind of, it sounds like a subtle magic that it involves putting your will or the will of your people into objects. And because Sauron was able to actually control the elves into doing this, he then put that control and a lot of himself into the One Ring. I think, did he actually mix his own blood into the uh, One Ring when he was uh, forging uh, it? I assume so. Apparently he, uh, you know that black speech with Ash, Kash, Palamar, the one that uh, <laughs> uh, Christopher Lee so fond of. He was saying that while he was forging it, apparently in front of a bunch of elves, and then they twigged yeah. that he was Sauron and kicked him out. <laughs> This is uh, uh, this is research, um, and so this Maybe. all seems like stuff that's like, who cares about this? But it's so important to explain why the elves are tied to the One Ring. Is it possible that at the time when he forged the One Ring, it wasn't actually called Mount Doom, that it was named Mount Doom because... It was Mount Pleasant before. Yeah, <laughs> could be. Yeah, and um, there's a whole thing about the Ents living east of, of Anduin, around that time so I assume it's a lot nicer than it is now yeah um, which makes it less weird that and you know if there's a big fire pit you might as well use it to forge rings in yeah so yeah the elves made three for themselves I think they made the nine for humans gave them to the humans but the humans had to put their own will into those nine and uh, these the dwarves again were given the gift of the seven I think there is also a bit of an implication that the elves have very strong wills and obviously so do the dwarves, although they can be manipulated by their, what is essentially material greed, Um, whereas men's will is much more malleable and much more easy for, um, for Sauron to then take control of. There's a lot of things that suggest that what the the One Ring does is amplify the essential nature of whoever it is is being affected by it. The elves' purity or, or um, you know, the, their desire for secrecy and, and to preserve the, the natural world around them, that's what's been amplified by their, their rings of power. Um, and if you look at, at sort of the individual people, and obviously we'll talk about this as the film progresses, but as the individual people who get the ring have it and are affected by it, it does seem to be some core of their essential nature that gets amped up by its presence. Also, think- apparently these rings are invisible to most people, so that's why we yeah. don't see that Gandalf is actually wearing Narea, the uh, the ring of fire, 
Um, originally, it was given to someone named Kirden the Shipwright. Yeah. Uh, and then passed on to Gandalf. Uh, he's, you can actually see Kirden, he's like sort of going, oh, check out my ring at the beginning in the prologue. <laughs> Um, and Galadriel was given Nenya, the Ring of Water, straight away. And Vilia, the blue one, was given to Gilgalad, the most important elf who ever lived. And then, uh, after he was slain in battle at the, in that big fire in the prologue, it's given to Elrond. So Elrond has the third one. They're all elemental though, aren't they? The elves' rings. You've got, um, fire, water, and air. Um, they don't have an earth ring, um, but I mean that kind of makes sense because they're not particularly yeah. earthy people. But they do all the seven dwarf rings are all the earth. All so. the earth rings, yeah. But I think the the elven rings all have different qualities to them. So um, Nenya is specifically described as having powers of secrecy and concealment, and I think that's part of what helps Galadriel keep Lorien protected from the outside world. And very symbolically, at the very end, when Elrond and Galadriel and Gandalf leave for the west, they're taking the three rings with them. Vilya, Nenya, Nadia. And they, they are the last to leave, aren't they? That's yep. the last ship that goes. Yep. Oh, no, actually, no, there's, there's many, many ships afterwards. Yeah. Legolas, oh, right. bring, uh, Legolas makes several, one and brings Gimli off with him. Yeah. And I don't... Hang on, Legolas brings Gimli off? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he and... There, there is a whole massive subtext there that I don't know if Tolkien was firstly writing, but that uh, they go off together in a boat to the Undying Lands. Yeah, because Gimli is his life partner at this point. Yeah. Or Legolas is certainly Gimli's life partner, because Gimli's a very old dwarf at this point, but Legolas is still young and beautiful. can't actually remember what happens to Arwen. I mean... She... Uh, well, I actually do know this one. Yeah, 120 years after the end of the third film, in the, the fourth age, 120... After Aragorn is dead, she goes into the decaying woods that were previously Lothlorien, sits down beside the trees, and dies. Okay. Of grief. And that's what uh, Elrond shows her as a vision of the future that will actually happen to her, which is why it's so sad in the Two Towers. But yeah, that's the, that's the thing. This is the thing that the entirety of um, the, the films hinges on, uh, and why the elves have such an uneasy relationship with this one ring. Because when Frodo destroys it that then takes all the power out of their rings and then the elves are going to diminish. So when Galadriel says, you're coming to us as the footsteps of doom, she means, if Sauron gets the ring, he'll kill us. If you destroy the ring, you'll kill us. So either way, we're dead. We're, we're sorry, it's nothing personal, but we're going to blame you at this point. 2,463 years after the Battle of Dagor Land, where Isildur failed to destroy the ring, Deagle finds the ring at the bottom of the river, Gollum strangles him to death and takes the ring from him, taking it deep into the Misty Mountains. 478 years later, in 2941 of the Third Age, the events of The Hobbit take place and Bilbo finds the One Ring. 77 years later, in 3018, Frodo, having received the ring some 17 years earlier, or just a few months, depending on what you're going to interpret out of the film, uh, sets out on a journey that will take him to Mount Doom. And then three years later, in 3021, the Fourth Age begins around about the same time Frodo goes to the Grey Havens. Uh, accounts after that only last for 185 years. And Tolkien has gone on record as saying, just shortly before he died, that this is supposed to actually take place on our Earth uh, in a different time of imagination, um, roughly 6,000 years ago. Which is a kind of a nice romantic way of putting it. But like I say, it's it, everything that he has written has to be taken as symbolism, and applicable symbolism at that. Okay, so let's start with the prologue. And the first thing we get is 
the Lothlorien theme and Galadriel's voiceover. The world is changed. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. I smell it in the air. Much that once was is lost. For none now live who remember it. Now this was hugely important because straight away, rather than giving you Gandalf or Elrond, they went with a very powerful female figure, which kind of sets the tone. Despite the fact that this would appear to be a giant boy's own adventure, there were two or three very important females at the core of it. And Galadriel is absolutely important to the story in terms of being able to preside over these events. And then immediately after her first few words, we get the ring theme, which is the... And that plays again and again and again throughout the films in different ways. And this is just a prediction. When The Hobbit comes out, they won't play that theme until Bilbo finds the ring. Yeah, I think, I think that as that is, yeah, they, as soon as he picks it up, possibly, and looks, glances at it. Yeah, and I, th- I don't think it'll be a big dramatic thing. I think it'll just be a little quiet thing. Just a prediction. I'm going to sound pretty stupid in a few weeks <laughs> if it isn't, um, but that would just be an idea. We've already discussed the 20 rings here at this point. So that was that was going to be the next thing, and unfortunately that's out of the way, because, geez, that gets kind of convoluted. Uh, and it, it, we focus at this point on the Battle of Dagorland after the, um, after the whole, this is what the ring is and this is how it came to be. One by one, three lands of Middle-earth fell to the power of the ring, but there were some who resisted. A last alliance of men and elves marched against the armies of Mordor, and on the slopes of Mount Doom, they fought for the freedom of Middle-earth. an epic way to start a film. <laughs> just the, the, the biggest yeah. battle you've ever seen ever a million orcs versus a million elves and humans that's how they start this film <laughs> I, I really liked the sort of the start they didn't go over the top they just had that the archers uh, they had a lot of archers which was good and they all actually shot the bows properly um, and then they just had that Hooray! I was watching it yeah um and then they just had that line of swordsmen just swing, and that just looked so cool. Yeah, it's uh, it, the, the, you're immediately confronted with extremely striking imagery, and so many. I think pretty much every frame of of these films, if you just froze it, would make a fantastic picture. It's extremely yeah. well photographed, and there's that they they make every penny of what they put on screen work for them. 
every shot. I mean, I think that's just how much work they did. In, so they did all the, the well, they they made so many sets and they did so much previs that yeah. you know they they animated so much so they could get to, that's exactly, very get true. Yeah. The perfect shots each time, and they they put so much work into sort of you know, I don't think anyone else would have shot it like that yeah. if they hadn't had these resources, and especially like previs specifically, that was something that was really new at the time. They they went to George Lucas and someone else, I can't remember his name, uh, I think at Lucas Ranch just to talk about it and that's like you know, George Lucas is you know a major name in, in I think I want to say Rick McCallum at this point. Yeah, I think I think that was it. Producer. And just just using sort of like the cutting edge of sort of animation just to do the to get the 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 camera angle sort of perfect for yeah. just like a, a small scene is just so much work gone into it. The the dailies, as I mentioned earlier, usually at the end of the day, Peter after they'd been shooting all day, Peter Jackson would have to sit down and sit through four hours of footage a day. And this film filmmaking lasted years, so effectively they had a lot of really great material to choose from, which is why yeah, and, everything is so great. And the fact that they sort of they storyboarded the entire film, yeah, and cha- you know like kept doing that through like every day yeah. they did new ones, and it's just just so much work going into it just to get. Actually, I mean, obviously watching the extra stuff, you can see how infused he has in the fact he wants to make this his legacy, and he knows he has to do the extra work just to get that in. Yeah. There's no sense as as you're watching the extras material, um, the interviews and all of the um, the making of stuff. There is no sense at any point any kind of laziness, any kind no. of let's do this because it's easier. Or, or let's do this for the money. Well, yeah, it's the same. This this um, script there's like rewrites every day, and yeah, uh, Peter Jackson's day off had to, was would come in and read through the scripts and change bits and. And I think talking about the the prologue specifically, that was written by a, a Pippa, yeah, Pippa and Philip Fran Williams and Fran Walsh, his um, uh, and they, they basically they were they were told you know we would like to do this but to do it properly it's got to be done to do in about it, seven minutes yeah to do it quote unquote properly would take forty minutes so if you can do something and, that, and they did it perfectly in in about seven minutes which just and that that the line that you know that Gladrios. You know, basically all of Gladwell's lines were sort of like the first draft, and they they got it right, or so they got it spot on just through one draft, which is. They so- seem to be very good at boiling things down to their essence very quickly. Yeah, yeah, that was absolutely key. They 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 absolutely get the important aspects of the book. There's a lot of gilding throughout the book a lot of you know and there's also this and you know let's mention Fatty Bulger and his various <laughs> escapades but they just go right here is the essence of this scene this is what this is about and when they do add embroidery and they do add extra characterization it is to serve characters that are being fleshed out in a way that is endemic to how they're written in the book yeah and it's in it's almost coming. every case there are many, many nods to fans. Lobelia Sackville Baggins is a double nod to fans of Peter Jackson's work and of Tolkien's work. She's a minor character in the book, but she wants to get her hands on Bag End. She's played by Lionel's mother from Brain Dead, one of Peter Jackson's <laughs> earliest films. Yeah, you didn't notice. Lionel! She's the most horrible, life-sucking oh, woman in the so world. Good. Excellent actress. 
Um, but uh, yeah, just watch out for her, and she's snooping around the party looking for Bilbo in the extended editions. Elizabeth Moody as Vera Cosgrove. Now, Brain Dead. If you like zombie films but haven't seen Brain Dead yet, and like Peter Jackson's direction, maybe the best zombie film ever until Shaun of the Dead came along. Maybe I better. Think I think it's better than Shaun of the Dead. Um, I, I, I kick ass for the Lord. Is the best, <laughs> oh, best you're gonna line. say it in the right accent. Oh, I kick ass for the Lord. <laughs> Devil is amongst us. Stay back, boy. This calls for divine intervention. I kick ass for the Lord. And of course, it has Jed Brophy in it. That punk who gets killed in the graveyards is in the Lord of the Rings. He is Snarger. The yeah. Why can't we have some meat? Although that's Andy Serkis's voice. He is also Sharku, the warg riding chief who uh, comes a cropper with Aragorn. I have to say, there is something inhuman about Jed Brophy's physical acting. It is amazing. <laughs> I've met him. I was just going to say, having seen him in real life as well, that is how he moves. Oh, his son, uh, Sadwin Brophy, played Eldarion, hypothetical son of uh, Aragorn and Arwen. Okay. That was Jed Brophy's son? Yep. Good grief. <laughs> I've actually met him. I even have a picture of myself uh, next to him, grinning away while he's dressed as Snaga. I will put it up <laughs> on the uh, forum. Moving back a little bit to the Battle of Dagorlan. We're still not off the battle yet. Sauron. I was described, I believe, in Sight and Sound as a gothic castle on legs. <laughs> his face is supposed to resemble a horse's skull. Very specific. I think his body had been destroyed at this point. So he is literally just like a ringwraith. He is a spirit inhabiting the armor and just clinging on. So because he's linked to the ring, that's... I mean, it's a horcrux. Let's face it. If you're into <laughs> Harry Potter, it's a horcrux. When it's severed from him that dispenses with his spirit immediately and then it goes and hides in a forest in Albania for 3,000 years. Because, yeah, he has put his soul in this ring. It's one of the most powerful MacGuffins ever, especially as portrayed in the film, because the ring is a character in and of itself. There was a brief moment when you can see Gilgalad, the guy with the spear who stabs down on an orc and goes, Ugh! Like yeah, no, the yeah, plate... I- Played by Mark Ferguson, who was uh, Craig Parker's co-host at the first Fellowship Festival we went to. Again, really lovely chap. Yeah, I would have liked to see, sort of, you know, have his death scene. That was actually, um, I remember when the extended editions came out, that was rumoured that you were going to see Yugala's death yeah. scene, because that's incredibly important to the history of Middle-earth. He described it and enacted it on stage. Someone picks him up and then sets him on fire. Yeah, that would have been so cool, but... <laughs> I suppose that Not suitable money. for a PG. <laughs> and, yeah, there's Narsil. Now, Narsil, I would like to think, was actually something of a mistake. It's incredibly long. It is a giant two-handed greatsword to be held by a man two and a bit metres tall and to be wielded in battle just to terrify your foes. It is not a practical sword. It's immense. And it's a wonderful combination of dwarven engineering, because it's a dwarf sword. It's a dwarf sword made for a human, and a giant human at that. And it's got the elven runes on it when it's remade as uh, Anduril. And of course, it's it's for the, the, the king of men. So the whole point of it is, it is a binding artifact that unites the three races. The problem is that then they have to give it to Paul Vigo in The Return of the King and it's so big, it's <laughs> it's almost I mean, he's he does his best with it, but I've got the thing and I can barely swing it without my arm falling off. But yeah, it's 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 a wonderful, impressive sword 
and uh, and something that people could really rally behind. But it's so big, you can't actually wear the scabbard. You'd have to have, mount the scabbard on the horse, and you'd have to walk several feet away from the horse while you're drawing it. <laughs> That's how big it is. But yeah, I think you're right. It, it's representative of a an era when a king's crown didn't necessarily mean all that much, but a king's sword was the thing that you would follow yeah. because that's it. You know, when he's in the middle of a battle, that's what he's going to hold up to everybody to say, "Guys, I'm over here." Designed by John Howe, I believe he he drew the preliminary sketches for it, and then uh, it was modelled on those. John Howe was one of two major conceptual artists who had originally worked on a lot of the Lord of the Rings illustrations for the previous books, and they were retained by Jackson and Company um, when they were making. The, they were like, "Look, who do we need to get for this?" Clearly, Howe and Lee. Now, John Howe did all of the nasty, spiky orcs and Mordor and all of the horrible stuff, and Alan Lee did all of the sort of beautiful, flowing elven stuff. Yeah, John Howe also did Bag End, though. Oh, did he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because he was, um, he wrote, he drew the, um. The picture of Gandalf where he's sort of like storming forwards. No, it's, the, the, it's the one. Pit, for one of the maps, he drew a picture of the door of Bag End and sort of like the hallway. And Why? sort of looking out, and then Peter Jackson asked him to you know, draw the rest. And he looked very giddy when he, when he said that. He's like, I got to ask, I got to ask him to draw more of this, you know, this excellent picture. And so he made Bag End, basically. So effectively, he was then able to fill in what was at the left and the right of this particular drawing, and uh, yeah. and give us the, the the world again. Wow. Yeah, and it's 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 quite interesting that as well that they had um, the two greatest Tolkien drawer, you know, illustrators, illustrators yeah. who'd never met each other before, met on the plane to New Zealand. <laughs> like, I don't know how you don't meet each other. I know one lives in in Devon and the other lives in Switzerland, but you'd think... That there'd there must, be a conventions or something? Yeah, there must be a convention that I suppose they don't want to go co- to conventions. Well, they, they do get. now, because I, I met them oh. both at the same time, and they signed like, my books. <laughs> Probably at the time, that's a bit... Yeah, well, they didn't have the films to bind them together. Yeah, before this, it's just a sort of fanatics which yeah. Tolkien did not like. <laughs> yeah, so there was kind of a nebulous fan base around there and didn't have the internet to really get together, and ultimately I think a lot of them may have had to meet through D&D. If there's a Venn diagram of Tolkien fans and D&D fans, there's going to be some intersection. It's going to yep. be a big intersection as well, <laughs> I think. And then after Isildur comes a cropper to an archer in the Gladden Fields, we get to see early Gollum. And this was, if you actually looked at this um, uh, animated puppet, as it were, under full light, he would look very different from the Gollum that turns up in the Two Towers. He's got a completely different shaped head, for for one thing. They hadn't His got eyes the... are very different as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah if you actually look at the uh, the eyes in um, when they turn up very briefly, that's not Andy Circus's eyes. And no. Gollum absolutely does have Andy Serkis's eyes. Yeah, I think they were sort of obviously they weren't concentrating on getting Gollum right because yeah. he just shows up twice okay. in the film, which yeah. and you could explain it away just by being he's not got the ring anymore, so he could change. I mean, he shouldn't look like that anyway. <laughs> you know, yeah. That's not how it works. Uh, the only way he could look like is for the corruption of the ring. So not having that corrupting influence could change him even Maybe. just over a film I'm not even going to explain it away I, this <laughs> is one of the only 
instances where I would actually be be fine with Weta going back and just just touching up a little bit of Fellowship of the Ring for say a twenty year re release and going right, let's make sure that Gollum matches Gollum in the second two. Couple of uh, little bits of um, millennial rubber turn up in this film. We'll mention them later, but specifically with Legolas. I don't know why, but um, the model he jumps, of he jumps on stuff. He jumps why. on stuff a lot, and then whenever he runs, he's slightly bigger than the other guys, so you notice him more. And mm. um, uh, his character model, I just keeps jumping out at me and slapping me in the face. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I, w- I wouldn't mind if they went back and, and changed that. Maybe, you know, as long as we've got the original ones on Blu-ray, which we do. Not a problem. Any more on the prologue before we move on to the Shire? I just think it's incredibly well sort of written, just how you can tell the whole story of the ring in about ten minutes. Yeah. It just shows how good a writer sort of everyone involved is. Oh, we are going to see... Um uh, the, the, not the non-Ian Home version of Young Bilbo in this exact same scene again in just a few weeks. Yeah. I'm hoping, I'm, I'm assuming they'll make sure that the clothes are right. Um, I'm not sure if the actual events take place in the same uh, order. I think doesn't he, in the original Hobbit book he finds the ring, then talks to Gollum, then yeah. Gollum decides he's going to go off and find the ring, put on the ring, and then come back and eat him. Yeah. Um, but this is before Bilbo asks, "What have I got in my pocket?" And then Gollum runs away from him, goes back to his island to find the ring. And at this point, Bilbo's getting freaked out and puts the ring on at this point and goes invisible. So it doesn't just go finds the ring. Last, the precious is last. <laughs> but again, artistic interpretation. And when they did this, I don't think that any of them had the um, inkling that they were going to be able to come back and do The Hobbit. No, yes, they kept that, saying that is- it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity each time. Yes, that that is a scene that again I I wouldn't mind if they changed it and put a scene from the Hobbit in previously to, on on Lord just, of the Rings. Just, just I mean, so it's just that one scene they could just supplant with. I mean, obviously you're going to have the Hobbit with the yeah. proper Gollum model, and we're going solve to that problem as well. And, and we're going to be used to Martin Freeman as Bilbo, so suddenly Ian Holm in a wig turns up. <laughs> like, yeah, the thing is, that is a good nod to the the radio play though as well. So it's, of course, yeah. It's released like twenty year anniversary and have optional scene. You can have it with Ian Holm or Martin Freeman. Well, ultimately, it would be like you know, optional. Do you want the, like a few little bits of digital touching up? Ultimately, though, it's only a few, and it's only yeah. like just a, a bit of you know. In retrospect, we would have done it like this, a, just little tiny bits, not making anyone go <laughs> no when they otherwise wouldn't. Ruining Changing a scene. Changing the context of the scene. <laughs> adding adding uh, ghost Gandalf into the Florian. <laughs> uh, originally, they were going to be doing The Hobbit. There were various sort of, well, why don't you just do Lord of the Rings? So they said, really? Okay. Um, <laughs> we've got this treatment here for a two-part Lord of the Rings. And they said, uh, could you do it in three? We can do it yeah. in three. <laughs> Which yeah, is why the Two Towers was a hard one for them because they had to change their original treatment so that they divided out bits from the end of the first part and the beginning of the second part into a, another movie. Yeah, I quite like sort of the differences between sort of Miramax and Eli. Miramax says you have to have it one film, and Eli say, "Do you want free? Yeah, <laughs> it's like just it sort of shows a completely different sort of world view of what. How you how you treat creators, you know. Sort of New line artists. in the late nineties, though. At this point, New Line were just coming into their own. They've been around since nineteen sixty seven, 
and they hadn't really come into their own or made anything absolutely huge. And on January 28th, 1994, New Line Cinema was acquired by Ted Turner's Turner Broadcasting System, which then merged with Time Warner in 1996. So they were a subsidiary of Time Warner at this point, which is why Warner are tied up in the original releases of The Lord of the Rings. But it was strictly a New Line production, as it were. Time Warner were just sort of part of that. And then in 2008, New Line Cinema was merged with its parent company, Warner Brothers, and the disappointment of the Golden Compass was largely <laughs> blamed for the decision in which New Line spent more than $200 million on the promotion of the film, yet only grows $70 million in the U.S. market. And that comes down to greed <laughs> and gutlessness. But we'll talk about that when we talk about the Golden Compass at some later date. Uh, but back in the 90s, New Line knew what they were doing, and they didn't the one ring had not got its grip on them at this point. <laughs> so they did encourage them to make three films, which of course was absolutely the right thing to do. Yep. Or maybe they didn't know what they were doing and they just luckily trusted the filmmakers mm. to go and do something right. And they gave them unparalleled amounts of creative control as well. You hear so many stories about, you know, studio meddling. None of it with Lord of the Rings to begin with. What's actually most surprised about Miramax just saying, yeah, you can use that. Basically, I think they said you can use that script. Yeah, you know, yeah that, that's fine. You can go off and do two films, you know, or three films if you want, but which I don't think would happen now. They'd say, no, that's our script. Yeah. They were probably I mean, anticipating that New Line were going to bankrupt themselves with <laughs> it. Really? Yeah. I know they um, sort of basically re- completely rewrote it, which may have got them out of the, any legal problems but still it's probably have to say we didn't use any of this it's also still at this point tied up in the Saul Zantz property that persisted since the uh, 70s as well so it, there is a relation to the 1978 Lord of the Rings so then the Shire <clears throat> the 22nd day of September in the year 1400 by Shire reckoning Bag End Bagshot Row Hobbiton West Farthing, the Shire, Middle Earth. The third age of this world. There and back again. A Hobbit's Tale by Bilbo Baggins. Now, where to begin? Ah, yes. Concerning Hobbits. Hobbits have been living and farming in the four farthings of the Shire for many hundreds of years, quite content to ignore and be ignored by the world of the big folk. Middle-earth being, after all, full of strange creatures beyond count, Hobbits must seem of little importance. Being neither renowned as great warriors, nor counted among the very wise. <laughs> Frodo! Someone at the door! In fact, it has been remarked by some that Hobbit's only real passion is for food. 
a rather unfair observation, as we have also developed a keen interest in the brewing of ales and the smoking of pipeweed. But where our hearts truly lie is in peace and quiet and good tilled earth. For all hobbits share a love of things that grow. And yes, no doubt to others our ways seem quaint. <laughs> but today of all days, it is brought home to me. It is no bad thing to celebrate a simple life. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful piece of music. <laughs> Absolutely timeless, the Hobbiton theme. And uh, it plays alongside, in the extended edition, it actually seems like a documentary about Hobbits. If you actually watch the camera angles, and it's sort of, it's, it's almost like sort of, and so we see the Hobbits scurrying to a buffet at dusk. <laughs> it, it's got this, this wonderful kind of sense of being there. And the way um, that Ian Holm is... Um, narrating it, it really sort of uh, draws you in and gets you to really fall in love with the place. That's one failing of the theatrical editions that I think it, they couldn't really give it those extra couple of minutes because they really needed to rush with this one. That's one of the reasons why I love the extended edition intro here. Um, the other one being that when it cuts to Samwise Gamgee way before he's actually introduced in the in the film and says for all hobbits are fond of things that grow it's just a wonderful kind of you love sam you know it <laughs> moment yeah i i, I like the the bill introduction because it it sort of draws a parallel with the end of return of the king mm. where frodo is saying you know that's the end of the story and and it draws a parallel with the hobbit because it's he's yeah. finishing off the book that's why the, the sort of return of the king doesn't the end doesn't work in the theatrical because you don't have the yeah. extended beginning of it because it's like okay but, but by then by the time you saw the theatrical version of Return of the King you'd seen the extended edition of Fellowship well, so you still had that yeah yeah but, um, and also I think in the theatrical they don't have Gandalf humming the or singing the, the Road Goes Ever On and On song which I think he's very good at singing that are you sure that's not in the um... I, don't, I don't think so because um, it starts with Frodo sitting with the book and in the extended Gandalf starts singing it while they're progressing from one scene to the other. And I don't remember him singing it. No, no, he sings it because Frodo cuts okay. him off. Wizard is never late, Frodo Baggins. Nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. So it illustrates more the, the hold the ring has on Bilbo. There's the, the yeah. sequence where the music goes sort of agitated and he goes, oh, where's the ring, where's the ring? And finally finds it in his waistcoat pocket. Which is an important, you know, because otherwise the theatre is sort of like, there's only one scene where he actually shows that it's affecting him and this is, yeah. you know, has a couple more and showing how sort of neurotic he's getting. The Hobbiton set is in a place of New Zealand called Metameta, 
which was a large amount of farming country that um, sadly when they when they left after finishing filming they had to dismantle the entirety of Hobbiton which they then had to mantle again when the Hobbit came <laughs> came yeah. about and I believe they've actually left it now I don't know why they got rid of it doesn't make any with. sense because it was still owned by the farmer and he needed to start farming on it again. But Surely the farmer could just use it as a tourist attraction, <laughs> yeah. as a thank you. You make far more money as a tourist attraction than from sheep. You're going to get people coming to your land anyway to look at a field full of sheep. You might as well. So okay. that's, I believe that they've done that now, and they'll keep that open. And uh, I would love to go. Yeah. I want to go to New Zealand just for a Lord of the Rings tour. Me too. Sharon has family there. Lots of family. Yes. <laughs> we will not want for couches to sleep on. <laughs> and we get introduced to Frodo, and we get introduced to Gandalf, and straight away you get the sense that Frodo is this vibrant, happy, childlike young man, and um, you know doesn't have a care in the world, and it's a while before you start having things taken away from him. And I've actually um, read from people online saying that they don't like... And this is jumping forward to the end of the seventh podcast we're going to do. But they they don't like the way that Frodo doesn't suffer enough in Return of the King. And you don't really get a sense that um, much has been taken away from Frodo when he's not really... At what point <laughs> were they going, Ah, it's easy, I could do that. They want more fingers cut off. Elijah Wood goes through a kind of ringer that I, I, you know, I never liked Elijah Wood much before seeing this film. I don't know why. I think he just, uh, you know, he was a very sweet young child actor. I think it was the ice storm that first made me go, yeah, actually, he's pretty good at acting. The problem I have with Elijah Wood, he does a bit too much eyebrow acting. And he does it in Lord of the Rings as well. As in he he arches them. Well, he does, he just like, he just sort of, you know, sort of screws them together and like, that's his sad face. And it's like, it's like, Orlando Bloom does as well. Which, I was uh, just going to say, Orlando Bloom is so much worse at that. I would let Elijah yeah. Woods go personally. Um, but what actually watching the animated films has given uh, Elijah Wood a pass. He is so much better than it basically <laughs> any of the any of the acting in the animated films that yeah. he's. But unfortunately, not as good as Ian Home in the the, uh, the radio play, but. I haven't got it. to the end of Return of the King yet, but I've, um, I'm in the middle of, of Return. And, uh, yeah, Ian Holm has been very good. Yeah, it, there's still that sense of weird, like, hang on, this is Bilbo. No, it's Frodo. Yeah. I, don't I think, think I'm, I'm going to disengage from that. I don't think you can really compare Ian Holm with Elijah Wood, though. I mean, Ian Holm is a, a much better actor, but... Because he's done, he's done such a range of things. Um, but Elijah Wood is a lot better than the majority of the adaptions I've had so watching the animated you know it's just it's made me it, like his acting style much much more than mm. I did previously and I do care about Frodo it, it is absolutely key that you care about Frodo if you don't care about Frodo then they've they've screwed up the entire film is moot at that point and a lot of people don't care about uh, Elijah Wood's Frodo they're annoyed by him or they want him dead um, <laughs> Which is terrible. And yeah, like I said, a lot of fans, specifically Tolkien's, um, the, the, the horrible pigeonhole that people uh, get shoved into is if you're, rel- if you're really into the books, you're a Tolkien. If you're really into the films, you're a ringer. I don't know what the definition is of someone who loves them both. There's got to be many, many people who, again, in the Venn diagram, there's got to be a convergence of purple Ting- in the middle. Tinger. Tringer. <laughs> Tringer. That doesn't make any yeah. sense. Ringer. <laughs> A rinky. <laughs> yeah. 
there, there are going to be people out there who are like, well, why aren't you, you know, bringing in a, a major fan of the books to um, trip you up at every step of the way and go interjection? This is not how it happened. Um, well, precisely for that reason, this is a celebration the, of the films. The book show was last week. Yeah, the book show was last week. There will be plenty of podcasts out there celebrating the the, the brilliance of the books, and of course, you know, it's, it has its it absolutely has its strengths. But um, I, I I speak the language of film so much better. Yeah, I think I think I mean partially the problem. I think it had more place when it was released. Mm. Um, so I mean, the, the stage of fantasy then was was so low that. It needed the bar to be set. Yeah, this coming out and being such a sort of well-rounded story and yeah. well-thought-out world that it's magnificent, but there, I think there have been books that have done it better. Well, it depends on what you, what you mean by better in terms of well, uh, be, uh, actually crafting out a world and giving you uh, millions of characters and, hi- and much history. It's still up there. They've told a better story. But in terms of telling a better story or focusing more on characterization or making you care more, yeah, it's been done better. Hobbiton itself... It's one of the places that Tolkien spent ages describing and went into meticulous detail on what the actual place looked like, what it felt like. And so it was absolutely key that Wetter and company needed to present that to the readers because it would have been conjured up vividly in everybody's minds in a way that Bree or even Rivendell wouldn't have been quite so absolutely requiring to be spot on. And again, it's triumphant. I, I, I've never heard anyone complain about Hobbiton at any point and say, no, that's, that's not at all what he meant. I think even the professor himself, gruff though he may have been in demeanor, would have, uh, and I don't want to put words into his mouth, but uh, would have found it um, somewhat accurate to his original yeah, description. It shows a, another thing of them trying to get it right. So they spent a year doing that. They built it a year before they started shooting just to get the, you know, all the plants established. and They grew it. Yeah, that's that just doesn't happen that very often. That does not happen, no. <laughs> Hobbiton is basically England. Um, Rural England as yeah, seen through idealistic eyes. Yes, yeah, an English village and they're, they're all, excuse the pardon, little Englanders. Um, that they basically, they stay, they're a very secluded world that just, they just want their sort there really. I mean, it's not a particular place working with foreigners, but. They're slightly paranoid of outside. Yeah, they disapprove sort of, of how things go on in the outside they world. Sort of want it to be. Well, sort of want it to be perfect, but they don't want. To, they just want to be happy. Which I mean, I think they they get across so well in the films that just yeah. people are just having fun all the time. It's it's about a preservation of innocence as well, though, because when um, you've got that, I think it's only in the theatrical edition, I think the dialogue is slightly different in the extended edition, but when Gandalf and Frodo are coming across the bridge into Hobbiton itself, uh, Gandalf says to him about... Uh, you know, Frodo's asking about the outside world and he says, oh, it goes on in its own way, completely ignorant of what's going on here, hmm. for which I am very grateful. Even Gandalf likes the fact that there's this little preserved area that the rest of the, the horrors of the world do not intrude on. I think that's why he, you know, where he goes there, because he's outside of the, the Shire, he's he's a wizard, he, you know, is supposed to fix everything, and in the, mm. the Shire he's, he's just... He's a firework merchant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's where he goes on a holiday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, he has a, a specific very f- uh, ah. He has a fondness that is uncharacteristic of the rest of the Astari. Uh, when Sar- Saruman talks to him and says, "Your your love of the halfling's leaf has made you weak," this whole <laughs> idea—if you hang around with hobbits, and you'll go funny. Well, that's, that's a bit like Radagast as well. He hangs around with birds and beasts, and he's he's looked down upon by by Saruman as well because he's just a 
think he's just like a, a hedge wizard. He's a furry. Um, and uh, yeah then we find we get to meet Bilbo who again is exactly as I imagined in the book um, as uh, as Ian Holm plays him now I unlike most of the rest of the characters Gandalf and Bilbo I'd had um, uh, described to me when I read The Hobbit at the age of 12 so these are guys who had been with me for a long long time and I'd only just read old Bilbo but in my mind, I you know I, I could I could see young Bilbo through him, which is very very important. But the way that McKellen captures Gandalf, principally because it seems possibly as a result of his exceptional years, but it seems like everything Ian McKellen does is a little bit of treasure that we've, I've just got to hold on to while he's still alive, and I will weep and weep and weep the day he passes away. And I pray it'll happen long after The Hobbit is put to bed. It's not, it's not that old. Literally, <laughs> older and... Some would say uh, wiser. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, Ian McKenna managed to get to New Zealand and do all the physical labor he has to do to... To, to still be Gandalf, I mean, he's got to run around and fight things. And Christopher Lee smash. is ninety. Good grief! <laughs> yeah. Really? Yep. I mean, he was only a sprightly eighty-year-old when, or slightly <laughs> below that, when uh, when uh, Lord of the Rings was being made. But uh, that, but that that is that is not how you would expect to see a man in his in his. 80s tonight. I mean, he he does not only appear to have all of his marbles, but all of other people's marbles too. Yeah, <laughs> did deal with the devil at some point. Except for that bit in the extended uh, extras when they brought him in for ADR and they're trying to get him to read just something about the three rings and the seven rings, and he just starts reeling off the poem about <laughs> seven rings, and everyone knows this one. And then he goes into uh, and starts doing it in uh, in the black speech, and it's like, stop showing off, Chris, we get it. We know you like languages. We know you read this book religiously. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It's how do we describe Ian McCallan's performance? I can tell you right now that when I saw X-Men a mere year and a bit previously – None of that performance as Magneto charmed me. And when I saw Apt Pupil before that, mm, yeah. And when I saw Richard III, you know, good, excellent performance. This was the first time when I saw Ian McKellen and I thought, no, I love this man. I truly do. He is absolutely phenomenal. And I can't quite put a finger on what it is. He throws himself into the character. That's one thing. He, he, I mean, like Radagast, he appears a hedge wizard. He's, you know, he's straggly, his costume's covered in mud. He seems like he's been all over the place. He's, you know, got lines all over his face. He's got a false nose on. Yeah, and actually, I just noticed today he's got, his, his um, pipe fits in his staff. Really? Oh, yes, no, I yeah, didn't know that. Just hooks in staff. I just, I just noticed, I just saw it on the, the, the wizard fight. It's like, oh, that's his, that's his pipe. <laughs> And then like Saruman, the perfect place to have it. It's one of his stuffs because uh, Saruman yeah. nicks that and keeps that in Isengard. <laughs> I believe he has a spare and glandering at Rivendell. And then he gets a third staff to be Gandalf the White and a fourth staff at the Grey Havens. Actually, does he have a staff at the Grey Havens? Uh, don't think so. Well, definitely a third. Yeah. <laughs> with a gazebo on the top to be Gandalf. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, okay, so back to Bilbo and, and Gandalf. The, the, the interaction between these two characters uh, would have sold it to all but the most rancorous and pedantic of Tolkien's. Flinty-hearted. <laughs> <laughs> it's just having two sort of ex- very experienced actors sort of just playing off each other, just it yeah. sells the scene so much. They, they, because they're such experienced actors, they know their, their parts so well, and I assume they've read The Lord of the Rings quite a few times, um, that they can just inhabit the characters and they know precisely how they would act in that situation. So it's, it's it just seems easy for them to, to, to sell it, really. The point where they meet in the book, I, I actually quoted this directly on the forum just to show the difference between the book and the film. In the book, it's like, oh, hello, Gandalf, let's go and have a party. Yes, hello, Bilbo, let's go and have a party. Then they go and have a party. In the film, there's that wonderful moment where he's, I feel thin, like butter scraped over too much bread, which comes a little bit later in the book, but they just pulled it back and resituated it to show you what Bilbo was going through before the party. There's a lot of resituating dialogue where they go, right, this bit is brilliant, we don't want to lose it, but it would be most appropriate here. Yeah. Scene on, they have their smoking... And just Gandalf just shows off and puts a ship. Does, oh, you can do a ring, I'll do a ship. It's because Bilbo's thinking about rings and yeah. Gandalf is thinking about ships to the west. But nice they do both seem at that point to be old men ruminating on their ends. Here's Oscar-winning costume designer Nyla Dixon on dressing Saruman and Gandalf. With Saruman, I wanted to create the sense this is the head of this order. I wanted a grandness, and I also wanted him to have the stature of an elf. This is the costume of Saruman the White, um, who was played to perfection by Christopher Lee. The concept behind this um, costume was to give it as many textures as we possibly could, because... When you've got a character who's called Saruman the White and he's going to be in um, white robes, we needed to get some sense of definition happening to, to that costume. And so the way we went about it was to use different textures in the fabrics themselves. So um, whether it's the linens in this underneath piece, these incredible brocades here, um, and then we went to a silk, which has got quite a lot of pattern in it. And a lot of these sorts of things don't come up on camera in a huge way, but what they do is they just give it much more life. It's also slightly warm. It wouldn't be brilliant, glowing white. It couldn't be after thousands of years or hundreds of years. So they were very clever there. They said it must look not exactly shabby, but worn. We've really aged this costume down. It's quite extreme at times, you know, like we've actually sort of put quite a bit of life into that breakdown. You can see, you know, it's starting to get ever so slightly threadbare in places. And again, looking for elements that were going to create that sense of age. He's been a wizard for a long time. It would be wise, my friend. Tell me, friend, when did Saruman the wise abandon? reason for madness. There's a lot of drawings of Gandalf. In fact, he is the one who appears in more images than anyone else in the most defined way. In the discussions with Peter, Peter constantly referred to a drawing of John Howes. And I went, 
why don't we see if we can make this come off the page? The actual gown of Gandalf came together really, really easily. There's lots of hand stitching on it. There's lots of men's in it. The idea was that this man needed to look like he never took this costume off. You know, we liked that idea of bits of twig and leaf caught up in it. I was always concerned that there should be mud on the fringes of the long robe. And if he'd been riding, that there should be splattered uh, mud further up the costume. Then we began work on this hat. Now, I have this fabulous milliner who works with me, Hayley Bay. So we developed it to a point where Pete felt that we were, you know, we all were feeling that we were getting there and waited for Ian McKellen to arrive. I mean, I can still remember the look on Ian's face as the hat was handed to him. I mean, he's such a fabulous man, and he just, there was just this imperious kind of, hmm, like this. And then he popped it on his head, and it's it's one of those magical moments where even Ian himself had to admit that suddenly Gandalf was in the room with us. You also see here the, what's the best way of putting it, the magic trick of handling scale. We were watching it again today after we'd seen all the extras and been shown how they do it. And you were making subhuman noises, uh, Sharon. Uh, you were like, I can't, I still don't see how it works. It's it's a simple case of having Ian McKellen slightly closer to the camera. Yes, I know, but but... I'm not explaining it to you. I know it. I know it. You know it. Everyone at home knows it. But the way they sell it, and I, I paid such close attention, when Gandalf lifts up the top of the teapot, it's actually not on the teapot that Bilbo then pours the tea into. He doesn't pour. That I noticed that. That's um, a trick of the imagination, mm. that he's he's so close to pouring it that you think you've seen him pour into the teapot, but you don't. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's... I've done so well that I, I've never taken it as weird. I thought that's yep, they're, they're different sizes, but I know in the back of my mind that they're not. I just that just because it's so well done, it just it just looks so real. That it's like oh yeah, they just got two people, they're different sizes. They described it as using every single trick in the book, from you know the, the most modern. Uh, they pioneered new technology to get things to work, and like specifically things like massive to get the battle scenes to work. I, for some reason, whenever I start talking about stuff in Weta Workshop, I sort of lapse into a New Zealand accent <laughs> to, to old Victorian parlour tricks, which is how they got some of the uh, the yeah. false perspective. To work. I think for the bad games because they built that they, you know, they built well, from the extra, they built that set as early as they could. Yeah, and, in two scales as well. Yeah, and Peter Jackson, you see, there's a, a quite good video just him and a few other people running, sort of just basically acting out the lines, just seeing how it, it would work. work. Yeah, that's got that's got the scariest Gandalf face. Yeah, it's like a bloke's a mask. <laughs> yeah, on, I don't like it. It's, <laughs> yeah, when he does, it when he does the. When he does the, you know, not a kind of old tricks, he just puts the arms up. It's just really, really creepy. Them building that as early as they could and sort of just basically Peter Jackson is just playing in it. Yeah. Because basically he, it's like one of his co-producers tried to do Bilbo. He said, yeah, no, I'm going to do Bilbo now because you're not good enough, <laughs> basically. Just him being able to play in it just sort of produces the correct camera angles to, yeah. to pull off all the shots perfectly. 
and they use incredibly tall people uh, with regular sized actors you know, to want to one scale uh, shot, and then they use incredibly small people with non regular sized people to to do it in the other direction. And there's such swift sleight of hand going back and forth and back and forth that you're not focusing on it. And I think one of the things that you uh, pointed out earlier, Sharon, was the, the difference between them and Lucas. And I, I don't want to bash the sh- crap out of George Lucas because he's had enough of it, frankly, now. But uh, to use an example of another very important trilogy that was being made at exactly the same time, Lucas is quite happy fooling your eyes. Um, Weta needed to fool your brain. Like, you know, looking at, uh, at a bar with robots and wibbly aliens in it and one real person, Ewan McGregor, sitting down in it and going, right, okay, so uh, Ewan's real, he's in a giant blue room, and that cup is real. Everything else is entirely fabricated via computers. That's fine. And you just wait for the scene to finish. But in yeah. The Lord of the Rings, you're not thinking, oh, I know how they did that, or um, oh, this is real, that's not, or that's a miniature. It, it changes and it moves itself around so quickly, you can't keep track of what's quote-unquote real and in the size that you would expect. Yeah, I think sort of the difference is, I mean, not to get, yeah, bashed or too much, I think just the sort of professionalism of Peter Jackson, just he, he knows that he has to get this right, where George Lucas possibly thought that he knew best so he thought that was the best option when the the best option sort of for the fans and the the best way to make it perfect would be to use prop you know models and uh, things like that you know just to you know make it as real as possible but he took the the easy way out which he knows leads to the dark side uh, which <laughs> produced the dark side of films they both they could both be described as the most expensive independent film ever because ultimately yeah. um, the the Star Wars prequels were effect were they self financed by Lucas he did a lot of yeah. the producing himself yeah I think they were, I think um, they were. so so that would mean he wouldn't have any studio meddling Fox could not step in and say we need you to do this for us um, whereas with Lord of the Rings it was a massive massive film but they were approaching it from the point of view of um, People making an independent film on a really tight budget and having to not cut corners, but be ingenious at every step of the way. The fact that Peter and Fran and Richard had all started out on like just you know putting together really low budget, horrible zombie and alien films for for, for nothing, and trying to make what they had stretch out as much as possible. That comes across in terms of of, of the requirements, necessity being the mother of invention. Yeah, I'd rather have tricks that are real than just computer tricks that quote unquote the proper way of doing it I'd rather have something that's real and that that a a small company has worked out to do than Mm. one with thousands like oh we can do this because we've got loads of money rather than oh we have to do it this way because we've got uh, not not got a lot the the cheaper solution usually quite a lot of the time looks better than just because it it's got a a love and a, a passion behind it and a very singular vision as well. That was another thing yeah. I said about um, the way Peter Jackson works. He obviously has a very clear vision about what he wants to see, and he has a very effective way of communicating that to people and getting the best from them as well because he's giving them the opportunity to really shine at whatever their particular craft is. You know, he's, he's not hiring um, people who uh, can make... You know, he's not he's not hiring prop designers to make 
various assorted things. He's hiring weapon crafters. He's hiring carpenters. He's hiring people who make these things for real. Um, and then saying, right, now make me three different sizes of them. Um, so it's everything about it is all about bringing forward the reality of it rather than just making something that looks appropriate. Yeah, I like there's a quote he basically he did a speech to the design crew basically saying you know treat it as a this is a historical event that 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 really happened and that middle earth did exist and all yeah, we're doing is an archaeological dig to find it managed to get exactly the same place it was filmed you know it actually happened into to to films to treat it as like a special yeah. realistic thing that actually happened this is this has all happened so we're just sort of recreating what happened so the designs are all real and we have to make them the way that they would have made them and it it just adds so much to the films yeah here's a shed load of polyurethane take away everything that's not middle earth I would like to mention that this cake that Bilbo has was the model for our wedding cake. <laughs> was it delicious, Sharon? I can't remember. It was, yes. We had. It, I suppose it should really have been fruit cake, but it was uh, chocolate. chocolate on the bottom and lemon on the top. I think. Nice. Yes. Never settle for fruit cake. Sort of reinforces how jolly the Shire is, and it is a, a very important sort of jolly scene that, that counteracts the, the darkness that um, sort of foreboding that happens in the. You know, sort of later in this film and in the other two films, you need to have a, a jolly scene to start it off with. Otherwise, it's just all depressing. It'd be very difficult to say, hand on heart, that you would not want to attend this party. And uh, significantly, we also get to uh, meet very briefly, without her really even speaking much, uh, Rosie Cotton, who is a major motivating figure for Sam throughout the entire trilogy. Played by Sarah McLeod, who we have the autograph of. Yeah, she's she's luminous, and I think this is also kind of important for. Um, and I know this sounds cynical, and sorry about this, Chris. Uh, for them to point out at the very very beginning, right? Sam Gamgee definitely not gay, and uh, anyone else out who thinks that he and Frodo have got a thing going, that's not true because he totally marries this woman, and no gay man has ever married a woman <laughs> at any point. Five, six. Seven, eight. Hold on, his daughter. Well, he's definitely gay. We can't be gay. He's got a daughter. Oscar Wilde was married with two kids. Well, he couldn't have been gay. What, Oscar Wilde? Yeah. Gotta stop hanging around with you. But no, it, uh, yeah. ultimately, the, the relationship between Frodo and Sam is actually extremely complex. And I don't actually believe that there's much of anything sexual involved in it uh, whatsoever. I don't even, I, I don't think that really enters into it. But it is absolutely clear that Sam will do anything for Frodo. Yeah, I think um, Frodo is an asexual being. He doesn't seem to like anyone. Yeah, that's you know, he kind of important. He doesn't, there's no mention of any relationships in the books. There's no relationship of afterwards. He just is... I think a lot of that is because it, it basically everything, every fibre of his being is consumed by desire for the ring. And there's there's no room after that for desire for anything or anyone else. That's a good and ultimately that's why... Gollum's equally sexless. Yeah. yeah. And Bilbo. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. He doesn't have children. Doesn't have any children of his own. No, that's why he ends up um, adopting Frodo. You could go into all kinds of Freudian uh, imagery the, regarding the, the, the ring. circular ring. <laughs> yeah. I quite like the Bilbo sort of telling the Hobbit tale to the children because mm. that 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 child that go <gasps> is oh. a Peter Jackson's daughter. Yeah, and Peter the Jackson's son. The little boy sat with her is well. and, um, yeah. Billy. Is his, his name Billy? Yeah, Billy and Katie. Little Billy Jackson. He's probably like. He's about 18, 19 now. <laughs> yeah. uh, they're actually in all three films. They're, uh, they're Rohan orphans in the uh, in Two Towers, and they're Gondorian kids in uh, Minas uh, what, Tirith in Return of the King. Is that, is that them? In... Yep. Oh, wow. They grow up quite a lot yeah. between those three films. Peter Jackson is in all, uh, of, all three. Yeah, yep. he's in, yes, he's in all three. I mean, it's just like that's a hallmark of a, a sort of a small independent developer of getting you and your family in everything you do. Yeah. So yeah, Pete's in there. And uh, we get to meet Merry and Pippin with their fireworks shenanigans. And um, Bilbo does his disappearing act. Now in the book, I could be wrong about this, Gandalf assists him with a little poof of smoke. to You know, a bit of theatrics to help him on his way. Does he uh, do that in the Bakshi one? I think so, yeah. Well, he definitely disapproves of it in the film. Yes, it seems to be in the, the book he knows that Bill was going to use the ring yeah. to do that, and then in this it's more of a shock. Which... Yeah. They, they, in fact, there's a lot more of kind of um, Gandalf being very much intimidated by the One Ring in the early part of this film. There's a, a brief moment where uh, Bilbo gets to talk to Frodo before it all kicks off in the extended edition, which is really, really nice, and I kind of wish they'd left it in, but again, they have to cut these things for, for timing. And I actually would like to, at this point, exonerate the theatrical editions of all three films, because they serve a purpose. While the extended editions are great for all of us from now on, if you try to get a new person into Lord of the Rings and you give them the extended edition, it's going to be a bit too much to start with. Mm. Get them into the theatrical edition. They whip along really fast. We sat down and watched it today and it was gone like that. Yeah, because I mean, I had not read any of the books before I'd watched the first film Mm. and that made me read all the books. So, I mean... Can't have been bad. (laughs) No, yeah, they they are masterpieces, just the extended editions are more masterpieces than... (laughs) <laughs> but that's the thing. We should at least credit the theatrical editions with being masterpieces as well. Yeah. Well, then, uh, push them away. That's, <laughs> let us never speak of the theatrical editions. Yeah, I suppose yeah. it's they just, yeah, the extended edition just eat, perfects it even more. It's just like, yeah. And sometimes you just you have an evening and you want to watch it without going past midnight. <laughs> if that's yeah, not having not having to get up and change the disc, yeah, or not having to watch it over the space of two nights, which I hate. Yeah. I think the essential difference is the the theatrical cuts tell the story, um, the, the basic story that you don't need any embellishment on. The extended editions give the world more depth and more layers, yeah. as well as telling the story. Yes, the majority of the extended stuff is bits in the book that they obviously wanted to add in, but they had to run out of time and the bits that just the nods to the book were, were not important enough to, to keep in. But they never feel like add-ons. That's that's what I think is so wonderfully done about the extended editions. They don't feel as though they've tried to shoehorn extra bits in. Yeah. It's like these were, this is how we envisioned the films being and now here's this slightly shorter version that we made for, for the people in the cinema. I think The Two Towers suffers more. Uh, the, of all three of them, the Two Towers actually d- is is somewhat diminished by its um, yeah. uh, theatrical edition. But 
we'll see because I've got to reassess them both next week. So yeah, after the party, after the disappearing act, um, you get the scene that's pretty much in every version of Fellowship of the Ring, which is Gandalf confronting Bilbo after his disappearing act and then getting Bilbo to give up the ring. But they really, really emphasize at this point how powerful it is. And they go on and on and on about it throughout this first movie, how much of a grip the ring has on its previous bearers and how much it's getting on Frodo. They never let you forget it. I think the uh, thing about um, Bilbo dropping it on the... uh, Just having to slowly turn his hand and it clanging onto the ground and Gandalf not picking it up, that is new for the movie. That was not in the original. I think in the original, he just puts it in an envelope on the mantelpiece. Could be wrong. Yeah, yeah, I think they they do that a bit later with Frodo putting it in the... Yeah, he... Mm. I think they just... that, that. look so cool yeah to keep it in. <laughs> and to emphasize the point of Gandalf leaving this extremely precious thing on the floor behind him and just turning his back on it and like yeah, what and that, think about it? And he sort of, sort of starts him sort of in the film guessing is this the one ring when he yeah. goes to pick it up and it flashes the eye up and it's yeah. like oh that's very evil we watched this for the first time with Lyra today and she became somewhat obsessed with the eye of Sauron because it kept showing up and scaring the crap out of her still not as scary as the scariest thing in this entire series for her Gollum I don't know how if if at all how she's going to get through the two towers but that will make or break her either she will get over Gollum or she'll never watch those films again yeah because I mean it reminds of Moria a bit when he turns up for like half a second and she heard his and went upstairs to her room we had to call her back down when I, I I had listened to The Hobbit some sort of radio or audiobook he really creeped me out I didn't like it mm. so, I, di- I didn't know what it was I think that's the problem I don't know if it was a problem with the audiobook it's like you don't, you can't sort of comprehend who this character is because he's so sort of twisted yeah. she was um, fine about the ring wraith she was fine about them in wraith world she was fine with sauron she was fine with the orcs she was fine with the uruk she was fine with saruman but not Gollum. yeah he's small and childlike so then frodo comes in picks up the ring along with all his possessions bilbo baggins <laughs> do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks i am not trying to rob you when uh, Bilbo goes and hugs him and cries, that's a child's response to being shouted at by an adult that you desperately want to make things right again with. It's similar in sort of the later films where he sort of reve- that's basically him revealing his power that no, no hobbit has seen him like that. They just think he's an old man, but yeah. at that point, they you know he's one of the very few wizards in Middle Earth. He is an extremely powerful being, and it just, mm. that, that is how sort of the enemies, his enemies, see him. As this sort of evil, sort of powerful, tall creature that that will bring death, basically. It's also Bilbo's first um, incident of being truly afraid of what the ring is doing to him. Mm. 
that's I think that's partly why he gets so upset. You see it later on again, the way he reacts to the ring, he's disgusted by it. He doesn't like the fact that he behaves that way. Or maybe that, frightened by it more than disgusted by it. That was really tricky to explain to Lyra, but the, the best way uh, is to describe it was actually one of Gandalf's lines, which is, he hates the ring and loves it, as he hates and loves himself. Now, that applies to Gollum, but there's a little bit of that in Bilbo as well. And when she said that aloud to herself, it seemed to make sense to her. Next time you watch the film, if you're not already doing so while listening to this podcast, check out the two Hobbit portraits on Bilbo's wall. They are none other than Peter Jackson, sans beard, and his wife and co-screenwriter, Fran Walsh. Then there's the period of 17 years, or possibly 17 days, when Gandalf rides away to Minas Tirith, goes to the library, which is full of open flames, (laughs) (laughs) and very, very dry old parchment. So yeah, Gandalf goes away for a period of time. And then comes back um, and starts searching through uh, Frodo's house. Now, I thought when I first saw this second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, uh, why is he effectively acting crazy at this stage? And then I realized after watching it today, he's keeping all the lights off and searching through, scrabbling through the house in the darkness looking for the one ring. Because he's fixated on the idea that the ring raids might be at the door within moments. So he's yeah. he's become desperate with fear. The, the fear of this oppressive enemy is sold through the fear of the characters who know the most. That whole sequence reminded me of a sort of a horror film. Yeah. Like that it was on the verge of if a ring wraith jumped out now, that would be like the scariest thing in any of the films. And I think that, I mean, obviously Peter Jackson has his horror roots. So I think I assume he was was sort of thinking of that when he did it, that this is a sort of, you go into your house and all the lights are off and, there's a crazy old man in there. Yeah. <laughs> and all everything's strewn around it. Just It looks creepy. Yeah. In the dark and the very thin, billowing candlelight. And again, they, they abbreviate a lot. That fireside sequence, Gandalf go, in the book goes into huge amounts of historical detail telling Frodo about this. But again, they pare it down to just what's needed. I think the, the best example of uh, this is either the prologue or the Council of Elrond, where they say, this is the one ring... What are we going to do about it? We should take it to Gondor. No, we shouldn't. I will take it to Mordor. <laughs> and then that's done yeah. in like seven minutes as opposed to 45. Yeah, I've also really liked in that scene when when the, the Tengwar is sort of lit up, yeah. how it shines on his face. I think that's a, very, a, a better way of doing it, sort of just sort of cinematically. Yeah. And just what, looking at a ring is a bit boring, but looking at the actor's face with the light shine across it is oh, it just looked the strength of the rings it's like that that strong of a, a light coming off it, it yeah. implies strength of, of character and just power that Sauron's put into it I think a lot of the um, effectiveness of the uh, the terror almost of this this whole section as well comes from uh, Ian McKellen's performance and from uh, Gandalf's reactions because ultimately Frodo's responses are quite innocent and quite low-key because he doesn't really know what he's dealing with at this point but it's like um, it's like what what we always say about you you judge how threatening people are by how the people we already know are strong and powerful are responding to them. If Gandalf is terrified of this, that tells yeah. you how big this thing is. When he first takes the ring out of the, the fire and Frodo says, no, there's nothing on it, you see this shadow of relief pass over his face. And then when Frodo says, oh, hang on a minute, wait, it's just his his reaction it is, as is I feared. oh, no. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, one one problem I have that is that how does Gandalf know this ring is cool? Yeah, I think he <laughs> should have at least held his hand near to it and gone, it's quite cool. Ah! Yeah. Oh, it wasn't quite cool. I'm holding it with these tongs, it's quite cool. It's fine. It could just have been an ordinary golden ring. <laughs> Yeah. Well, if that which was the case, case, it would have just melted. In which case, Frodo would have been dreadfully burned, but the day would have been saved nonetheless. <laughs> like, ultimately, oh, well. it, you know, it's win-win either way. <laughs> or it's lose-lose either way. Um, he, might, he might have a heal spell, heal fire spell. I don't know. Helio. Um, let's, <laughs> yeah. talk, let's talk about the One Ring itself. Uh, voiced by Alan Howard, who obviously provides the voice of Sauron himself. Um, mostly speaking in black speech, but occasionally lapsing into English when it's the most scary. Like, you cannot hide. I see you. I can't even do it, but um, that kind of thing. Yeah. And um, it it has multiple voices throughout, and it sings. And specifically in Two Towers, it keeps transforming itself. When it appeals to Faramir, it croons to him in a woman's sort of singing voice and it's got this kind of seductive power to it it is a major character in the series it's the most interesting MacGuffin I've ever seen the books don't really paint it as a character which I think is is a, is a problem the film yeah they, as, as they said Nick said this they do they know it's a character and you have to paint it as a character it is the character in the room that mm. I mean in the books it is it is the most important thing in the whole series but it's not as prominent as it is in these films yeah. it's just a it's just a MacGuffin that's propelling the plot forwards yeah it's just a ring it's just a ring where in this one it's a ring that talks to you yeah much more scary there's a lot of um, uh, sort of little throwaway snippets in the book as well that that almost seem to diminish the uh, the impact of the ring. Like that, there's the odd person who is not just resistant to it but completely uninterested in it. There's you know people who Faramir Tom doesn't Bombadil care. Tom Bombadil does a conjuring by it at all. Tom Bombadil does a conjuring trick like you would do to impress a six year old with it. Mm. What that? Like oh, you got dirty ears. Oh, there's a ring in them. <laughs> The Tom Bombadil, I mean, that's explained. There's the, I think I mentioned last time, there's a, someone working out who he is. That's explained away by he is far more powerful than Sauron it could ever be. Then why don't just, they just send him to kick Sauron over? Another reason why they didn't put him in the film. Because <laughs> the, the Valor have trapped him in the old forest. Good old Valor. Yeah, so he, he can come out when, every, when everyone else has, has gone. But until that point, he, the, the, you know, the, the, See, that's known uh, in modern days as a plot contrivance. Well, yeah, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, not well, yeah, but. That's plot <laughs> contrivance. Oh, speaking do... of which, um, fa- uh, Proudfoot's Proud Feet, straight out of the Bakshi version. With yeah. a great big, under, you know, from, from below shot of a giant foot. But in contrast to that, the way everything in the films that's to do with the ring is about emphasising its, its size, its... Uh, its clarity, its threatening nature, its power. It's it's Sauron because they can't because in the books they can't really bring Sauron in as a character or Saruman. This is the link to the big bad. It's his characterization that you don't get for the actual. The giant eye is a giant eye. It's very angry, but ultimately it doesn't really have a purpose apart from to get the ring. So yeah, Mm. it has to send out agents to do its bidding. But this ring is there in your pocket. It also emphasises the um, the very seductive nature of um, of doing wrong things, not not 
obviously in a story sense it's the seductive nature of evil mm. but you know evil doesn't turn up with a horrendously horrible face and, and great big nasty claws dripping blood otherwise everybody would slam the door in its face and say sod off it's it comes in a way that's very insidious and it, it starts off with tiny things that you don't think are all that bad bilbo's you know oh what you know what's the harm in doing a little invisibility trick to to shock everybody but that's that's Gandalf's worry about it, that he's he's using it in a very nonchalant way, which opens the door to worse things. Yeah. As, as terrifying as the ringwraiths are and as the, the, the orcs, the balrog, all they can do is stab you lots of times with their pointy sticks or burn you to pieces. The important thing is that the ring, it's not going to stab you. It's not going to strangle you in your sleep like Gollum. It's going to influence things to go very, very wrong. The Fellowship breaks up because Boromir can't withstand the influence. Well, ultimately, it, it's, it will cause you to stab other people with pointy sticks and cause you to strangle people in the night and then cause you to justify all of that to yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It changes people, which is something that's, that's a lot. And, and also not just regular people, but your closest friends. So it's... Scary on a level that actually transcends most of the other villains in, in this kind of film. So now we're setting out from the Shire because uh, in the film it's like, right, let's go right now, right now, this minute we've got to yeah, go. I, in the I books think, it's like, well, I, we've got to wait till autumn. Yeah, I, I think it works so much better in the film. There is like no tension at all in the books. And oh, Tolkien it, is a master <laughs> of dispersing the tension. Yeah, and in, like, in the book it's like, oh yeah, wait till September, that'll be fine. And it was a very queer sort of gentleman all in black asking after you, Mr. Frodo. Yeah. And also the, the animated ones, the, the voices of the ring race are awful. Yes. In the, in this, they are scary. That's, you know, they, they sound... Scary beyond reason, I believe, is the best way of describing them. Yeah. You need to add attention to, to these books, not take it away. So making it, basically, you need to go now. You need to go now, because there's ring race coming. That, yeah. That's the, the best move Peter Jackson made. Propel the narrative forwards mm-hmm. and off yeah. on the road. And otherwise, I mean, it's three and a half hours, three and a half hours, the extension, yeah. and you'd make it even longer if you waited until September. I think ultimately, <laughs> if, if Frodo was told all this and was like, right, this autumn I shall make my move, yeah. audiences would have gone, what the f***? Because in a modern day context, that's ridiculous. Yeah, Everyone would have found it laughable. It shows sort of Gandalf as a reckless character. He's like, he's like, yeah, must it's fine. Maintain the propriety. It's just Sauron. That doesn't, you know. It's like oh, there's no to reason get... to wait. What's the point? It's, it's to keep the other hobbits from talking about where he might have gone. Doesn't matter. He disappears in the night. End of end of debate. Yeah, basically. You don't yeah, have to sell I mean, bag ends. You don't have to keep. No, I know. Yeah, because I mean, Bilbo just went off. That path that worked out fine. I mean, people would just say, "Oh." Frodo's gone a bit weird like Bilbo did and yeah. taking Sam and Mary and Cliffy Riffin as well. Either way, this is about pointing out yeah. the, the excellent tension building, not <laughs> ripping chunks out of Tolkien. So, As Frodo goes, we get to meet Samwise Gamgee, who turns up... I think he's supposed to start off as a little bit hapless and annoying. As I mean, in every version of the story, he's a little bit like that and just gradually grows on you simply because of what he is able to do. You know, Not superhuman yeah. feats, but just the, the resilience of being able to push through that. Yeah, he is. I mean, he's the most important character because he causes the the ring to actually be destroyed. Yeah, it was just left to Frodo. He would have failed at at Kirafongo, and that would have been it. 
Um, and let's face it, much as we love Frodo, there are times when um, the ring has enough of an influence to make you annoyed at him or resentful of him or mistrusting of him, whereas Sam will stay strong as the control character. Baggins is around here. They're all up in Hobbit. That way. The ring raids. So we finally see them. Scary beyond reason. And um, exactly how I read them. I don't know if, if, if anyone read this and, and, uh, and said, uh, no, you know what? The ring raids were not exactly what I was thinking. It's as black as you could possibly get. Shrouded. Like the the spectre of death in black black armor. Well, I think some people must have read it differently because the um, radio play and the Bakshi Lord of the Rings the the voice is is wrong. Oh my I god! Mean, yeah, the um... it's supposed to be a shrill cry, and they go ah. That's just a human going ah. And an incredibly <laughs> posh witch king. <laughs> yeah. The scene with the grey elves going towards the grey havens, and they're singing that um, song about Elbereth and Domniel. Uh, this is one of the the very small major criticisms I have with this film. Really? You yeah. don't like this scene? No, I like the scene. I just like, just because elves are in the wood does not make them wood elves. <laughs> it specifically says in the book that they are singing about Elvereth that makes them high elves. Uh-huh. They're only in a wood because they're going to the Grey Havens. They're not living in the wood. That is astonishingly pedantic, Chris. Well, (laughs) Peter Jackson is like Sebastian of getting things right, and he does that. Most, (laughs) almost all the time he's the best in getting things right. In this one case, they appear to have gotten it wrong. I, I, that, that is not the one thing I'd like to ask him. Why did you say Woodhills? Yeah, the music is is beautiful, and that, that is sort of basically one of the reasons I bought the complete recordings. To just get to that get bit. that track. Wow. That's not in anything else. I love the song. I love the scene. I just, if I could delete the, the word wood. Yeah. Oh, look, Sam okay, Elves. So, that's fine. So for that, um, <laughs> that's what they've basically re-edited it for, for this mystery special edition we're talking about <laughs> in years to come. Oh, look, yeah. Sam. Elves. <laughs> <laughs>
so yeah, wonderful, nice little scene, and uh, the whole idea of them leaving Middle Earth. Now they're leaving Middle Earth because um, the powers of their three rings are diminishing at this point. Um, I think it's that, and the they know that Sauron is growing stronger. They know there's, there's a shadow for me. So they're hightailing it out of there and leaving Middle Basically. Earth to it. Brilliant. Well, you know, here is the major problem with the elves. They are impossible to relate to. They <laughs> yeah, are what? They're this aristocracy. We can't, no, your average person, can, like, you could be romantically sort of entranced by them, but to try to actually relate to them, you're like, no, you live for too long. You're too lofty. You have no idea what it's like to actually struggle. Well, you say that living for three ages of the world is struggling. You see all these great civilizations rise and fall, and there's sort of nothing they can really do about they it. They can't even get drunk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, except, except, except actually, that, that, that is a massive plot hole because in The Hobbit, they get drunk. He wrote when the they, for six year olds. I, I know, but they get, they get drunk, and then that's the way they can escape. Well, maybe it's special elf wine? It could be special They're wood elf elves, wine, though, aren't they? Yeah, but Maybe so, it's wood yeah, alcohol. Carry on. I, I think, though, when you say about the, the elves aren't relatable, that nature of character is very, very recurrent because it's, it's very angelic. Mm. Um, and elves pop up in an awful lot of fantasy and they're always very, very similar yeah. um, yes. in, to, to that kind of... It, I mean, it's based on the... Um, uh, the with things like Dragon Age. From, um, from Celtic mythology. I can't remember what they're, they're, they're called, but the Fey people from Celtic mythology. Yeah. And vampires. You look at the way vampires are characterised in modern literature, that's <laughs> what they are. Very specific literature, yes. Yeah, I, I mean, think, all right. Oh my God, spark. in Twilight, they're elves. Yeah. <laughs> they do spark. Oh my God. They're ancient, they're oh good, God. they're glowy. They drink blood. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> I think specifically of the elves. I mean, elves that drink blood, basically, in Twilight. Um, especially of, I mean, it's like very intelligent people have a hard time relating with quote unquote normal people. That could be the, that they know so much that, and I mean, they live for thousands and thousands of years, just like a, a normal human lifetime is a second. Mm. They can't relate to anyone that lives that short a life. That it's... And even the fairly well-long-lived dwarves, if you take Gimli as a perfect sort of cross-section of dwarven culture, blunders into Rivendell and says, I never trust an elf! Shouts <laughs> it at the top of his voice during the yeah. Council of Elf. It's like, yeah, brilliant. You can see what we're not friends. But yeah, ultimately, Legolas is an ambassador for elfdom who hangs around the Fellowship the whole time. And there's a lot of other elves having lots of other discussions about the fate of Middle-earth. Um, but ultimately, Legolas is the elf, Gimli is the dwarf, and they both behave exactly how we would imagine elves and dwarves to behave. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and to a degree, both of them are unrelatable, because Gimli is as closed off and, and, and pushy as uh, as your average person who you know never wants to leave their own hometown and thinks that everyone from the outside is uh you know has is full of airs and graces not dissimilar to the hobbits in that regard I was going to say there's brusque. a lot of similarities between the hobbits and the dwarfs but I think that's that's where the emphasis on the fun that the hobbits like to have mm. is important with the party because the dwarves don't seem like people that like to have fun well, much. they do have fun they, they just have, have an odd idea of, of what constitutes fun they kick each other in the face they, I think well, you're going to yeah. feel sorry that you said that when we see the hobbit and they are having nothing but fun they drink a lot of alcohol and count money yep <laughs> <laughs> Which gets harder the more you do both. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. Indeed.
Okay, so um, then we cut to Isengard and Saruman and Gandalf. The, the, the wonderful, the magnetic, the charismatic, the splendiferous Christopher Lee. Um, the old Christopher Lee, I now <laughs> Aged, know. ancient, ent-like Christopher Lee. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, the, one of the first proper wizard fights to really get massively physical with two extremely old men. And uh, you've said this before, Sharon, somewhat inspired by the uh, witch fight at the it's, end of Willow. Yeah, it seems to be very, very closely based on the battle between um, Bav Morder and Finn Rizal. They fling each other about the place in a similar kind of way. Mm. In fact, I think at one point, um, Bav Morder actually throws Finn Rizal at a wall and the position she lands in, hands up behind her, is exactly the same as one where Gandalf hits the wall. Yeah. But at the same time... Gandalf's magic in this and throughout the entire series is very subtle. He's not like, he doesn't have huge bolts of, of light. He doesn't fire magic missiles out of his staff. Uh, all of his magic seems to be kind of based on uh, like a little bit of light and a lot of willpower. So when, like, when he's, um, this is jumping forward to the two towers, when he's, I released you, and he holds up his hand, there's a little effect in the soundscape which gives you the sense that there is a, like a wall being pushed here without actually having to be massively flashy. Yeah, it's, when he breaks Saruman's staff, it's basically like click fingers, it's broken, that's it. Yeah. It's not a flashy... And then, you know, compared with what just happens is he gets hit by a, a fire voice, it's like, oh, yeah, that's done. I mean, you know, the, the, in comparison, I suppose the, the equivalent would be the Harry Potter series where every single time someone uses their wand, it's very much a firework display. Not that that's bad. It's just a, it's, a, it's a different, and what they're trying, seemingly trying to struggle to make magic just a force that we don't quite comprehend yet. I think that is a, a big part of it. The idea that Gandalf works with natural forces, not against them. Hmm. Uh, but it's a significant departure from the original um, book because. Again, you didn't ever really get to meet Saruman this early on. So you get to see him go from the master of Isengard, you know, surrounded by, you know, leafy trees and seemingly, you know, fairly bolted down, to at the point when he's been looking into the Palantir and it's... Build me an army worthy of Mordor. Um, yeah, and he's... Based crunched up in the chair and shaking like he can barely comp- like it's one of the few times when you actually get to see the real salmon not putting on a show for anyone it's only a very brief moment yeah they introduced the palantir far earlier than the books the books they just turn the king that's yeah he has one end of the two towers oh yeah before i mean he's out of the picture by return of the king yeah oh yeah um but you know introducing this early completely explains away everything he does he's been corrupted by the, the power of Sauron, yeah, because he can't. He does. He, he's nowhere near power enough to, uh, powerful enough to talk to Sauron. You know, in even terms, he's just he, tr- you know, sort of tried to find out more about him, and then just got ensnared, and then he's been told to create this this abomination army. Which, yeah, in the books, it's just oh, he's just gone evil, but it's not really explained why. He's just gone evil. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you also get to see um, him as a, as a, a tangible and um, threatening and almost relatable villain. He's almost a little bit too old and a little bit too austere to be able to, to get on the same wavelength as him. But you can almost see how he would look at the chaos that Middle-earth is turning into and want to bring order to it. And certainly want to wrest the power from Sauron now quickly before he gains too much strength. 
and this is the crux point when the ring is around. And ultimately, it's the, it's the ring being available that turns him, because he's been around for 2,000 years without doing any of this. The thing is, yeah, because he has the way well, to A, being corrupted by Sauron, and he, B, has an opportunity to, to get this, this, all this power yeah. that he did not have before. I mean, they just, he was, I mean, a member of the White Council. He has, I mean, he was the greatest wizard in Middle Earth, but still, it's, he's just the greatest wizard in Middle Earth. He's not ruling anyone. Yeah. Which, which sometimes is never enough. Yeah. Well, if we, if we, sort of look at the ring amping up people's uh, essential nature hubris could very easily be saramant this intense pride in what he's capable of yeah. and the ring amping that up to a level where he actually dares to entertain the notion that he could challenge saran himself and he's not even come into contact with the ring he never does but just the thought of it is enough but because he, I think because he is a power hungry person anyway, that leaves him wide open to the corrupting influence of it. Yeah. Yeah. Next part is Frodo and Sam on the road meeting Merry and Pippin. And again, this is much more shorthand than the uh, book where there's this whole conspiracy unmasked moment and a really quite touching uh, scene where uh, Merry and Pippin say, We know exactly what you're doing, we're coming with you. Yeah, I dream of letting you go. There's, so. there's many, many nods to it as well. You've, I mean, Merry and Pippin twice in the film have the opportunity to, to basically say, yes, we realise what Frodo's doing at this point and we're going to back him up. Yeah. Um, and also you've got that lovely little, um, it's a, it's a detour, a shortcut. A shortcut to what? Mushrooms. Mushrooms. Yeah. <laughs> the title of chapter four or five Which or something I like really that. like. Yeah. Probably unreasonably so <laughs> little, a little you know like an overly elaborate theatrical wink to fans <laughs> yeah. like, uh-huh. and yeah. also you do sort of get to see Farmer Maggot by the fact <laughs> that he's like he's waving a sickle and going are you cobbits oh no yeah he's the one who goes they're all up in Hobbiton and then um, okay. you know his dog's been barking that is of course the dog that all the hobbits are afraid of why don't I not catch that one immediately yeah his name's Cameron Rhodes and I have his autograph too so yeah, Merry and Pippin turn up. It's kind of a little bit of Hobbit overload if you're seeing this for the first time. You don't, you know, they're not really characterised that much in terms of, apart from the fact that they're somewhat childish and mischievous, and all of their major characterisation, of course, happens later. And they're just sort of along for the ride, and suddenly they goes from one Hobbit to two Hobbits to four Hobbits, and they're all huddling under the tree, and the Ringwraith is going, you know, sniffing about for them, and it's an incredibly iconic moment. Yeah, I think it's very well shot. That it's just because you see them, then it pans down, which emphasises the sort of height difference between sort of where you know them and the this sort of towering figure of the ring mm-hmm. I think that's an incredibly well shot scene. You do get um, a, a little characterisation in this scene as well, because to start with, at the beginning, when the the horse is just coming into shot and they're all hiding under the roots, um, Sam, Mary, and Pippin are apparently unaffected by what's going on and don't really realise what's happening. They're just sort of giggling over the mushrooms. And then gradually they realise what's happening to Frodo. And then as all the insects start to come out, they 
almost seem to grasp exactly how serious this is. And once they emerge, you then get quite a, an authoritative note kicking in with um, Mary. Mary's voice. Yeah. You know, he's he wants to know what's going on now. And when he, he makes the decision about going to Buckleberry Ferry, he almost becomes the de facto leader for a little while. Because ultimately they're on his... They're in his territory, and, and so he's able to guide them at this crucial moment and stop yeah. Frodo being hunted to hunted down and, and run down and have them be taken off to Mordor. Yeah, and that whole scene sort of leading up to the Buckaroo, I think it's very well shot. Just the, you can see the, the sort of moonlight shining sort of shaft light through the trees, just the ring rays just coming into view on that hill. Just, it's just such an iconic image again. Slightly backtracking to the scene with all huddled under the tree again, pulling down on the score and just having it go. But they're having those long ellipses with just silence where the sound effects are ramped up so you hear every little creak of the Ring Wraith's armour and you just get this sense that if they can't make a sound at this point or it will hear them. Yeah, and the, the sniffing. Yeah. It's really creepy. And then and, oh, the, the, the insects creep freaking out. Oh, I don't like the bloody spider. Get off the road! Quick! So moving very swiftly on to the village of Bree and past Tom Bombadil. <laughs> may have happened, may not have, doesn't matter. They go out of their way straight off to show that this is kind of the halfway point between uh, the hobbits being in a desperately terrible situation and being comfortable. So the pub, several down from the green dragon that we've seen in Hobbiton, it's not like the most horrible place imaginable but it, it has dead animals on the wall it has blokes feeding their stoats while you're having a bite <laughs> it's got people with you know snaggle teeth laughing uproariously but in a sort of not very gentle way and it's I really it's the like, slaughtered lamb yeah <laughs> yeah I really like the, the style of Brie I mean they're sort of emphasi- emphasising the, the height of all the buildings just mm. to sort of emphasise the height between the height difference between the hobbits and men who they would not have met before the only quote unquote man that they would have met was Gandalf and he's not actually a man but yeah. and more and excellent just, use of scale they had people on stilts he, in giant suits here to actually play the yeah, yeah they're sort of emphasising the fact that none of them have been out of the Shire before and they're just yeah. they're thrust into this completely alien environment to them and they've just got to carry on with it they can't really they can't go back because they've just got to go on 
it's a filthy, dark, horrible night as well, and ring reds could be lurking around every corner. Yeah. And you could do get to see Peter Jackson clutching a carrot. Yep. <laughs> One thing I really like about this scene, actually, is when the, the innkeeper says about we've got some nice, cosy Hobbit-sized rooms, that immediately makes it obvious that Hobbits come to Bree. There, there is obviously some interaction there between the um, the Hobbit there, world and the, the world of men. There's a Hobbit window in the door. Where the, he looks in the human window and then he yes, goes down and goes... can't see anything, looks window. through the Hobbit window, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hobbits! Four Hobbits! <laughs> and yeah, Barleyman Butterbur, the uh, innkeeper, who does his absolute best to make them feel at home, and to a degree he kind of almost wrecks the tension of the scene because he's too nice. <laughs> he should really be going, oh, folks from round here ain't from round here, and, um, <laughs> to not give them that link to Gandalf, but he's too cuddly. I swear, you know, it's, it's accurate to the book. He was really nice. He said, I will help you in any way I can. Have my pony, Bill. Not his pony. Bill Fernie's pony. But I think you have to have uh, Barliament to be a nice character to, uh, to, to be a... To then be uh, worried about Strider because you need yeah, to Yeah, you've got to have him, someone yeah. they trust just so or he's a bit of a shady character so he yeah. becomes, more, becomes more shady. Good like, point, yeah. The introduction of Aragorn there is, is superb. Absolutely. Just the, the lighting of the pipe and just it just shines off his eyes and it's yeah. just uh, so much better than the other ones. <laughs> With his potato. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the, the, of course you do have the uh, the bonus of Viggo Mortensen's eyes. Quite good. Um, there, there's also bef- before the Vigo bit, um, you get the, the moment where, um, well, first off, this, my friend, is a paint. It comes in paints. <laughs> this is a great line. It gives oh. Sam another chance to be the responsible one as well. You've had a yes. whole half already. <laughs> Which doesn't really make sense Not when you say you're it. Planning on driving. Yeah, surely the, the hobbits would have some sort of different measuring system. You wouldn't measure it out in half pints. You wouldn't if you call were. it a half. No. Yeah. For, okay, for there to be a half, there has, there has to, to be, be a, a pint half. for it to be a half off. <laughs> that is a fine point, yeah. and one we shall try to ignore from now on. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, Bree, this Bavarian village type, uh, type, type place stuck in the rain, and then they... And then... Mary goes blurting out about Frodo's name, and apparently there were loads of Saruman spies in this bar at this point. I have no idea how an Urukai would blend in with this well, crowd. There's Bill Fernie and a man from the south. Of course, Bill Fernie yeah. and a man from the south, as we <laughs> see, as were fully explored in the film. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, and so Frodo does his falling over backwards and putting on the ring accidentally thing. You can only interpret it as that the ring threw itself onto his finger, not that that was just an unlucky happenstance. Yeah, I think it, I mean, knocked out of his hand by accident, and then the ring just happened to land the perfect opportunity to raise it as much as possible. It can grow and shrink to fit the uh, owner's hand, so it could definitely control at least its size, if not lurch towards. I mean, the idea of it actually... I mean, it, it has pulled Frodo uh, later, although that could just be simply a case of becoming heavier. Yeah. Mm. Okay. If you can mess with its own centre of gravity, it could probably kick itself in the right direction to... Either way, it's kind of a, he's over here, to the ring wraiths. And mm. it absolutely works. And then you get that really 
and then you get that really unsettling sequence where all the ring wraiths burst in at the same time and go run into the bar one after the other in exact same unison they got one hand out and then their sword drawn back and it's like this sort of rotating it's almost like a zoetrope of ring wraiths it's really um, unsettling but before that we get Strider and his slight Irish lilt yeah. <laughs> <laughs> far too much attention to yourself, Mr. Underhill. What do you want? A little more caution from you. That is no trinket you carry. I carry nothing. Indeed. I can avoid being seen if I wish, but to disappear entirely, that is a rare gift. Who are you? Are you frightened? Yes. Not nearly frightened enough. I know what hunts you. Let it go! I'll have you, long sights! You have a stout heart, little hobbit. But that will not save you. You can no longer wait for the wizard Frodo. They're coming. Vigo has this unusual... Um, capacity to be uh, I don't know, I think the average very shallow girl would find him fugly, and uh, anybody with even an iota of depth would go no, not at all, he is the hotness. It's astonishing because he didn't do much at all before Lord of the Rings and since Lord of the Rings he hasn't done much at all. He did The Road, which was fantastic. Oh, The History of Violence, which is also fantastic. I strongly suspect he doesn't like the attention. I think he's very choosy about the projects that he selects that they have to mean something to him. Just uh, this smouldering ball of charisma for all three of these movies. It says something that we have a whacking great picture of Aragorn on the wall in the living room and Lyra regularly points to it and says, that's daddy. Thank you, Lyra. <laughs> I have both the Ranger Sword and Anduril. And uh, I think I said to you, Sharon, that I would like to be buried with Anduril, but you can get the Ranger Sword to uh, Lyra. Yes. Yeah. You don't have to seal me in stone like they did for... Uh, <laughs> for him in the, uh... Yeah, coat you in concrete. You can hold Anduril and then we'll... Is that actually supposed to be him? I don't think so. Creepy. I don't think the proportions are right. No, I mean, I, I have a, a, a deep attachment to uh, to the way that Aragorn is played in, in this. And whenever I look at the way I behave and think to myself there are things I really don't like about how over the top I am I think if I could only be a bit more soft spoken a bit more commanding a bit more like Aragorn I suppose he's the ideal for me everybody should have a role model yes so yeah then we get that scene straight out of the Bakshi version where the ring waves stab all the pillows and uh, extremely powerful it fooled Lyra she inhaled very very sharply when uh, it when it happened she got fooled several times actually she accepted very quickly after Frodo was stabbed at Weathertop that he was going to die and then after he was stabbed by the cave troll that he was going to die and then when Gandalf fell she said but he'll come back right and then when yeah that was odd has she seen she's she not seen must have she? seen uh, Gandalf the White in in some trailer or something I think I'm sure I've shown in the trailer for the two towers and she understood that Boromir was dying as well but uh, yeah the, the this particular scene fooled her and uh, it took a, a second or two to c- get her to compose herself I think a lot of people are thinking why are you showing your four year old these films <laughs> um because she doesn't give a stuff about Star Wars so I might as well start her on the good stuff. 
I tried with Star Wars. I really did. She doesn't give a monkeys. She is allowed to leave the room when it gets to anything that's too intense for her. Of course, of course. So that's you know, those those are the these are the bits we don't think an eight oh, uh, an under eight year old should see. She just leaves when that comes up. The Strider and his delivery brings us into the next chapter of the film where suddenly they have a guide who's much more mysterious and much more action-packed and it's moved on from Gandalf and you're like, you know what, anything could happen with this guy. He's got a sword and everything. And um, and then, frankly, immediately anything does. They go into the wild and they characterize Strider by having him stride. <laughs> it's easy and it's brilliant. And then every it's time fun. he goes past a tree, he goes... Mm. In that kind of, I'm thinking very intensely kind of way. He also throws an apple at Pippin's head. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't understand about second breakfast. I no. have a question, actually, with yes. regards to him being called Strider. Yes. When we were watching it today, I thought, now hang on a minute, he's introduced as Strider. Does anybody ever actually call him Strider? I think Sam does twice. That's it. He, when he calls out to him, Strider! Yeah, and then he says, um, at the very end, he says, Strider will look after them. But the rest of the time, as, once he's been introduced as Aragorn, everybody calls him Aragorn. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I don't I quite I... understand why he has to have extra names. Same with Gandalf. He also has Mithrandir, Stormcrow, and I think a lot of uh, Tolkien's characters had different names, across yeah, the world, especially think, the long-lived ones. I think with Aragorn, it's emphasising that he has to be in secret. Um... In Bree, he has to have be called Strider because he can't. If he uses his real name, he'd be. That's a good attacked. point, actually. He couldn't walk around oh. men referring to himself as Aragorn, no. son of Arathorn. Somebody would stab yeah. him. In the <laughs> and the elves refer to him by his elven name, Estelle, which means hope. Yeah. And I, I assume among the rangers, they call him Aragorn because they know who he is. Yeah. But it's just just to Bree. Because I mean, I think sort of in the book or the film, he says the men of Bree know me as Strider. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. I'm assuming that uh, they called him that because he one time strode into town <laughs> 50 well, think, years ago and they're still at uh, it. I don't know if it's in the book. He says he, uh, Barlowman says they call him Strider because he strides around on those long shanks of his. Oh, I love you long shanks. <laughs> yeah. Nice. How many long-legged people are there? Everyone in Bree's got long legs. There's mountainous <laughs> people there. And also Vigo, he's tall, but he's not that tall. No. Um, he's not so tall that uh, that he can handle Anduril without going, bloody hell, this thing's like two <laughs> metres long. The invention of the ceiling must have really screwed the sword trade. <laughs> I've, I have jabbed my ceiling several times too many and smashed the, many a the light. The number of light, I was going to say light shades you've killed. So into the wild, and I found out today that the um, marsh that they're in, where they're being bitten to death by midges, is called the Midgewater. That's, that one's going out to Midgemeister. And yeah, then they get to the great watchtower at Amonsur, one of the uh, many Numenorean ruins that we actually get to meet and uh, see in this film. Was this one of the seats of, the, of uh, one of the Palantirs? Uh, yep. Yeah, okay, so this and Amon Hen at the end, the, where Boromir gets killed, that was another seat for one of the seeing stones, and Isengard. Yeah. Uh, and I believe another one was uh, in either Baradur or Minas Morgul? Or? There's one in Minas Morgul and one in Osgiliath. Osgiliath, okay. So basically yeah. Minas Morgul used to belong to the uh, Gondorians because of the Numenorean uh, link, yeah. but uh, it was taken by the forces of Mordor. Yeah, and there's one in Minas Tirith as well, actually. So yeah, ultimately the Numenorians bought this technology, technology this ability <laughs> to communicate with them from Numenor, the yeah. island which sank much like Atlantis. And that's... 
possibly how they were able to preside over Middle Earth so quickly and, and actually, because communication ultimately across planes like this, what else have you got? Moths? There's a seventh talent here, but I don't know where it's supposed to be. Hmm. It's definitely seven seeing stones. Okay, but uh, yeah, that's, anyway. that's originally <laughs> how they were um, arranged, and that's what they were for. They never really go yep. into what the Palantirs are about, but because because Sauron has one of them, that makes them all incredibly dangerous because they're yeah. all a direct link to him. It's kind of like Skype; he's always online. <laughs> <laughs> so if you log in on any of the Palantirs, he immediately goes, "You cannot hide." <laughs> And uh, so, yeah, they're at Amonsur, where the top. You get that wonderful little elf poetry sung by Vigo. He was given the words and actually came up with the melody himself, which is really nice. Mm. He's, that's, I think, one of the only bits of characterization in the book. It, he doesn't mention it, but there are odd parallels there between he and Arwen. But yeah. um, in the extended edition, it, it serves to give texture to Aragorn's character. In yeah, that he knows what's going to happen if he carries on down this path. how we're a top shot just that that sort of shot of it in front of the, the setting sun the film is 10 years old and the the, gra- uh, the graphics 11. for 11 years old and the graphics for weather top you know the, obviously they painted in the uh, ruins later and that just looks it looks like it's there it doesn't look like it's a something they made themselves it looks like they found a hill with ruins on and just filmed it a lot of uh, miniatures that they uh, shot were immense in size that they had to be climbed yeah. up with large ladders uh, yeah, they cut coin coins. in the term. Bigatures, yeah. Bigatures, yes. As big as a soundstage. Though. Yeah. The kind of miniature that you might actually put your life in danger trying to get to the top but of. I don't, I don't think that was a miniature by the top. It just, it was a, anime, no, I think, you know, it was a, yeah, that was, um, a graphic. That was a graphic. But I, it's, it's a good way for me to start talking just briefly about miniatures. Yeah. Because they, did, they worked a lot in composite. Like, for example, there's a shot in one of the documentaries, I think it's the Costa Boats one, of, um, they, they're doing a shot of a bit of wall and an archway that Gandalf has to ride towards to go through to get to Isengard. It's about the size of a, a 32-inch monitor, and they're sort of it's on sticks, and they're filming this archway with some trees behind it, and they're going to composite it into the picture for the real Ian McKellen to ride into, and behind it they're going to have the giant bigature of Isengard. So what they've done is taken several real fabricated things. Either they are a real person on a real horse, galloping along a real path, going through a real, if actually a miniature, archway. And when I say real here, I mean the the model existed in the real world. I think that's what people mean when they decry model work that's done entirely on computer. 
Though, if the same amount of effort goes into CG, then that rarely happens. Either way, the term real is bandied around often amongst fans of movies and occasionally gets misused. You know, behind which are real trees, and behind that is a, uh, a fabricated bigature of Isengard. Almost no CG in that shot whatsoever. A lot of chroma key, a lot of composite... But there is something to be said for the idea that what they're combining is a cocktail of things that were actually there in our world. And the amount of detail that went into each of these models. Again, comparing it to Star Wars, where they would get a real actor on a blue screen, and then every other element of that shot would be done on a different computer. And they'd just throw them all together like a great Greek scrapbook. And they'd be, you know, detailed enough, good enough CGI. They're working almost without CG unless it's absolutely necessary, where it's something that would harm a person or they're doing something so big or so complicated that to build it would be ridiculous. Like the Dwarodelf, for example, Dwarf City, rather than building 10,000 immense pillars, they've built one and then just replicated it via computer, just, you know, again and again and again, going stretching back and so, you, so that you specifically couldn't see any walls it was just endless pillars yeah i don't know if it's just a different working style that you know peter jackson prefers models and i mean george lucas used to prefer models i mean you you obviously use them for the original trilogy and then just thought that the progression was to use cgi which i I don't think it is i think it just doesn't stand up as well he made the progression he said right this is star wars now this is what tech is now meanwhile weta are doing everything with bigatures so ultimately it moved in two different directions and I sort of fork in the road there were other things as well obviously the Matrix came out at this point and there was a lot of some fairly excellent model work in that film and a lot of CG Uh, but it it all seems to be taking place in these massive fantasy trilogies I think the essence of it is that the Star Wars the prequels particularly are the product of one man's imagination Mm -hmm. the Lord of the Rings trilogy is the product of about Four, five hundred people's imaginations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could also be that, um, I mean, industrial light and magic has always been a CGI workshop more than, and Weta has been a sort of practical workshop, and just, you know, uh, Peace Jackson had Weta and George Lucas had ILM. I don't know, yeah. it's just, they saw the easiest way to get their vision done was the stuff that they knew, you know, that they had the, 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 the studio set up to, to do miniatures for Peter Jackson and CGI for George Lucas just that's what they that they knew they could easily achieve and they had people around them that could give them the ideas of how to do those things in, in that sort of specific way this statement may date uh, within months um, but I'm really hoping that Disney go back to miniatures and practical effects not exclusively for Star Wars but if they bring it to a much more like film on location if it's a snowy planet go to somewhere with snow if it's a sandy planet go to somewhere with sand everywhere else in those prequels that wasn't Tunisia was filmed on a blue screen set get out there to get that spark it had it in the you know, the old Star Wars it has it in Lord of the Rings you, you need actors acting with other actors which yeah absolutely and with props you need props they need to, to Lord of the Rings you know, you could walk on a set and think you are in Middle Earth, and in the, the Star Wars, you walk on a set and you're in blue. But is... interestingly enough, they, when Ahmed Best did, you know, various takes 
dressed as Jar Jar Binks and then they'd pull him out and then they'd composite the Jar Jar in later. So it actually wasn't a million miles off of Andy yeah. Circus in actual technique. It's the execution that was entirely different. And performance capture, we'll talk about that a lot more later on. The cave troll was one of the first things I've ever seen actually in terms of date uh, where someone had actually got all the dots all over their face and they were moving their face and the cave troll was corresponding with that to actually give it the facial expressions and it was a lot less dots than Gollum but that there was the crucible of what performance capture ended up as the cave troll So we're on Weathertop. Sausages, tomatoes, nice crispy bacon. <laughs> Aragorn gives the uh, hobbits uh, those swords, which, if you pay close attention, have uh, heritage with swords they all end up with. Um, uh, Frodo's sword, while I, I believe it's Numenorian, has a, uh, a, a shape relation to Sting. Uh, Sam's even more so, because he retains that throughout the films, uh, up to the point where he abandons it in Return of the King. And it's... It's the one that he helps kill Shelob with. It's elven in nature. Oh, actually, he doesn't kill Shelob. He just wounds her and she runs off. Um, Mary's is a Rohan sword and uh, Pippin's is a Gondorian blade. And they both end up as effectively uh, squires to um, a king and a steward of both these places. It's, it's a really nice little bit of detail for something which ultimately was substituting the blades they were supposed to find in the Baradowns. Then the ring raids turn up and being absolutely terrifying. Again, what's really creepy is the way they move in unison when they all, you know, they walk forward like monks with their swords all sort of pointing upwards and then they're all as one. They move their hand forward and their sword blades back pointing forwards aggressively and directly what, at that stage. What monks have you seen that go around with massive swords? <laughs> uh, it's, it's more the sort of walking forwards in unison with... Uh, I know, I know. It's, with uh, their sort of hands together. It's sword is incidental. It shows the strength of Sam's character. Yeah. He's the only one of the hobbits that charges forwards and tries to defend everyone else when yeah. Mary and Pippin are just scared and No, they, 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 they are scared, but they still stand in the way of Frodo. They don't yeah. just leg it. They get they pushed out of the way very easily. When... But they all know they're completely outmatched at this stage. They don't yeah, know how to they're... fight. They've never held a sword in their lives. Ugh, I hate bringing it back to the book. In the book, <laughs> I think, was it, does Glorfindel turn up early at this stage? Uh, no. He's... Or just, I think they sort of approach the fire and Strider, who's been there the whole time, sort of pokes at them with his um, torch and says, back, back, you stay back, please. Yeah. And uh, they do stay back because they're afraid of the fire. There's no actual clash of swords or anything because Strider yeah. at this point doesn't have a sword. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so much stronger in this. And the book's like, oh, they're scared of fire, but it's just a brand. That's not hmm. anything. Setting them on fire, though, is completely different. Because yeah. everyone is scared of getting set on fire. Yeah. That is sort of a primal instinct of you do not want to be set on fire, and that actually makes it believable that one man can defend against four ring wraiths. Like yeah. the four, yeah. Five. It Five. also it also makes sense if you're thinking of them in terms of being um, uh, creatures of spirit for want of a better word um, with sort of vague rags and bones holding them to the physical plane if those rags and bones get burnt there's nothing that they can act 
worked with. So they don't have bones. It's rags and armor. Rags and armors. Yeah. Well, whatever it is that they've got, if that gets burned away, then there's there's not much more that they can do. So it stands to reason that fire would bother them as much as it would anyone else. Yeah. And I'm, I'm assuming the one that actually gets properly set, I think at least two of them get set properly on fire. I'm assuming yeah. they stop, drop, and roll because they, they appear not particularly charred the next day. Yeah, two get set off. Well, two, three get set off. Two get just sort of set off. Then one gets the, the brand thrown at his face. Yes. In a really kick-ass action. Away. This is the first proper fight scene involving hero characters, if you don't count the um, uh, the prologue. So it's uh, yeah, for a start, it's a great way to get all the lads in the in the cinema, especially those who haven't read the book, going, "Yes, I like this guy. He looks like he's handy." And um, it's it's also possibly a way to get all the girls going. Oh, actually, yeah, no. When redesigning the ring wraiths as viewed on the other side, Weta were basically saddled with the task of reinventing zombies. These long-enslaved kings of men became ravaged husks of dead flesh clinging to ancient bones. Weta rationalised that in the negative viewpoint their dark forms would be a sickening white, and to emphasise the emptiness within them they removed their eyes and made their faces look like they had been sucking lemons for a thousand years. The ring world is constantly besieged by freezing winds, and to get the rippling effect they use graphical elements of fire. It's a violent and desolate, lonely place, and one the Nine spend their eternity in, the polar opposite of Hobbiton. This is the first time that we see what they look like on that side. Yeah. What, what the wraiths look like when Frodo has the ring on, and obviously he's really taken aback by the fact that he doesn't disappear for them and he can now see them for for what they quote unquote really are the moment where they're trying is it the witch king who's at the, the front yes and he's trying to take the ring or pull the ring towards him and the incredible effort that frodo puts into pulling the ring back away from him mm. it it struck me today when we were watching it he could have just let it go at that point he, he hasn't really committed himself fully to the idea of, of dealing with this. He could have just let the ring go at that point, and it, obviously things would have been a lot worse for Middle-earth, but he doesn't know that at that point. Mm. So it's it's an immense act of bravery in a moment of incredible terror for Frodo to show. And helplessness at that point. He doesn't know what to do. Putting on the ring is the last resort, and then that doesn't help. Mm. So if, if uh, Aragorn hadn't turned up at that point, what else could he have really done? He was just stabbed by a Mughal blade as well. There's, there's nothing else for him. There's no recourse. But that's the, the fact that that act of massive, massive courage is the last thing he does as a complete because innocent, because once he's been stabbed, that's it. He can never, ever go back again. Yeah. He this never goes back point. to that state of... of Sam's was the foot past the scarecrow. That was the point where that's the furthest away from home he's ever been. Mm. For Frodo, this is his point of no return. And then we move to the troll shore and uh, see the trolls, which are going to turn up very shortly in the Hobbit film. We can finally see what happens there. It's actually several days between there and Weathertop. Again, they're, they're pretty brief with that, but if... Um, if Rivendell is six days' walk, then they were walking for a, a good seven, ten days between uh, Weathertop and Trollshaw. Um, mm-hmm. And fortunately, Arwen turns up, not Glorfindel, and definitely not Legolas. 
Yeah, I think what's important that they, they introduce um, Aphalas a lot earlier than they do in the book. Kings Fall Out, it's a weed. Yeah, because in the book it's just, oh yeah, this is stuff in Return of the King. But, yeah. but then least, that doesn't really pay off um, unless you watch the extended version of Return of the King because the House oh, of yeah. are not in the theatrical one. No, yes, that's, but it also does, I mean, it does make Frodo's resistance a bit more believable. Yeah. It's like, oh, he's somehow managed to resist it. Well, if he had, you know, had the Aphalas as quickly as possible that does that is does combat the evil effects so it they don't go into the fact that Aragorn being king has healing hands but um obviously being a ranger he seems to know what the different herbs do and he can find the one thing that might help Frodo at that point which again everything about the way Strider is presented is as practical as you could possibly get everything on his costume means something and has a use He's entirely yeah. self-sufficient. It did seem odd to me the first time I saw that scene that Sam knows about the existence of King's Foil, but doesn't appear to know what it does. And if it's this miraculous cure-all plant... Well, well, you see, this is the thing. If it's this miraculous cure-all plant, then I was thinking, why wouldn't the hobbits know? But they would never sustain injuries not severe enough to need it. It might be that specifically it um, is for combating... Witch King and Ringwraith related yeah. injuries. It is specifically for to, to combat the Black Breath. And ah, um, right. in in the book, the um, Warden of the Houses of Healing has never heard of it. It's yeah. just it's just held as a, a old wives' tale, which he, being a you know a, a reader, does not you know take any notice of. It, even though that's obviously quite a lot of old old wives' tales are true because they're just because they work. <laughs> and I think and obviously. The, the Shire being around the ruins of Old Arnor would have King's Fall around because that, that's when they, they grew it. Yeah. And then we get to meet Arwen with her. Like, uh, first off, the, um, the, 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 the just the tip of Hatterfang, her um, uh, sword, which I believe belonged to her mother, and uh, it was Elrond's. Oh yeah, it's the sword he's got in the the Last Alliance. I know, I know that. I was actually about to say oh, that. Hold on a second. Had a fang. It's another one we own. Once belonged to the elven princess Idril, who was wed to okay. a mortal man, Tuor, and bore Erendil, the father of Elrond, who in turn was father to Arwen. So, uh. It was her great grandmother's? Yeah, her great grandmother's. And, uh, so, yeah, it was obviously passed down. Elrond had it, and, but that was from a long, 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 long time ago. But then you get to see the, uh, the moment where Arwen comes in and you, you get Frodo's view of her as an elf uh, at the point where he is, let's face it, close to death so he can be forgiven for a bit of cheesecloth at this point. Not too ashamed to say that it drew a few tears when I was watching it. The music is very beautiful. Yeah. Because yeah. at this point it's the first we've properly seen uh, uh, an elf and um, because we really didn't get to see them much in the prologue and now suddenly this is a very important entrance. I think Frodo, he almost seems to be still half seeing the Wraith world at this point as well. Yeah, yeah. So I think what he's seeing there is Arwen's immortal spirit. Yeah. Yeah. What's this? Oh, Ranger, caught off his guard.
just a few short scenes in this film she she absolutely is captivated she got a place on the poster and uh, her if you want him come and claim him uh, i would imagine sharon fairly female empowering well yeah Mo- most of what she does is to a degree if you want to question the fact that she does everything she does for the sake of a man then it's a little bit less so but it's it's put across in a way that it's everything she chooses is her decision and it's very very important to her too and she wants this victory and and you know her role in it is just slightly different she's not part of the sword crew but i don't think you need to put that in there to have her be a very powerful presence also just around this time before we carry on with the arwen bit we get to see uh saruman creating uh the uruks and lurts who is again a character entirely invented for this film I, th- I think he's best characterised as he's the orc that orcs are afraid of. Yeah. Or the Uruk, if you want to split hairs. Also, th- I think the way Gandalf describes it later, with foul craft, <laughs> Saruman has crossed orcs with goblin men. Yeah. Describe to me exactly <laughs> how he did this. Well. Given the lack of test tubes, one can only assume. <laughs> when a mommy orc and a daddy goblin love each other goblin very much. Goblin man. <laughs> He put them in a room, put a bottle, put half a bottle of blue nun in there, and said, well, "Go to work." You can explain everything away using magic. Um, Mag- magic. They don't need test tubes. He can just magic the whatever DNA they have together. And I mean, because I mean, Sauron corrupted elves and he created orcs, so there's, there's some way that you know, they can yeah some again remarkably felt. vague in yeah. the I think he, he, <laughs> there were a lot of elven women getting humped by cave trolls <laughs> oh, <laughs> God. you may want to cut that out that's not terribly clean but I, one, one thing I found really interesting about this though was that he has the uh, the Uruks emerging from what are effectively um, uh, birth calls the the, the membrane that gets peeled away from them is mm. is what would surround a baby in the womb but they are full grown yeah so yeah. some magic has obviously been involved because they've grown to full size so sort of going back to Gollum because i mean Gollum just became that way due to the corruption of the ring you don't yeah turn that way from just going underground for a couple of hundred years and so there's there's some evil magic power that can completely change what people are so i, don't, I mean I don't know if it's like t- took orcs and goblin men together or just c- corrupted them differently and then one of them became Urukai and the others were a failed experiment. The goblins and the smaller orcs certainly do seem to have a little bit more of a, a, a you know, let two rats out and before the end of the month we had 10,000. Um, mm-hmm. there, there seems to be more natural behaviour in the way that they've evolved. They certainly seem to think for themselves a lot more. Yeah, if I'm being massively pedantic, there are just orcs. There aren't orcs and goblins. Goblins are what Bilbo called them. Um, it's the Hobbit word for orcs, isn't it? Yeah. Ah, right. So, oh, okay. Sorry. Um, I, I thought they were two separate things. Even so orcs film, with orc men? Yeah. That doesn't film, make any sense. No, yes. The, the film does differentiate them just for ease, I think. Because, I mean, there's, there's 
the orcs that have evolved differently in Moria, for example, are not the same as the orcs that have evolved in Moria in Mordor. Mm. And they're technically the same species, but just because they look so different, it's easier just to call them two separate things. Mm. Do you know what's difficult here? Because the person who thought all of this stuff up is now dead and has been for decades, no one can really say any of this stuff for certain, and everyone's too afraid to say anything for certain. <laughs> they, they were even afraid to say anything for certain in the film that would contradict Tolkien himself or, or would actually confirm something which was previously left ambiguous, which is why there are so many unanswered questions and so many sort of vague, oh, he's using foul craft. This happened. Yeah. <laughs> There's sort of a, a lot of open for interpretation moments in this. Yeah. And I'm not sure that there will ever be a sense of def- definitiveness about Middle-earth. No, unless um, you'll know there are... You'll dates and you'll know people, but not processes. Yeah, unless there are... Unless there are, you know, he, he Tolkien has written them down. It's just a, a process of going through them and publishing them at some point. Really? Do you think he might? Do you He's think got he might? attics oh. full of notes. I, I think I he might have actually written down how Saruman made <laughs> the Uruks. Uh, possibly. I mean, he's written... He's written That's the slash An orc bummed a goblin man. That's pretty, that's pretty much <laughs> he, it. He worked out family trees for like, all the Hobbit families. That's yeah. effectively... But I'm fairly it. certain I know how the uh, progression oh, yeah. there. Um, but also this scene, get back on topic. <laughs> <laughs> I really like the bit of music here, the, the sort of choir boy song over the top. It just sort of goes from orc, orc, orc to. Oh, the Vendel Maestro bit when with the. Yeah. When the the, the the moth comes up, oh. my, my my sister did not know what happened there. She thought the the moth turned into an eagle. <laughs> you <laughs> see the like... eagle approach over yeah, Saruman's I... shoulder, and the moth. And you know, what? I know. I, I know. Actually, I could you could be forgiven for thinking that that might be the case because it's if an odd-looking moth. It's huge. Yeah, if, you, if you don't notice the moth in the second scene coming back, you could just see just the eagle coming in and just saying, "Oh, it's turned into a moth." Into yeah. Yeah, but that is a weird moth. I think it's, I assume it's a New, New Zealand moth. I don't but know you do have to infer from that that Gandalf told a moth, go get Gawai here, king of the eagles. Well, what, but, went, but, all right. Actually, what, what more importantly does, he sends it down into the de- into the caverns to, to spy and find out what he's doing, because that, that is the only way he can, he can know that Saruman is breeding the Urukai. He can't see it because he's on top of a tower. I, I doubt Saruman told him all his, you know, unless, I mean, Monologued at him. Yeah, Sauron could be Saruman could be that that evil villain that does tell him all his plans and then accidentally leaves it, lets him go. But from the way it's shot, it implies that the the, the moth flies down into the ca- into the caverns and sees the the preparations of war and the the archive being born, mm-hmm. and then goes to Quahir and says, you know, Gandalf could do some help. <laughs> That's quite a talkative moth. Was it sent there by Radagast the Brown or something? Uh, I don't. 
no, because Radagast doesn't know that Saruman is evil at this point. He's just a moth. Gandalf seems to have an affinity with beasts as well, because you know, he's saved by Gohira three times in the whole sequence. So. I think <laughs> that there is a little bit of a, a sense of um, part of Gandalf's abilities come from the fact that he doesn't disregard what the smaller creatures of the world can tell him. Yeah, there was a specific line in Two Towers that, that Treebeard says that Taraman, he thinks that the, the trees are not worth listening to and Gandalf yes. does. Yeah, he doesn't care for nature anymore. And actually, also in that point, it, um, you can hear the, the trees screaming. The horns, yeah. Yeah, just, that's, that's horrible. You think about it, I mean, they're just... Tearing them to bits. Yeah. Well, the fact it's that they're just... tearing them up by the roots rather than just chopping them down not yeah, that that would necessarily be any better if they're alive no, but yeah but they're, they're yeah they're sort of cutting their legs off and letting them bleed to death effectively so then we cut back to the chase with the ring reds and uh and Arwen. and i think um for this particular scene was there something like eight hours worth with like twice the usual four hours for for dailies uh, of just the stunt lady riding on the horse with various ring rays chasing after her and poor Liv Tyler on uh, like a, a pretend <laughs> horse dolly on the back of a truck yeah. for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours to watch yeah. it. And they went a bit funny watching it. Is it just me who was a bit suspicious that they had to sit and watch every minute of eight <laughs> hours of Liv Tyler bouncing up and down on the <laughs> barrel. Unfortunately, we had to. <laughs> yeah, that's quite a nice story, isn't it? I think, is it Viggo Mortensen bought the horse for the stunt? Yeah, he brought the flock in for uh, yeah. Jane Abbott. I didn't... She, she yeah. sort of was obviously riding it for hours a day, and she, she grew to like it, and obviously that's a pedigree horse that normal she people could not afford. afford it, yeah. Yeah. Well, he bought he bought his horses for himself. Yeah, he bought Lego. Uh, yeah, um, the, there were two horses that he rode, and he bought both of them, and he also bought um, bought Florian and gave them to to Jane. Um, I'm assuming he consulted her first. <laughs> also, Florian is the horse's actual name. It's it's Asphaloth in the movie and the story. So whether it's Glorfindel or uh, Arwen riding, it's the same horse. Yes. Yeah, there was quite a lot. Um, I remember at the time, I was like, um, like, Glorfindel was ready to set off, and I would just stole his horse. <laughs> yeah, nice. <laughs> so, so you imagine Glorfindel at Rivendell giving like a mild 1950s expression of annoyance. <laughs> there you are, Owen. Very classical sequence. In, in, it's not really been done before or since. This, the imagery of uh, you know, this very white horse and very black ring raids in, in constant pursuit, and they're totally outnumbering her. There's no chance for her. Well, they're within a fingertips length of uh, grabbing Frodo off. It's, it's also it's very obvious what they want to do. They just want to grab Frodo. It's a, it's a very straightforward, very symbolic situation. If she's got him, she's trying to protect him. Yeah. Are, are all the are all the nine supposed to be there? Because I actually yep. trying to count them, but it seems to change. No, it's nine. Okay, it's, it's because like... they all need to be dealt with in one fell swoop. And um, a, a lot of uh, uh, Tolkien's get furious about the fact that it appears that Arwen is summoning up these river horses herself and uh, flooding the uh, ford of Brunan. She looks just as surprised as the raids are. It's it's Elrond still. He's doing this. She's praying, but she didn't cause this. Yeah, I don't. I don't see why it's a problem that she. I mean, she's the daughter of Elrond. She must. He actually has similar powers. That, mm. I mean, and again, they leave it ambiguous. You can grand, infer I mean, that it's her, or you can infer that it's yeah. Elrond. So I say she's granddaughter of Gladria, who is a, a, effectively a witch. Yeah. 
that's like <laughs> the sort of stated law of her that she can do magic so she must I, have some sort of magic I just told Lyra she's a waterbender <laughs> she accepted it straight away no problem if you want him come and claim him Again, something that Lyra really found quite disconcerting was uh, uh, Frodo's eyes while he was going into the uh, the Wraith world. It was, you know, really way too pale and, and he looks you know about to die at any second but as Sharon said the sad the really tragic thing about Frodo here is that now that this blade is inside him it never goes away this wound never heals and it's part of him now a constant jabbing reminder of the the, the touch of evil I don't like this next scene you don't like this next scene I don't like the um, the white with disembodied um, heads yeah it's just it is a bit music video yeah, after late eighties music, <laughs> but it's really cheaply done. Like they thought, we have to have a transition scene. We just don't know really how to do it. So we'll just put their heads and put white light around it. Because it's swiftly followed by how I would like to wake up after dying. I don't mind too much. I wake <laughs> up in a bed in Rivendell, and Gandalf is there, and he goes, "You are in the house of Elrond, and it is ten o'clock in the morning." On October the 24th, if you want to know. Like, okay, I'm dead. That's fine. And that would be the most comforting thing for me. It's a wonderful bed as well. I want it. We want it. <laughs> a much-needed reprieve at this stage, because if they'd carried on going down this path, Frodo would simply have died. You can't really bring him back from this without a, a, you know, a violent shove in the other direction towards being resuscitated and, and being comforted and, and we needed this right here another review I read at the time said uh, around the time most fantasy films will end Lord of the Rings really kicks in and that's here you know a lot of other fantasy films is like well thank god we got to Rivendell well I hope we get a sequel moving on but this is just the, the brief rest stop the film isn't even really starting yet the quest has not yet begun yeah there, there is no quest the only quest yeah. is well the small side quest is getting the ring to Rivendell and then yeah decide what to actually do with it well actually technically he had he only had to get to Bree yeah his, his orders were not go, go to Rivendell that was too much they said go to Bree okay now we've got to go to Rivendell okay now we've got to get it to Mount Doom it's quite a bit further
it struck me this time when we were, was when we were watching the extended edition. There's been a, a couple of moments already in the earlier part of the film where Frodo has had to make a conscious choice to take the ring. And you haven't really had it whispering. Not to him. Not that we've heard, anyway. When he picks it up in, off, off the floor in uh, the Hobbit hole, he's well behind Gandalf. You're not close enough to really hear or, or see what's going on with him. Mm. Um, and then when... It is whispering in, in the inn in Bree, but it seems to be much more threatening. Yeah. Just going, it. But the, the point at which they've got the ring on the on the table and everybody's been arguing about it and it's, it's whispering is getting louder and louder and more oppressive, it suddenly hit me that Frodo doesn't want to let it go. The ring has already got him at this point. And although it it's obviously portrayed in a way that this is an incredibly heroic thing that he does and he stands up and says I'll take it I honestly think there is a part of him that just doesn't want to let it out of his sight at this point I think he's already starting to go down that that road that Bilbo has gone down um, that Gollum has gone down and he's and again he's got the blade in him as well so that his his defences are lowered um, and and whatever natural resistance hobbits appear to have to the ring's evil, which I personally think is is just the fact that they are such simple people, they don't have that desire for power that the ring that is the ring's in. To they have them. desire for pie. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> it's, it's going to amp up your desire for pie. Brilliant. You, yeah. You're just going to eat more pie. Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think Frodo, part of his desire. Um, is for adventure and is for getting out of the Shire and, and um, you know, doing the things that he's heard his Uncle Bilbo talking about. Um, and like I said before, the ring seems to um, to motivate something that's already inside you. Um, and I think that that is part of what he's doing. He j- he wants the ring. He wants to keep it. He wants to have it that little bit longer. And I think he's pushing the idea that eventually he's going to have to destroy it to the back of his mind. Um, and just thinking, I get to be with the ring for a bit more. Um, I think that is a big part of what motivates him at this point. Yeah, I think it's also, you mentioned about sort of being stabbed. So it makes him a bit sort of weaker and dimly hitting it with an axe. See, he sort of physically winces at that point. Mm, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, noticed, yeah. Because he's, you know, he is, yeah, linked to the ring already, and he just he can't. It's got its claws yeah. into him. Yeah, the reflection of everyone arguing the ring. I think also he knows that it is evil, and people will argue over it. So he wants to try and stop that happening. Mm. You know, being yeah. a, the purest side of him wants to take the ring and everything that's impure about it away from everybody else. Yes, yeah. a, a lot of his other actions later on as well. There's, there's, it's, it's flip-sided. He's, he's keeping the ring away from people because he wants to keep it for himself, but also because he doesn't want to see it. He knows it's corrupting him. He can feel it taking him down, and he doesn't want it to do that to anyone else. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about this in a lot more depth when we do part two, but the whole thing with Boromir, he sees in that what impact the ring has, and that is a big part of why he chooses to go, because he doesn't want to see it do that to anyone else. I don't think he could take it if he did it to Merry and Pippin. Yeah. Those movies are about a bunch of people walking. <laughs> right here, Randall. Rivendell itself and Imladuis. Uh, these guys just regular elves. There's there's three kinds, aren't there? There's, there's these guys. 
in Rivendell, there's the guys in Lothlorien who are kind of the elven aristocracy or the high elves, and then there's the wood elves who are a bit more sort of the earthier, more twisted-y kind. Yeah? No? Uh, I think the elves in Rivendell are descended from Gilgalad. I think Gilgalad lived there or thereabouts before he went to the Last Alliance. And did a bit. Gilgala definitely does. Do elves have children, actually, now that you mention it? Well, well if Arwen yes. is Galadriel's granddaughter. <laughs> yeah, she's half elven, and, like quarter, well, uh, quarter human. Legolas is Frandriel's son. Okay, so elves do have children, they just don't yeah. often have children. Yeah, I think. Just, there's not a lot of, of particularly young elves, is there? They don't, they, they don't no. show you any elven children. Nope. No, uh, <clears throat> unwanted elf pregnancies. So. Well, they do it out of necessity rather than enjoyment. Brilliant. <laughs> What fulfilling immortal <laughs> lives they must have. Well, they, if, if I was an elf, all I'd do is bone. <laughs> they can't get drunk and there's no point in them having sex. Why do they exist at all? Reading books and... Reading books, reading poetry. As, as you said that, yeah. I've just cut to the bit where Aragorn is reading a book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Going for runs, having a cold shower. That scene, Boromir says the, the sword is still sharp. Of course it's sharp. It's just been left there. It only gets dull if it A, rusts, or B, gets hit against other bits of metal. That, my friend, is a very subtle um, uh, little nod to the fans. He's saying, still sharp. <laughs> Referring to himself. Oh, that seriously? Of course it is! <laughs> That's so bad. That's it's even entirely worse. me inferring, of course. But, <laughs> but like, like, he wouldn't go still sharp. Hey, you know what? Still sharp I am, aren't I? <laughs> That makes that even worse. No. Yeah, it does. <laughs> See, when they reforged uh, Narsil, they had the perfect opportunity. Could we maybe make it a bit shorter? No. <laughs> Seriously, if that thing, just knock a foot off that thing, and it'll be great. But uh, nope, it's it's immense. It's huge. Uh, but it, it it still looks really significant and impressive when it's just that handle shard, the hilt with the, yeah. the spiky bit there, and uh, the way that he mishandles it and then leaves the shard on the ground. As well, it's this kind of the idea that the weakness of man is something that he's not even actually going to confront at this point, uh, summed up symbolically by uh, Isildur. I think it's also a, that's weakness. Yeah, yeah. I think it's also a, the the steward. I mean, especially Denethor just doesn't believe the the kings matter anymore. Mm. Obviously, he wants to retain his power, and I mean, I don't think I mean I don't think Boromir believes that as, as much, but he's, he's expected to be the stewards of you know should stay rather than just just bowing to a, a king that's just turned up a couple of hundred years too late. He's had it drummed into him his entire life by his git of a father. I think as well, though, if you look at, at how Boromir is, despite Denethor's best efforts, um, he is still quite a um, a heroic person, and you know he does have a lot of this romantic ideology about what a warrior should be like um, and I think part of it is he, he'd he be willing to give Gondor back to the king but he wants the king he wants seven feet tall with a huge crown and very imposing and very royal and what he sees is a guy in a tatty coat yeah yeah it takes a lot of uh, Aragorn's well-honed over 87 years leadership to actually convince Boromir in the end. Mm. Yeah, I think it's just, I mean, just make him, he just, he just looks like a, 
a person that's been living in he, he doesn't know his kindness and kingly attitude and sort of military prowess he just sees a, a person that's been given stuff you know he is the king so he he gets to stay at Rivendell in what looks like comfort he doesn't sort of think about the, the going out as, as a ranger when his yeah. you know his people who Aragorn should be saving have been killed sort of in the hundreds by, by Mordor for, for centuries. Also hanging out with uh, elves of Rivendell who, as far as humans are concerned, have no understanding of the struggle of mortality, and hanging out with the Dunedain, who, assuming the rest of the Gondorians must be somewhat paranoid of anyway, since they're descended from the Numenorians. I don't think they ever mention them. <laughs> no, they, they, they don't. In fact, someone actually asked on the, uh, uh, the thread, who are the rangers? They seem like just kind of like Middle-earth special forces. Uh, the Dunedain are the guys descended from this race of men from a different island named Numenor. These are the guys that brought with them the Palantirs and built all Middle-earth up and sort of presided over it and were then diminished immediately after Isilda was killed at the Gladden Fields. And I don't know, he must have had some child somewhere else because they continued the bloodline along there. They... Yeah, I think the um, the descendant was uh, in Rivendell. All right. Because um, Gilgalad was at Weathertop watching for uh, Isildur and Elendil to come from the west and they met up and went to Rivendell and then yeah. left all the women and children and things there and then went off and fight. So yeah, Ooh, it did. Elrond probably... does mention them once. The blood of Numenor is all spent. All spent, yeah. So yeah. there's this sort of shadow, shadowy ragtag group of, of uh, it says men all the time. They're men of the West. Never mention women. <laughs> I would imagine there are a few in there. But that's again, that's part of the whole. Their 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 line is, is almost over, and they are extremely long lived, which is how Aragorn lives to be at about like two hundred and something in the end. Yeah. Basically, all the new uh, the Dunes I do now is protect the Shire. There's uh, Dunedain to the north who uh, roam Eregion and uh, Dunedain to the south who hang around Ithilien with um, Faramir. But they're all descended from the Numenorians. So yeah, that, there's that one cleared up. But Aragorn's their king because he's descended from this particular bloodline. Well, ultimately, they should rightfully be running Minas Tirith, but they don't want to tread on Denethor's cloak. Also, they seem to be kind of in self-imposed exile for what... Um, this is just me inferring for, for what Isildur did. Well, it's also what I don't know who, what a king did. I mean, the, what, the reason they all came from the west is one of the Numenorean kings wants to try to get to the Undying Lands, and then the Valar sunk Numenor. Ah, no, but the Valar sunk Numenor but, because Sauron was captured by the Numenoreans and then convinced them to start human well. sacrifice. Not sure what that conversation was like, <laughs> but either way, the god—I uh, said the gods, god. Eru uh, was displeased and sank Atlantis slash Numenor <laughs> yeah. in that very sort of that's Old Testament problem. kind of way. The Much. problem of the no allegory is that's Atlantis. Yeah, it's Atlantis oh, or well. Sodom, and <laughs> Sodom and Gomorrah, if you will, which is the one of Babylon, where they burned it to the ground. Yeah. The there was a lot of burning to the ground <laughs> yeah. and floodings in the Old Testament. A lot of wrath. Yeah, either way, yeah, the Numenorians displeased them. And the only nice Numenorians were the ones who were led by Elendil, uh, who was the uh, king yes. with that two-meter-long sword the, that Aragorn had. The black Numenorians, which is the race that the mouth of Sauron is descended from. And they brought with them the white tree, which is why they have that yeah. on their heraldry. And, yeah, I think the... the I think, I mean... Uh, Aragorn. This is a little bit of look how much I know about Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah, and I think Aragorn <laughs> says it in the film that he he yeah, there's the same weakness in the bloodlines. I think they are they are scared that if they yeah. come to power again, they will 
be cut, you know, the turn to the dark side, effectively. The dark side, brilliant. <laughs> and as uh, Elwan says, uh, he has chosen exile, referring to Aragorn. I think, like, you know, like I said, 3,000 years of feeling a bit rubbish about yourself for something your ancestors did. Yeah. So, yeah, it takes Aragorn to uh, re-empower and re-enfranchise the, the kingdoms of men. Uh, and, yeah, the, the Elwan scene with... Uh, Gandalf is, is very specific because ultimately he is the major step that Aragorn has to overcome. He is kind of this father figure he's had there his entire life trying to, to live up to and to, to get him to say, well done, because Arathorn wasn't around. And mm. Gilray. Your father in law putting you on the spot and making you feel like you're not worth a damn. <laughs> How often does that happen, do you think? So, but yeah, the, uh, the, this conversation between him and uh, Gandalf is very key. And it's also key if you look at the fact that uh, it's all transference, because uh, what Elwan really thinks is, why didn't I do something <laughs> yeah. back when they were in Mount yeah, Doom? So he's, in the fire. he's just transferring all of that anxiety and aggression onto Aragorn. And like, look at what you've done, your weakling, or not done. My I was there when the strength of men failed. Yeah, and you did sweet Fanny <laughs> Adams <laughs> about it. <laughs> Nah, seriously, you had Hadafang right there. Hadafang him in the back. Take the ring. <laughs> we just need to trip him up. Yeah, just push him off the cliff. <laughs> problem solved. Yeah. You don't even need to touch the Look ring. Look over. <laughs> the, only, the only problem with that is if it goes wrong, then you've got a war against men and elves. I don't think and that that particular scenario can go right, unfortunately. <laughs> There's Elrond, he just murdered our king. Elrond comes back down after going up the hill with the uh, yes. the, the last surviving, because Anarion was killed as well, uh, the last surviving uh, you know, member of the royal family, and oh, oh, he's gone. Yeah, he, uh, <clears throat> he wanted to uh, sure. keep the ring, so I pushed him into the flames. <laughs> Otherwise, bad things would have happened. Oh. The Numenorians were powerful enough that they could feasibly have, in, I, I, as I understand it, have actually caused some real problems for the elves. don't think there were enough left, especially after that battle. Right. should have ended that day, but evil was allowed to endure. Yeah, by you. Isildur kept the ring. The line of kings is broken. There's no strength left in the world of men. A scattered, divided, leaderless. There is one who could unite them. One who could reclaim the throne of Gondor. He turned from that path a long time ago. He has chosen exile. You are no elf? The men of the South are welcome here. Who are you? I am friend to Gandalf the Grey. And we are here on common purpose. Friend? Shots of Narsil. Blade to cut the ring. Sauron's hand. No more than a broken end.
Oh, actually, one thing that no one really even seems to ever really make a big deal out of, the dead marshes they go into in the two towers, Yeah, actually, it's not the site of the Battle of um, uh, Dagoland. It's actually beyond that, but a great flood washed all the bodies into the marshes. So all of those corpses, are, you know, the ones that, uh, you know, they light little candles. Um, they're the uh, bodies of the elves and men and, and oxes uh, who all died in this particular battle. That's that. Yeah, for some reason the elves, men and orcs are all buried together. Oh, <laughs> oh, Well, one presumes that they all just fell on the battlefield. You can't bury that many. Well, I, seen, I mean, the, the... The elves would bring their dead home with them. It's happened well, so rarely. Or, or bury, you know, put them in a, a big pile and bury them or burn them or something. There was a flood? <laughs> I, I don't know. But at least, I mean, at least take away the orcs and burn them. I mean, you don't want we just spoiling their own dead if they buried, you know, sort of kept them with the orcs. So. I, I believe actually in the original text, oh, and going back to the original, there were, multiple, <laughs> there were multiple battles which they condensed into yeah. just the Battle of Dagorland. But yeah, that's when they, when um, Frodo, Sam and Gollum get to the Dead Marshes, that's where that was. And there's still a long, long way to go before they get to Mount Doom. But it's a straight line, whereas they have to take the winding road. Literally. Lead them to the winding star. <laughs> Am I freaking you out, Chris? Yeah, I don't like that. <laughs> it's creepy. Am I also not allowed to do that in bed, Sharon? I say nothing. <laughs> no, because saying nothing makes it sound like you like it. <laughs> <laughs> really? Okay. Anyway, uh, no. we get to meet in Rivendell is uh, Bilbo, and he's already greatly, greatly changed. Now, when we first saw it the other day, Sharon, and uh, Gandalf says, you haven't done today. He's talking about Bilbo, like, not too long after the end of The Hobbit. Now, I don't imagine Bilbo looked like that. Um, what he means is, though, you don't look like a 111-year-old Hobbit. He looks like a Hobbit in his 60s or 70s. Yeah. Um by human standards. Although Frodo's 50, I don't know. Yeah, there's supposed to be an you know, implication that, that Gandalf has aged, and judging by the trailers, no, he hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Either way, um, yeah. uh, the, the, there is a, is a far cry between Ian Holm with his wispy grey hair at the beginning of Bag End and um, Martin Freeman. Yeah. Uh, but we'll see, we'll see. Uh, but more significantly, he's really aging here. And by the time it gets to Return of the King, it looks like he drank from the wrong grail. <laughs> um, and, and so you immediately get to this, this feeling of, of, of him being fragile and old. And, that, you know, he walked off with all this sort of sense of possibility. And if you're not going to uh, just assume that there were 17 years in between, he aged within months. Yeah. Which is... Dreadfully sad, but at the same well, time, do, he did get to enjoy a, a good, a happy, full life before then. Again, in the book, they do mention that Rivendell time flows different, like Lothlorien, so it could be longer or time just goes weird. Again, age more. not really <laughs> pinned down, is it? No, it's, <laughs> there's yeah, the the science isn't ever really gone it's into wardrobe time. time. <laughs> like I said, a lot of symbolic stuff happening. You can't really. Um, extrapolate anything very very practical from this mm-hmm. which is odd because they've gone out of their way to make things as practical as they possibly could to make it as realistic as possible and when it's it's not really possible to explain they just go look over there a cave troll <laughs> <laughs> um so, so yeah you, you get uh, bilbo and, and and i really i am i am in love with the idea of rivendell if i, I could 
retire to anywhere in the Lord of the Rings universe, it would probably be here. I'd probably get bored very quickly and want to go wandering. Um, but of, of anywhere. No booze, no sex, remember? <laughs> Not for me. <laughs> I'd be a yeah. very bad house guest in Rivendell. <laughs> well, one presumes so was Aragorn. Yeah, I think it probably would have annoyed Elrond somewhere. <laughs> She's you too- move into my house. She's <laughs> my daughter. She's like two millennia too old for you. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd go to Lothlorien. I could. Yeah, it you seems like so. Tree lights. It's so <laughs> somber there. Oh no, there's there's a there's just a one well, uh, an extended uh, extend, uh, the extra stuff. There's a, a just a, a painting. You just want to hang out with Haldir, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I just like I really like. There was a there's a painting in the extended which I actually saw in they in science museum they did a thing well, which I, we went there it had lots of props and bits from yeah that was so interesting and then I didn't watch any of the video stuff because there were too many people standing around it and I thought oh that'll be on the DVD which I assume it is <laughs> but yeah that that was again that, that had that that painting and it just looked, makes it look so nice it's just got the trees and all these beautiful looking buildings in and I would prefer to live in a forest than a valley interesting because it's still pretty foresty of you know in Rivendell yeah. Like I said, it seems a bit somber and a bit sort of... It's very ethereal, and I think I wouldn't really be able to crank jokes there. Yeah, I don't think you do in Rivendell either, except for the weirdness that happens in The Hobbit. I'd take Minas Tirith as well. It's, it's a lovely city. It's really magnificent. Uh, you know, frankly, Medicelled. I could get all horsey. <laughs> Sharon? I'm just trying to come to terms with the getting all horsey comment. <laughs> um, I think... Where would I most prefer to go... Probably either Rivendell or, or Lothlorien for me. I'm, I'm definitely an elf person. If you could choose one. Rivendell seems to have a bit more of a foot in reality. I think that, that what would put me off about Lothlorien is that it does seem to be very much removed and not having anything to do with the real world. It doesn't look massively restful either. Like, I mean, you could stay there, but every time you woke up, it would feel... I mean, again, because we only ever seem to see it at twilight. Every time you woke up, you'd be like, oh, still night time. Oh, still night time. I don't know. It makes me think of the, the world at the top of the faraway tree. I'd never be quite sure that if I woke up, I'd still be in the same place. Good point. It's also quite Avatar-like, as in James Cameron's sleeping in a hammock in a treetop somewhere. I don't know. It's still... I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't mind being in Lothlorien, but I wouldn't be able to stay there for an extended period. I've got a very nomadic soul. I'd probably just keep journeying all over the place and staying out everywhere, much like Aragorn. That's possibly the reason we've moved house so many times. I mean, a lot of it has been circumstantial, but I can never really seem to settle in just one house. And the idea of actually buying a house and settling down and staying there for decades is actually quite frightening to me. There's also the the Aragorn and Arwen scene, which is absolutely uh, key to, to... her and his development later on uh, which is made more complicated by what happens after that in uh, the two towers this is a very straightforward simple scene of self-doubt and then support yeah Chair? agreed I don't know if there's there's much more that I can say to that one really yeah um, it, it does put a layer of characterization on their relationship which you you need I think you need to see again what you were saying about the whole um, Sam has a person back in um, the Shire to to bring him home to 
to go back to, although Rosie is a little bit of a cipher, I think. Um, and ultimately, uh, Frodo's anchor is Sam. Arwen is Aragorn's anchor to that that world. That's especially considering he has a nomadic soul and no parents. Indeed, that yeah. that's ultimately the thing that he's trying to save. The kingship, ultimately, he doesn't seem to give much of a hoot about at this stage. Yeah. But saving the world for Arwen—that's his. It seems to be sort of his overriding. Yeah. Motivation. Or getting her to go into the West, whether he fails or succeeds. Yes, yes. Saving her one way or another anyway. Which, again, you could look at that as sort of that reduces a little bit of the, um, the, the empowerment factor. But ultimately, she's, she's a person. She's multi-layered. There are, and she changes know, it around so that it becomes her decision when he yes. takes that out of her hands. Absolutely. She says, no, this is not what I'm going to be handed. Yeah. Indeed. Even though you see later on that it is something that causes her great fear. She's not, you know, she's not just completely cold about this idea of dying. Yeah. Um, but this is something, you know, this is, this is a promise that she made and a decision that she took and she's going to stick to it. Why do you fear the past? You are a Sealdor's heir, not a Sealdor himself. You are not bound to his fate. The same blood flows in my veins. The same weakness. Your time will come. You will face the same evil. And you will defeat it. Could it all, of course, come down to music? You get some wonderful, a wonderful little piece of Enya here, and no one ever really seems to admit boisterously that they love Enya. But uh, I'm, I'm something of a fan, and it's a very short piece called An Iron uh, when they're on the bridge. And again, it's, it's very sort of cheesecloth romantic, but it's extremely fitting of this particular sort of idyllic moment of, of 
crucial rest before things become very black. From then on, it becomes worse and worse for two more films. That's how I'm not a big fan of Enya, but I think she's wonderful in this film. Yes, because her her voice fits sort of the world perfectly, and the, the pieces in Rivendell and Lothlorien, and see the song at the end are just sort of so well sung and perfect voice for this for the to fit in the world, especially at those places. Yeah. Well, the Elvish culture and, and particularly the Elvish language is so firmly based in Celtic influences that to not have a Celtic style performer do some of the music, I think, would have been a loss. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so I say that's partially why I want to be in Lothlorien rather than because I think Lothlorien music is, is nicer to me than the. I was going to say the, it's the other way around for me. If you put the Lothlorien oh. music in Rivendell, I'd be like, oh, it's a bit, it's a bit <laughs> somber here. And if you put the Rivendell music in Lothlorien, I'd be like, oh, it's actually quite cheerful. <laughs> It's got this. Yeah, I I like sad music and cheerful music. <laughs> well, it's not cheerful. No, it also the Lothlorien music is fifteen minutes long, and the the Rivendell music isn't. <laughs> yeah, if yeah, but yeah, include the Council of Elrond there as well, which we must now get to because for yeah. goodness sake, we're going for four hours. <laughs> So the Council of Elrond, it's like it, if filmed as written, it would be forty-five minutes long. But yeah. uh, as I said, it's it's a very straightforward case of right. We will tell the audience now only what they need to know. And for the uh, extended scenes, they add a, a nice little bit of you know the, the 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 black speech getting involved and and the the ring. Well, Sauron trying to encroach upon this you know particularly uh, private meeting and uh, being shooed away by Gandalf in a really kind of arresting moment one of the things I missed from the extended edition if you're watching the theatrical one is Boromir's little moment where he gets up and talks about his dream and you get that lovely piece of um, it's the it's the Minas Tirith Gondor theme which then reprises repeatedly throughout Return of the King I, I forgot that was not in the theatrical yeah it just fits so well that I thought oh that must be in it yeah no, it's, um, not. it's important that you don't just consider Boromir a caricature and there are several times in the extended editions where they actually deepen his his character and make him much more complex and less just of this sort of, let's face it viking of a man <laughs> barges in there goes right we should take it to Gondor we should you're not going to take it to Gondor right we should probably go to the Gap of Rohan and maybe to Gondor nope still not can I have the ring I want the ring <laughs> You're not the king. My dad's the king. And yeah, they they make him much more of a a man who is incredibly brave and incredibly scared. I was going to say his overriding emotion, if you were going to pin it down to one, I think is fear. Yeah, but he has been forced to be brave time and time again, so that it it becomes his outward temperament. Uh, Councillor Velwand. <laughs> uh, so it's um, is this the one ring? It is totally the one ring. Gimli tries to smash it. I wonder what happened if he tried to smash it. Gimli shows us. Did that actually happen in the uh, original Council of Elrond? Uh, no. No? Because that's a really great way of showing. I know, yeah, I know. It's, I think besides trying to write that would be a bit uh, stilted. It's like he swings the axe and it explodes into a pieces. It's well, more of a visual... Tolkien then what are we waiting for cried Gimli jumping to his feet he charged forward swung his axe down with a mammoth blow of titanic proportions there was a blinding flash and Gimli was thrown backwards 
The sound of black speech was riven in the air as the ring lay smoking and entirely unharmed upon the pedestal, surrounded by shards of shattered axe blade. That's far too much action for Tolkien. <laughs> it's, that's a translation of the sort of thing that would happen in Beowulf, for goodness I know, sake. Well, that's I know, totally I up don't. his street. I know, but it's not, he doesn't seem to want to talk about what And that was just he, me being really cheesy. I could I actually have written that a lot better if I'd had more than 10 seconds. He doesn't talk about individual combat. He just talks in general terms of people did this. There was an um, awesome flurry <laughs> of movement and the day was won. <laughs> yeah. I did like after Elrond says um, you know, have to take the ring to Mordor and destroy it and there's just silence for a few seconds. It's like, shit. <laughs> There's also this kind of, you cannot destroy it like that, Gimli, son of Gloin, and the kind of, we, we knew you were gonna try something. <laughs> and that's why we brought a dwarf in. Yeah. You, thank you for trip. making my point so succinctly. There, we've gotta take it to uh, Mount Doom. This is literally what we have to do. Who's gonna do it? Big shouty argument. Frodo comes forward, I will take it, for the reasons which Sharon gave earlier. He doesn't want to let it go. And also, that he's being entirely selfless. And they have the often parroted lines of you have my sword, bow, axe, etc. And my <laughs> axe. Uh, but, uh, they're allowed to be po-faced and, uh, and, and overly chest-beatingly epic at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I when think Mary comes are... in and says, where are we going? It kind of dispels any sense of pretentiousness. Yeah, I, I, I think it's good. It's just used. I mean, like everything on the internet used too much. <laughs> yes. Um, We've but... got to learn to stop doing that. <laughs> I, did, yeah, I had a... learned to stop doing that, but then I took an arrow in the knee. <laughs> Coming 2013, the Digital Gonzo Lord of the Rings Podcasts Extended Editions. Frodo was intended to release these shows in a longer format suitable for home audiences. And there's over an hour of extra footage which deepens the experience for fans of the films. And what with being raw footage, you get all the ums and uhs you didn't get to hear in the regular podcasts. There are 26 occasions where I say, you know, which we think people are really going to get a kick out of. And multiple sections devoted to going off on entirely irrelevant and juvenile tangents. And of course, at the end of each one, I spend half an hour thanking our many listeners. It's pretty special. We think people are going to like it. The Lord of the Rings Extended Edition Podcasts. What you're listening to right now is already obsolete, suckers. That is it for this first part. I'm not going to say what podcast are you from, because we'll do that at the end of the Fellowship Part 2. Yeah. We're going to take this as the second, first and second part of the same show. So we'll be back in a few days' time with the Fellowship of the Ring Part 2. Thank you guys all so very, very much for being so patient with this and, uh, and giving it this amount of detail and time. You guys have been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. And we'll finish on that wonderful bit of music that starts up the Fellowship. Namaria. I will take the ring to Mordor. No. I do not know the way. I will help you bear this burden, Frodo Baggins, as long as it is yours to bear. By my life or death, I can protect you. I will. You have my sword. And you have my bow. And my axe.
carry the face of us all, little one. If this is indeed the will of the council, then Gondor will see it done. Ah! Mr. Frodo's not going anywhere without me. No, indeed, it is hardly possible to separate you even when he is summoned to a secret council and you are not. Oi! We're coming too! have to send us all tied up in a sack to stop us. Anyway, you need people of intelligence on this sort of mission, quest, thing. Well, that rules you out, Pip. Nine companions. So be it. You shall be the Fellowship of the Ring. Right. Where are we going? Straight off to the Council of Elrond, there's Gilrain's memorial. Now, it's not really ever gone into. So Aragorn is kneeling in front of a statue of his own mother. And what's this story here? She brought him to Rivendell as a baby. I think she dies like just after they get there. Right. All of the sort of the heirs have been taken there at some point because they know that that's the only safe haven. Yeah. Uh, west of the Misty Mountains they've got. Nice bit of uh, interchange between he and Elrond. But this is the, uh, the a pivotal moment for uh, Aragorn because um, all of the stuff that we then get to see later in the Two Towers, he has uh, an altercation with Arwen and effectively tells her, I'm not coming back for you, you need to go. Yeah. And, um, and gives her back Evenstar. So when he gives her a look as they're, they're leaving, things have gone on that we are not party to at this point, so that becomes very relevant later on. She does seem distinctly more muted at that point. Yeah, but it, it gains a lot of extra depth later on when you find out what's, what's actually been said between them. Um, we also get the scene where Bilbo goes after the ring. Now, I remember that scared the living crap out of me in the cinema. I knew that Bilbo uh, is described in the book as he, he appears like this sort of grabbing creature, but the, the sudden jump scare of him and he with the black eyes, I had to warn Lyra for 30 seconds beforehand that it was going to happen, and she still jumped. Yeah, I think that was really well done, because it obviously shows... That to Frodo the corrupting influence of the ring through yeah. Bilbo who he thought was just an old man and then you know he sees Gollum in him it's a double thing as well actually the the idea that someone coming after the ring who, who would, would take it from you would if the ring was working its will against the bearer would appear more hideous and more clawing and grasping. So it's sort of a, you know, double magic's going on at this point. So it's very effective. Because ultimately the ring doesn't want to go back to Bilbo. So then they set out for the south. Crabine from Dunland! Not many people know what Legolas is even saying here, but he's saying Crabane from Dunland. Crabine from Dunland! That's the yeah. demon crow things. And, uh, these changed the entire course of their journey. Um, ultimately they were heading were they, were they heading for the Gap of Rohan originally? Uh, I think yeah, that was the original plan. Yeah. So they headed for the Gap of Rohan and went south. Then they got seen by the crows. They had to change course and go north and go across these... Um, the, is it the Misty Mountains? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is, as it happens, the same mountain range that uh, uh, they're going to go to in the first episode of The Hobbit. 
because they can't make it over Cahadras, they have to go all the way back down south again to get to Moria. So it's, they're wandering up and down and up and down. They can't get too close to Isengard. It's a matter of getting over this mountain range, and there doesn't seem to be a straightforward way. Dear 57, Boromir's gift on Frodo's nerves. <laughs> on that point, the um, the bit with the, the ring that when it falls in the snow and looks enormous is uh, very simple because they made an absolutely enormous ring for that uh, close-up shot, which is incredibly powerful. It's, it's when um, Frodo drops it after falling down the mountain, and it, that's the ring wriggling off his neck and dropping itself into Boromir's hands. Yeah, I, really, I really like that whole thing just because the, the sort of stark contrast between a snowy mountain and just these nine people walking across yeah. and it just it sort of emphasises how alone they are it's just, just them they have to do everything yeah. and and yeah then there's the, the, the ring trying to get to because it, it, it knows it, it wants to get go with Boromir too because it's going to go to Minas Tirith which is the yeah, easiest place to then yank it out of with an entire world well, I, army. Yeah, I think well, it, it would was. have far more influence from um, Gondor anyway, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah, I think I think its plan was to get Boromir to go into Mordor, you know, the head of a vengeful army, and then just sour on can snap his fingers and kill them all and get the ring back. Yeah, it's probably the, the easier route. Bearing the ring and saying, "Look what we have." sense actually if you look at um, you know what I said about the ring um, amping up people's basic natures and, and the, the essence of them um, and in Boromir's case it's largely fear a lot of the things that he lashes out with when he's under the influence of the ring are things which are within his own mind and he actually says to Frodo later on you'll take the ring to Sauron yeah yeah and it, it, it is interesting to note at this point that Bill the Pony was effectively a pantomime cow because they couldn't safely take a horse onto the mountain. It's actually two people in a horse costume. And I never knew until I was watching the uh, extended extras earlier this week and I'd forgotten completely. It, it would make sense because how do you move a horse around in that kind of environment? Yeah, it was like tough that. enough moving Sean Bean around. He didn't want to get in a helicopter. <laughs> yeah, he did it for that scene and then said no more. Which is, I don't know how he did that. I don't know. <laughs> so, God, he climbed up the cliff, I think, oh, in full yeah, costume. Yeah, in full Boromir. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Boromir. It is a strange fate that we should suffer so much fear and doubt over so small a thing. Such a little thing. Boromir! Give the ring to Frodo. As you wish. I can not. And then when they were actually on the, the side of the mountain, that's all studio stuff, and they were using uh, a sort of a, a... Is it salt mixed with, like, a sawdusty type substance yeah, they, for the snow? I think they said it was, like, MSG and... 
rice. MSG is rice and MSG, yeah. And takeout. Everyone who was appears to be freezing cold is actually boiling hot with yeah. sweat pouring down their heads. I like I like that scene though in the, the sort of the behind the scenes because the, all the crew are wearing goggles and face masks. Yeah. It's like the the, the 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 actors like oh you can. <laughs> it's your job to suffer. Yeah. Pain is temporary. Pain is temporary, artist forever. This is something that was repeated throughout the film series, and it's what I tell my podcasters when it gets too very, very long, and we've <laughs> we've gone many, many episodes into a series. I think the the one that wore us down the most was probably the Alien saga because that gets worse and worse as it goes on. <laughs> yeah, at least Harry Potter was a consistent improvement. As yeah, we went got along. better and better, and yeah. Batman got better and better as well. It's it's quite a good thing to live by because it, it gets you to remember that the end result as long as you work your absolute hardest will be worth it. If you don't work your hardest, it won't be. Also, uh, eagle-eyed folks with with elf eyes, in fact, might notice that Legolas is actually walking on top of the snow. They didn't make a huge deal out of this. They just wanted to make sure that it was within continuity, but Legolas, being an elf, has no mass, it would appear. It's a bit weird, that, because, I mean, he, he can't... He doesn't... Gravity doesn't affect him because he doesn't push him down, but wind doesn't blow him away. Like... <laughs> It's oh, kind of it both ways. It's, <laughs> no, yeah. it's because he's a Mary Sue. He's utterly gorgeous, incredibly athletic, with cat-like reflexes, elf eyes, elf ears, elf feet, all kinds. There's not, there's nothing wrong with Legolas at all. Uh, Saruman calls in the storm, and again, there's a constant emphasis on Saruman being there and Saruman hounding them. And actually, in the original Fellowship of the Ring book, as I recall, Saruman wasn't a major, major influence until Two Towers. There wasn't that sense of genuine, constant threat coming from him. Yeah, I think they wanted to make him a bit more major enemy in this film. So obviously, got they got Saruman in the first film, but this one they need a, an enemy to, to yeah. drive against and give more lines to Christopher Lee. Because he was actually doing exactly what they set up in this film at the time. And it would also explain what was going on in the Two Towers. He wouldn't have to then suddenly start going, right, there was this wizard, right? Remember him when Gandalf was sort of meeting with his friend? It was him. Right, he had an army. So yeah, they they build Saruman up and then just it sort of just goes and it results in nothing if you uh, just watch the theatrical editions. He has no end. Every costume and every piece of culture has some sort of influence on it which uh, if you're not specifically looking and you don't particularly care, you'll get a general feel for it. If you are looking, all of the elven stuff, it has a relationship to plants. It has a relationship to nature. It's got the twisting vine motifs throughout it. It's got that sort of the curvature of everything. Everything dwarven is very angular. It's very square. It's very sort of straightforward. And if it has to go into a point, it's like two peaks, an arrowhead. And they're always absolutely uh, level. So there's there's no isosceles triangles it's all equilateral and uh, it's like it's just been chiseled out of the rock and it's very sort of <clears throat> everything to do with uh, the gondor and the worlds of men has a relationship dating back to the Numenorians. so you've got the seabirds wings are on everything those, those turn up and all the armor there's that kind of wing motif and you've got the white tree repeatedly with is it seven stars uh yeah 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 uh, it's, it's, what, it's what the star stand for yeah i i remember the, the seventh one is, is in fornost fornost Okay. Just remember today. <laughs> Rohan, there are horses everywhere if you look. It's just a curvature to everything they do, which then sort of uh, curls back over and then slopes down, and then horses' heads everywhere. It's like the Godfather up in there. <laughs> um, 
I think the essence of it is in terms of, of how it contributes to the overall success of the film. The story is there and the, the acting's there and the dialogue and everything for the people who don't pay that much attention to the background stuff. But for the people who really do pay attention to that kind of thing, for the people who the a little change in in clothing colour is going to suddenly make them realise that they're not in that world anymore. They've done all that to stop those people or to, you know, to help those people keep within the world and keep within the story, which I think is, is possibly partly why this, these films had such massively wide appeal because there is something in there for everybody. Actually, as well as round doors, all the Hobbit's windows are round as well. If any, any kind of aperture that uh, you can look through or walk through is round. There, there aren't sharp corners to a Hobbit's world. Actually, mentioning, um, the Hobbit's Bilbo, his costume at the beginning of the film is very autumnal. You've got this sort of dark russet colour to his, um, specifically to his waistcoat. The Hobbit's waistcoat's like the most important piece of clothing. But then when you see him in Rivendell, he's got this sort of, you know, early winter kind of pale greeny colour to all, all of his clothing. And then later on, he's actually wearing dark green, but it's gone from autumn to winter. And then almost like it's back to spring again, even though he's incredibly aged at that point. And so, yeah, when he says, I think I'm about ready for another adventure, it's this kind of, you know, stepping out and getting back on the road again, even if the road happens to be the sea. And Aragorn's costume, I have to mention, as I said, everything about it is entirely practical. The stitching on his shoulders was there to hint at, even if it was never actually confirmed, that you could actually unstitch those and take the sleeves off in hot weather. Uh, when he was originally given his uh, ranger sword, he asked specifically well okay right so i have to clean a deer what do i use do i use my sword so they made him a little knife for you know preparation and and food and uh, you know skinning uh, which slots into the front of his scabbard and then they also gave him a whetstone that he could sharpen his sword with after he requested it and he was very involved in the costume and like i said before he was entirely self-sustaining Vigo specifically got possibly more into character than anyone else there He, he lived aragorn yeah, that's surprising. He got the job about a week before he did his yeah, first scene. Yeah, we haven't scene. mentioned this, did we? Um, originally, yeah. the actor chosen to play Aragorn was um, Stuart Townsend, who uh, I don't know. Uh, well, he's, he's not a good actor. I think you're just particularly <laughs> really angry isn't. at him for his terrible portrayal of um, the stat. In- yeah, I am, but he wasn't great in shooting fish either. I mean, he was all right, but not fantastic. Apparently he's good in Resurrection Man, which may have got him the initial Aragorn gig. But um, but yeah, he's, he's too young. He didn't really fit in with the project, and he was uh, removed from the uh, filming very, very quickly. And I think Vigo walked in and pretty much had to do Weathertop. Just had to get a crash course in how to use a sword just yeah. before that scene, which is... But he impressed the hell out of Bob Anderson, and who later on said that he was maybe the greatest swordsman he'd ever taught, which coming from Bob Anderson, the swordmaster... He's taught everyone. <laughs> and I think during that fight, he actually got a tooth knocked out. <laughs> and... Um, they were like, oh, we're going to have to stop this scene, get you to a dentist and get this one re, uh, recapped. And he grabbed some super glue, picked up the tooth, glued it back in, and then said, just carry on filming in that kind of crazy... He is a little bit crazy <laughs> yeah. in a wonderful way. But, I mean, if you if you looked at his, his art, he's a, he's a painter, he's really into photography, he's a poet, he's a singer, he's a, a, a man of many talents... Uh, one of them being an exceptionally intense acting without going over the top. 
which is very difficult to manage because a lot of people like um, Daniel Day-Lewis, very intense acting, very similar style of very intense acting, but he goes over the top. The Crucible. I have given you my soul. Leave me my name! Directed by Nicholas Heitner. Also being a method actor, tends to take it a bit too far. Like, he actually gets into character and insults regular people who are nothing to do with him because he's in character. Yeah, Vigo at least tends to know where to stop there. Although he does also tend to headbutt, just just fun, <laughs> his co-stars. Just in a kind of a jovial, like you'd slap someone on the shoulder, he'll just, like, headbutt you and then run off laughing. Rug, and rugby tackle you as well. Uh, yeah, and rugby tackle you. So, you know, he's someone that you could really look up to and, you, you know, he could lead you, but also might be crazy. Yeah, you really don't want to rugby have a Sean Bean. I think he could take it. Yeah, but apparently <laughs> but he just, used to. I know. And there was a particular animosity between... Well, a kind of a friendly rivalry between uh, both Sean Bean and Orlando Bloom and um, John Reese davis and Orlando Bloom. <laughs> <laughs> they would... Uh, well, I think... Because you know, Orlando Bloom was sort of this young Turk who had just started in movies. This was before even Black Hawk Down, and, and this was like his first proper film... And so they were, I mean, obviously their old hands were trying to sort of put him in his place, but he was a cocky little bastard. And, and yeah, so there were, there were various sort of falling out of canoe moments <laughs> which they were involved in. We'll talk about that later. Uh, so yeah, let's talk about the Watcher in the Water. I only ever read it as a giant octopus. Yeah, I think it's just, I mean, tentacles do paint that picture. I think this is... Something squid-based. He was very yeah. keen, Tolkien, to sort of effectively describe for us, in not too many words, a giant octopus, and let our imagination do the rest, but not say it was a giant octopus. <laughs> and describe yeah. Shelob, but not say it was a giant spider. Yeah, I think that's a good idea, because otherwise it yeah. tends to look a bit cheesy, you know. Yeah, it almost it's... makes it more humdrum, describing it as a giant version of something that we are used to as small. That's true, actually. If you're using the um, the reader's imagination, the second you use um, sort of words that are set in stone, like octopus and spider, that person will create a very specific image of what that is. Or they'll just um, put a, a regular spider in their head and then just scale it up a bit and just keep tapping yeah. on the plus one button. Especially with um, octopuses, you've got the, the very Octopi. dodgy... Octopody. Octopuses is correct as well. (laughs) You've got the very dodgy early sort of stop motion animation of sort of Kraken octopus beast. Ray Harryhausen. Looks looks terrible. Yeah. (laughs) Sort of nowadays. If you're trying to. Although they were actually trying to recapture that Harryhausen spirit with this. They they were, yeah. Yeah, basically. If you harken back to that now, it looks cheesy, but. And this was done incredibly well, and it stands up. Yeah. Today, really well. That's a you know, purely CGI creature. And the uh, the sound effect for it, I think they they used a, a walrus and sort of slowed it down so that it went and it was unfolding its giant maw. It's not. It's not actually that sort of standard tentacles because it's got sort of claws on the end of the tentacles. It's got sort of a tri grip. It's, yeah, it's end, got a, effectively is, a small, a, a, yeah, which a, is, a tentacly hand, which basically makes it completely new. That that that. So I don't know if it's something that's ever been done before for tentacles. It's always been a sort of, you just know, just a sucker style tentacle. Yeah. yeah, just as I said in the, said just like a, a, a floppy tentacle on a string just yeah. launched at the, the actor. And at least this makes it, you know, it 
looks like it can more, do more damage because the grit, you know, sort of grippiness of it. Yeah. I think a lot of the success of this as well is to do with the sounds and that, um, the extra that they have about the, the foley work that they did for this was just absolutely fascinating. And it, it when you watch it, I, I didn't find myself thinking, oh, well, that sounds so horrendous because they've got wet rubber mats and they're smacking them against the floor. It was still completely effective, even though I knew yeah. how they'd achieved all of those, mm. um, uh, those sounds. Am I wrong? In the Bakshi version, does this watcher eat Bill the Pony? I, I can't remember whether it's implied or... I think it drags poor Bill in... into the lake and then eats him. In the Bakshi version, the watcher closes the door. Yeah, in a kind of a... And just good like, riddance oh, to you, yeah, sort but... of way. Yeah, it's... Oh, that's terrible. Oh, it's one of the many terrible things about the Bakshi version. One thing, actually, Moria, I don't think we've seen the last of it. It doesn't figure in the Hobbit book in any way. However, the fact that Barlin's tomb is in here, and Barlin being one of the initial 13 dwarves, and the fact that this is a major event in the lives of the dwarves and takes place between the Hobbit and the War of the Ring, to me suggests that near the tail end of film three, they could at least allude to it by having word of uh, struggle in Moria and maybe just the beginnings of what will end up being a, a, a full-on goblin war with the dwarves, which the dwarves are going to lose. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think they are going to at least mention it even... I mean, I don't know. They, they might even show them turning up at Moria. Yeah. Just sort of turning up at, the, at that gate and then... Well, Led by Berlin. That's yeah. the wrong side, but yeah. But... The, Either they should yeah, show them go off or show them get there and then obviously you know what happens from the, the fellowship. It would just be so thrilling to to see someone actually writing, you know, scratching on the book, we cannot get out. They have barred the gates. Yeah. Drums, drums in the deep. We cannot get out. Yeah. There's, there's, they so are much, <laughs> there's so much they can do for, for film free. It's just, just how much they can fit in. Yeah. I, it, that... I'm not going to let myself get too excited, but Jesus. <laughs> Especially as it's like two years away. It's actually only a year and a half away. Oh, it's yeah, going to be yeah. the middle of uh, 2014. So um, possibly Gplex 2014. <laughs> definitely Gplex 2014. And then I believe it's going to be Avengers 2, although people are campaigning for Star Wars 7 for 2015. <laughs> oh, which is it going to be? I mean, they're both Disney, so they won't be too close to each other. Yeah, I don't know. I 7. It's done by written the screenplay's written by a person who did Toy Story Toy Story Three. That does sound interesting. And Little Miss Sunshine. And yeah, that does yeah. sound really interesting. This may date if he gets lifted off the project in a few months' time. What's yeah. this? Darth Vader comes back. No, <laughs> get rid of him. What's this? Jar Jar comes back. No, no. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, so they're in Moria, and and like I said, there is huge, huge scope here because it's. As you're going around, it's visual storytelling. It's telling you that the, the terrible things have, have happened here. And these, the dwarf skeletons look so fragile and small and frail. And they've got these little bony fingers. Which they're, they're all sort of doubled up in agony. So you, it seems very sad and very scary at the same time because of what they've walked into. Still today, it's, it's almost more atmospheric now, now that we're uh, going to be getting to know these dwarves, or at least friends of these dwarves. Yeah, because I think it's, it's Barlin, and there's, 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 there's the Orion and, uh, Ori and Nori go as well. So I think two others go as well. So it's yeah. sort of even more that, that, that their, their bodies will be lying there somewhere. Could even be what the one that wrote the book. Yeah. I really like how the, the light is, is used in Mora, because it, it sort of emphasises 
in, in the, the Dwarder of how big it is and in the um, before they get there how sort of precarious all the little uh, bridges and small sort of pathways yeah. around the rock it just sort of it just shows just enough light to show how, how much of a depth there is the dwarves have absolutely no care for safety seriously <laughs> not a guardrail in the place well, Not they would have such one. an affinity for the rock that they would that the idea of a dwarf falling on rock would be ridiculous. So it wouldn't necessarily occur to them to make provision for safety. I'm actually, now that you mention it, this is the one race that we haven't really found out much about, and I think we can now properly explore this, their culture. Because there's never really been any really good dwarf films. Ever. Oh, yeah. Not a single one. This is probably the closest to Fellowship of the Ring, because you get to see Moria. Oh, yeah. Um... I think I think I think it'd be more in the obviously the Hobbit is more is a it's based on the Hobbit, but I mean it's a very dwarf yeah. book. So hopefully, but they're going to have to characterise thirteen different dwarfs who are only lightly characterised in the book. Judging by the traders they have, um, yeah. I think Peter Jackson probably wants to tell more dwarf history. So I think yeah. that there'll be a lot more sort of interludes. Um, that I mean, all you need is a dwarf telling a story, and then you can do a flashback for it, and then. You can have sort of infinitely more dwarves and infinitely more dwarf history, and he's got three films. So, <laughs> uh, and then when they get to the the Duero Delph, and it's actually got that giant hall filled with pillars, and then that music soars up. It's so utterly captivating. Every time I see it, it just grabs me. Stuff like this makes me actually think that Fellowship may, by the end of this series, uh, be my new favourite. It is currently two towers extended, but we'll see, because I really love Fellowship. I never yeah. stopped loving it, but there's so many things in this to, to adore. Yeah, I like Fellowship and sort of two towers equally oh. at the moment. So. Yeah. Because um, I think the fellowship I like because it is sort of like the companionship story I, I find quite interesting. It's, you know, they can characterise the characters so much just because yeah. they're, they're just nine people living together, and it's just that's incredibly interesting. And and it's an active has, quest as well, rather than yeah. uh, that Frodo and Sam thing yeah. seems more like it, they're really out of their depth the whole time. Yeah, it's it's the most sort of st- structured because they're not 
darting off to completely other sides of Middle Earth. They're just they're all yeah. together. This is the bit that is important, and it's all and the scenery changes quite often as well. And then they get to Balin's tomb, and I think it's gonna you know this is gonna have more and more significance as the new trilogy come on. We watched um, the extra on digital grading, and they talked about how they were raising and lowering topically throughout the screen the light and the color saturation. And something that really has struck me in recent years especially about Return of the King, uh, a lot of the underground sections in Fellowship of the Ring, it's very, very grey. They've pulled so much colour out of it to to make it seem uh, more serious, more impactful, uh, and slightly more depressing. And and in Return of the King, it's because there is a great grey-black cloud over everything being pushed out from Mordor. But at the same time, it makes the film slightly less vibrant. Yeah. Which is exactly what they intended. But even in HD, it's grey. It's like watching a PlayStation 2 game sometimes. (laughs) They were trying to make it as realistic as possible and having it be vibrant and colourful all the time. It would have felt like a a dream. As opposed to... Specifically, Return of the King actually feels, feels like a war film. Yeah, I think they probably wanted to have that starker contrast between the Shire and the rest of the world because yeah. they, they made that sort of immensely colourful and obviously they got the fireworks as well so which green, yeah. yeah and and then they wanted to make the rest you know, that is the, the, the peaceful the one peaceful land left in Middle Earth Yeah, the rest of it is, has come under the shadow of Mordor and the Ring and they wanted to show that I think also if you take it, obviously we've already been through the whole, you know, it's not allegorical because Tolkien doesn't like allegory it's and applicable. the rest of it, but, but the applicability of it, um, it, it is possible to read the story of Frodo's journey as a, a story through depression. Yeah. And that's one of the, the particular features of a lot of, of depression is that it looks like all the colour is washed out of the world. It, you know, everything just seems faded and grey and you can't see colours as vibrantly as, as you think you should be able to. And that's one of the things that makes you feel miserable all the time. Mm. So I think in, in terms of how they get that across, that actually comes through very well. And the fact that it goes in stages as well, that you, Frodo goes through Rivendell where everything is autumnal but still colourful. And then you've got the stark white of the mountain. And then he goes to Moria because he has no choice. And that's where things really start to wash away in terms of colour. And then he goes to Lorien, which is obviously there's light, but it's still very grey in tone. And then from then on, obviously everything is is sort of over, overlaid with this darkness. The fight with the various uh, Moria, are we going to call them... Orcs because goblins is just the uh, Hobbit word. Well, I don't know. The film Legolas says goblins. I don't know. I think the film just uses them, and then Legolas says goblins to start with, then orcs later. So it's just you know what? Can we just say goblins when we're talking about the Moria? Orcs yeah, and it, orcs it when we're talking about anyone else is completely interchangeable. It seems in the films. Okay. Um, one thing that no one ever seems to mention is that orcs don't aren't able to move around in sunlight and that's one of the things that Uruks have that they don't which makes them much more of a usable fighting force that's why um, everything in Return of the King was so grey Sauron had to literally block out the sun so that his armies could get to Minas Tirith without going ah, the sun <laughs> and shrinking yeah, away you'd think he would have read that out by now Yeah. what was he doing for 3000 years and a lot of these are the same orcs they're yeah. thousands of years old. 
again, that's never really gone into, but a lot of these orcs are really, really old. I'm assuming that's why there's so many of them in Moria, though, that the darkness there has enabled them to basically have a population explosion. Yeah. <laughs> like beetles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is the first proper fight in the film where it's clearly going to be a fight. The enormous battle in the prologue, it, you don't even know who's fighting at this stage. It's just, you know, good good elves versus bad orcs, and you're seeing history play itself out. And Weathertop, it's a terrible situation that is alleviated by a, a uh, hero coming to the rescue. In this, it is your party, your fellowship, who have been, you know, you've been shown these guys are extremely charismatic, powerful, as capable as they can be, and there's four hobbits there as well. They could maybe handle some enemies at this point now. And they've got a wizard there with them. It builds up with the goblins attacking them, and you're like, oh, it's gonna, oh, here it comes. The, the way Ian McKevin reads the book, incredibly good. It sets the scene perfectly, and sort of, it's so much sort of, um, terror. You, you know, it's, you could sense the terror that the person was writing it, and then, just after that, they get attacked. And there's that it's awful just... scrawl at the end of the page where they are coming. Yeah. It's like the goblin literally snatched his hand away, maybe literally, while he was writing it. Again, that's, that's a, a lot of visual storytelling, and they're sort of picking through this scene of ruin. And, of course, Pippin completely screws it for them all. <laughs> the, sort of the, the way the, the noises play out in that is perfect. It just goes on long enough. The sort of speed of the noise is perfect because everyone wants it to just stop. It's to stop now so we don't we don't alarm anyone. It mm. just goes on long enough. And it is comical, you know, as an audience, yeah. you're like you're you're with Pippin while he's wincing and hunching his shoulders, like oh, because you yeah. kind of want something actiony to happen at this stage, but at the same time you don't want it to be too bad. Yeah, you don't want the same thing to happen as yeah. happened to the, the all the dwarves. Yeah, you don't want to get massacred, but a, a ruck would be nice. Uh. Uh. Here lies Balin, son of Hundin, Lord of Moria. He is dead then. It's as I feared. We must move on. We cannot linger. They have taken the bridge. And the second hall. We have barred the gates, but cannot hold them for long. The ground shakes. Drums, drums in the deep. We cannot get out. A shadow moves in the dark. Cannot get out. They are coming.
fool of a took. Throw yourself in next time and rid us of your stupidity. It's, it's kind of a wish fulfillment. I think in the um, in the book, it's, there's this actual the dropping of the. It's like it's a dwarf in armor with a bucket and some chain around it. Uh, that actually happens a lot earlier, and yeah. and there was eventually there's a skirmish which is seemingly unconnected. Yeah, the skirmish is incredibly badly written. Because <laughs> again, he had no interest in action. Yeah, and there's a sort of a second door, so they can just go, oh, we'll go out this door then. Alright. This is like, well, there's no tension there. Well, speaking of second doors, I assume that that shaft of sunlight coming through into Balin's tomb, which lights it excellently, it leads directly to a, a sheer drop on the side of a mountain, otherwise I'm sure some of the doors would be trying to get up and out of it, surely. Yeah, I, th- I think it's just such a, a deep, Sort of a uh, sharp angle that there's, there's no way of getting up it. Yeah, still quite deep in the size of the mountain. That they've you know they've taken a lot of trouble to just get that one light that they didn't make it bigger, big enough to get through. The way it's played out, the the, the skirmish, it's a, there's a lot of handheld camera in there, so it's completely different to any fantasy style fight that we've ever seen before, because it's yeah. done in in a in a way that uh, it yeah, looks yeah. like journalistic war footage. Yeah, that, that's what I wrote down. It looks like war reporter footage. Yeah. Like there's someone standing or next to the the fighting and trying to do a report while while it's all going on. Was um, this the bit that basically Jackson filmed in virtual reality? Peter Jackson stood in an empty studio holding a camera on a stick with the camera down by his feet and sort of ran around the place, sort of filming the cave troll moving around and swatting at invisible enemies and got it so that it looked like totally frantic combat going on, and then matched up the real camera shots with this frenetic footage, which is a fantastic way of doing it, because it makes the part of the actual film, which is totally not real, seem like the most real thing. It completely like heightens all the tension, because like, you feel like you're there in it. And yeah. I've, I don't think I've ever seen a film shot like that before, sort of a reaction scene, and... It's incredibly well done. And it's sort of, you know, incredibly dark and chaotic, and you can't see exactly what's going on. There's goblins getting, you know, uh, running into the camera in blurry, you know, unfocused and getting swatted out of the way by, uh, you know, giant clubs. And it's incredible use of sound again, and just it, extremely uh, good way of laying it down and saying, right, now this is how the combat in Lord of the Rings is going to play out. And from here on, it's only going to get bigger. 
And the way they animated the cave troll, there's going to be a lot of people at home who've watched all the extras, but some people who haven't, they animated a penis on the thing. They cover him in a loincloth. And I was thinking to myself, why? Why would you just give him a flat area? See, why do you have to animate that thing flopping about the place? It's because, and this is very crucial, they had to treat, the animators and the filmmakers had to treat the cave troll like it's a real creature and a real thing. And it's not just some, you know... Giant duck billed Rastafarian that's sort of flopping about the place to, to make the kids laugh. This is um, the underbelly of the cave troll is sort of soft and white, like a sort of fish belly, but it's it's outer shell, it's, its back and its head and its shoulders and its arms are sort of like cracked old stonework, and like uh, Richard Taylor describes it as being leathery hide, like an old well worn foot, because it it actually hibernates and it hunches up under, with its knees under its belly and its arms around itself, and it can hibernate like that for hundreds of years underground. But they've made it this kind of pitiful creature. Like, it's not actually evil, it's just fallen in with the wrong crowd. And I think Peter Jackson said that he likes to think of the cave troll having a mother somewhere in Moria, you know, with his bed turned down and a cup of warm milk waiting for it to come home, which it's never going to because it's gone in with these bad goblins. It, they treat it like a real a person, effectively. Yeah, it's it's kind of like um, an extension of Doctor Manhattan's penis, but rather than swinging it in your face, it's just there for the people who need to know that this thing's real. I tried to be as, be as mature as that as possible. Well, let's all have a good laugh at the knob. <laughs> <laughs> And so, yeah, when Legolas jumps onto his back, there's this awful, awful moment of millennial rubber when there's this sort of thing that actually is unconvincing as Orlando Bloom. Uh, and that takes some doing. So swinging around on his uh, head and then it, when he fires the arrow directly into the creature's head, it bounces off because it's too tough. That's why he has to go around the front. And when he fires it directly into its mouth, there's this sort of fraction of a second when the cave troll realizes it's mortal and it brings its hand up to feel the arrow inside its mouth while its eyes retract backwards into its head and then it does this sort of as it falls over it's is that the walrus noise again yeah it's this it sounds like this horrible it's it's a wounded walrus sound and you you theorize that they'd actually wounded a walrus together (laughs) no i said i hope they haven't actually wounded a walrus to get that noise walrus pain is temporary hardest friend can you feel this uh, and yes, yeah, so so when it dies, you feel a little bit sad, but at the same time, they've played the whole stab Frodo me do. Now, I've got to ask, it the mithril shirt stopped Frodo getting stabbed to death here, right? With the the force of a cave troll's arm and a dwarven-made trident stabbing into him, it was enough to uh, clearly, you know, maybe even like uh, crack a rib or something, and you know, really hurt him. But he's not badly harmed. How does Shelob not break her stinger off on this thing? Plot device. That is the correct I answer. may ask Richard Taylor this if I ever um, get to talk to him again. Could be, I mean, certain structures in nature are, well, quite like the majority of structures in nature are more powerful, sort of relatively, than anything human made, so. I mean, a, a spider's web is stronger than steel, relatively Close. speaking. So a, a sting, it's not... I don't think the dwarves designed it to stop giant spider stings. 
the elves that have the enmity of the the spiders. So, uh huh. (laughs) The elves have the enmity of the spiders. Therefore, the mithril shirt cannot stop a (laughs) giant spider sting. Oh, it's not even a giant spider. It's a thing that has eight legs and is an evil creature. The last of the brood of Ongoliant. Yeah. Check me. Okay, so yeah, and, and Lyra at this point went, oh, Frodo's died. He He's just died again. Because, of course, he almost dies at Weathertop. And then when he came around, she was like, why does he keep dying and then not dying? Um, well, that's not... No, she said, I want him to stop dying. And I was like, well, it's going to happen at least one more time. This second one is part of a trifecta of injuries of Frodo specifically being stabbed and being invaded and violated by blade and spear and sting that leave him, in his eyes, tainted. And this is very, it's key to his decision to go into the West at the very, very last film. But this was the second one. Somehow he gets through the entirety of the Two Towers without being prodded too hard. Then, <laughs> as Gandalf says, to the Bridge of Casadoum. And you get the fellowship theme, which is absolutely triumphant. Now, this first, I mean, it's, it, there was little inflections of this throughout as the fellowship was sort of coming together, but it didn't really come about until the very, very uh, end of the first disc, which is the end of the Council of Elrond. And it was like, there should be the fellowship of the ring. And this is probably the most triumphant, the most adventurous, the most yes version of it ever. There are various versions of it that play afterwards, but they're always tinged with a little bit of sadness or a little bit of something. And uh, all of the uh, goblins crawling out of the top of the roof. I remember seeing the uh, first ever teaser which involved this uh, while I was reading the book. So when I got to this point, I was like, right, now so goblins start crawling out of the roof. Oh, it's going to be awesome. And that didn't happen. I was like, oh, seriously? That, that kind of would have been cool. Yeah. <laughs> but, it's, probably yeah. Quite hard to, it's probably quite hard to write that. I mean, it's... Oh, like, don't challenge me again, you... <laughs> And then, from apertures in the ceiling, came the skittering forms of thousands of black insectoid goblins, armoured and utterly savage, crawling down hard. the walls like some form of fell creatures. Oh, I'll stop now. Quite <laughs> hard for Tolkien to write it if he's individual characters. Because, oh. <laughs> you know, he has no interest in, in action scenes or tension. But, um, mm. but no, this is... Actually, this was one of my favourite bits of the book, The Bridge of Khazad-dûm. They, they, the whole jumping down the stairwell scene, that's of course not in the book. They, they added that. And um, I think in the script it simply says, the fellowship runs down the stairs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, before this, they, they get cornered by all the goblins, and then there's that sort of wonderful moment when uh, Lyra said, they're all going to die! <laughs> and then there's this, the sound of the balrog, and all the goblins run off, and it's like, uh-oh. If yeah, I, these guys in their thousands are scared of something, what is this thing? Yeah, I really like the the lighting in that scene of the, the sort of the red light or sort of yeah. marching down the lanes of pillars. It just looks so menacing. And Orlando Bloom does some of his best acting here because he can see what other people can't because he's got a, he's got elf eyes, <laughs> so he can see all the way down the end of this passageway. Also, oh, we're coming. In the Silmarillion, during the Fall of Gondolin, there is an elf called Legolas who gets killed by Balrogs. 
Oh, right. And it is never specifically mentioned if that's supposed to be the same Legolas. There's, there's a whole weird thing about dying and then coming back again. I don't understand whatsoever, but oh well. So, yeah, yeah when you get this moment of quiet dread from Gandalf, you're like, okay, this thing is going to be really powerful. Which, again, you know, every subsequent time you watch it, there's this awful pause in him because you know what's coming as well. But, uh, yeah, like I say, this was actually one of my favourite passages of the book because it seemed to really matter what was happening. And clearly Tolkien is really a, a major fan of, of Gandalf himself and didn't want to do this, but it's very important that the Fellowship are robbed of their guiding hand. Yeah, it's possible that he is... Sort of, he faces uh, a major test and then uh, sort of surpasses it and is reborn as Gandalf the White, the, the head of the wizards of Middle Earth, and yeah. that gives him more power to actually fight Sauron because he's, not, he's not, not, not any match for Sauron as Gandalf That's the Great. Yeah. Gandalf the White, he is sort of. So it's a, a massive test for him, the, the Fellowship, as it's a massive test for Frodo. So yeah, the Fellowship run down the stairs. It's a spectacular sequence. And then we finally get to see the Balrog. And one of the most frighteningly realised creatures, and they clearly spent ages making sure this guy was absolutely right. Because Tolkien didn't say it didn't have wings, that kind of gave them license to give it wings of a sort. So it kind of has these sort of vestigial or possibly shadow wings, which sort of yeah, emanate from its back. They seem almost um, more like a cloak than a yeah. than, than functional wings. They sort of like a a cat. They they sort of making itself look bigger. Yeah, and it even more flares scary. up Gandalf to say, "Look how much fire is in here." Yeah, I quite like this scene as well because it's the, the the first real magic or the first sort of flashy magic that Gandalf's done. Yeah, um, and and powerful magic because he can you know, deflect the, the massive fire sword just from a ball of magic. You say just from it, it seems like it's taken well, all of his effort at this point. I think, yeah, I think that's that's also the the ring as well that, he, that yeah. he's got. Naria. Although as you said, you don't see it. And the way the creature is actually uh, constructed, it was designed to look like it was made of lava but was constantly cooling and cracking on the outside so that it wasn't really a solid being it was more sort of fire wrapped and enshrouded in shadow yeah and it, it does perfectly look like that yeah <laughs> even 11 years later it's just the, i mean i think that's the the thing of these that it they they took so much care in it that it's that even the graphic even the, the cgi which is the thing that starts to age still looks like it could be released today and that that would be you know good, really good cgi yeah except for the model of orlando from a distance when he has to run across a bridge or outside or through a door or jump onto a cave trolls back yeah so all the um the the models especially you know running also running down the stairs they looked a bit it's yeah. mainly actually just the lighting looked a bit off rather than the actual model you know the animation of the models but Curiously, though, and I suppose this is really an odd time to bring it up, but they've made it so that it's really kind of pointless making another Lord of the Rings movie series to cover these same books. I'm not sure why they'd do it or what they'd be trying to achieve with it. You could possibly try to do it to make it more like the books, but that would attract less movie sales. Why would you play with that be done? You can only really make it less like the books. Yeah. I suppose you could do an animated version and, and, and do things which you wouldn't really be able to with regular actors, but that would make it more fantastical and less believable. Yeah, I don't think you could make... I think I, mean, I don't think they set out to do that. It's just because they put so much care into it and yeah. 
Just oh, they didn't set out to, but the, no, what but... they've resulted in is, I mean, even, what, in a hundred years' time when filmmaking has adapted to the point where you can make the most uh, unimaginable, fantastical thing incredibly real and seem like it's actually happening to the person watching or experiencing, if film actually grows to encompass us entirely in, in, in 3D space, maybe then there'd be a, a reason to, to do them again. Yeah. But right now, then, on a 2D plane... Sort of even then... The, the fantastic I think they just remake these films so they actually make their own <laughs> I was thinking that they could just go back and tweak them to, to fit in yeah. with this, this format if you can wreck on 3D to make you feel like you're actually in Moria yeah uh, well, I just need to say, if they did like do all the, the themes and I mean they'd probably have to use new actors but if they just go for the tone and the feel and the, the script if they, yeah. I think they would do that just because this is the now the definitive edition of well to, to quite a lot of people, this is the definitive definitive edition of uh, the the adaptations. But I think that the people who uh, wouldn't consider it the definitive adaptation, if people aren't massively fond of it, then they're going to be either in the extreme minority, like uh, my friend Peter Barden, who adored the Bakshi Lord of the Rings and hated Fellowship of the Ring, never got his viewpoint on the Two Towers and Return of the King. <laughs> uh, but he thought that this was a terrible bastardization of Tolkien's work. But he was, I would, I've never oh, met anyone Oh, but the Bakshi version like, wasn't. Oh, he grew up with it. He had rose-tinted goggles. Um, he was in a tiny, tiny minority. Um, and anyone else who really loves the books and doesn't like the films is going to hate any adaptation of it. Because it's not going to be commensurate with their own imagination. I think essentially these films are as close as you can possibly get a text this dense in a visual format. Yeah. Yeah. It's they've they've translated pages and pages and pages of Tolkien's description into realistic fabric, into swords that look like they've been there for hundreds and hundreds of years into armor that's clearly got a, a, an evolved history behind it and i think that really is the only way that you can make a book that dense into a filmic representation and i can't see how anybody could possibly improve on that yeah yeah i agree with that and i mean if uh alan lee and John Howe. John Howe and Christopher Lee all think it's good, then you don't really have much of a leg to stand on. Because yeah. yeah. they are the three definitive Tolkienites. And if they, they, they say it's good. I mean, there's a quote from Christopher Lee saying, you know, there are some things that he doesn't agree with, but... That's just taking Simon out of the beginning. Of the <laughs> <Basically. thing. laughs> I, think he, I think he might have been a bit hesitant some of the changes. Dude, so, I don't agree with that. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I mean, some of the other changes from the, especially from the other films. Um, I think, you know, I think he said, I mean, he says that it's the closest you're ever going to get of, you know, adapting a book because you can never get exactly the same because it just doesn't work for a film. And it, or even in an unfilmable book, this is the best, this is perfect, basically. Rather than remaking them, uh, future filmmakers would be better served actually exploring the universe of the fourth age. Because that's never yeah. been explored. Tolkien didn't write anything about it. They could, frankly, do anything as long as they are true to the history. Well, he wrote that short story, didn't he? And then, then that was it. Okay. When I say Tolkien hasn't done anything, I mean much. Okay. Yeah. And but I mean, there's been a few appendices addressing the first 185 years, I mean, but there's a lot they, of stuff they could do. Assuming no one makes a film, really, in the film, they can do all that. 
Yeah, again, that that restricts them very much to having to be very slavishly uh, (laughs) accurate on on explaining how the world came into being. And it's effectively the Bible, which may or may not make for fantastic cinema. I think a lot of the the content of the Silmarillion, the bits that haven't already been put into the Lord of the Rings films are probably going to turn up in outline form at least in The Hobbit yeah yeah. I think, well I think there's some bit I don't think like Gondolin and the Silmarils probably will yeah they, they are sort of different storyline but I mean they, I think the, the thing of the Silmarillion it, I don't think it works as well as a textbook because there are so many names I think it probably works better as a visual medium because you, you know oh that's that actor and that's that character one thing I'm fairly certain they will explore, actually, is Anatar and how Sauron came to the elves and convinced them to make the rings in the first place. I think that's actually something that's relevant to this story and, and fits in with it, and people will find interesting. Yeah. And will involve a lot of characters that we know of. The reason I mention this whole, the perfection of these films at this point, and perfection is a, is a risky word to use, especially as a critic, but uh, this is one of the most perfect scenes in cinema, let alone in these movies. The Bridge of Khazad-dûm and the Fall of the Balrog and the Fall of Gandalf. The emotion of this moment hits me every single time, because even though I know he's coming back as Gandalf the White, there's still something that is lost. There's still something that is sacrificed here. When he comes back, he, he doesn't have very sharp memories of his time as Gandalf the Grey. He's, um, that was what they used to call me. It's like he's lost thousands of years and then come back. Yeah, Gan- Gandalf the Grey definitely died there, and then yeah. Gandalf the White is a, a different subset of him. Yeah. It's kind um, of like a hard reset on the Gandalf. He almost like re-rolled and respect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and regained some memories, but not, not yeah. everything. He still really cares about Frodo, obviously, when he meets him again. There's still that, and he still considers all the hobbits and everyone else that he meets to be his friends, and he still has some idiosyncrasies that are similar to Gandalf the Grey, but it is a slightly different character. So, when Gandalf the Grey falls here, it's the death of a, a character that we've grown to love in this film, and we'll get three more films with as well. Yeah. So it's um, going to become more significant each time. His delivery of all of the lines are so so well done. Yeah. He he is Gandalf at that point, and he is fighting for his life against this supremely evil being. Yeah. And the, the fly falls is, is far better than. I don't have to keep comparing it to the animated show, but it's just it's off the ta- off, off the yeah. map in terms of uh, like, different scale. It's like the red different books that happen to have the same line but they've got different sort of descriptive lines surrounding of how to how to act it but it's the music and it's the reactions of the fellowship that it, it, and it pulls in that the first character that reacts is Frodo and it's absolute despair and uh, horror at this point and then it immediately cuts to Aragorn and suddenly all of this weight of leadership has slam down onto his shoulders at the same time he's losing one of his oldest friends yeah because they never really go into the close relationship between Mithrandir and, and Aragorn but then it's there and yeah. so suddenly there's this look in his eyes of this is now on me I can't even afford ten seconds to be distraught at this point I have to be the leader and he doesn't even allow himself to grieve so when everyone else is is crying their hearts out he has to be stern and made of granite and on your feet Sam yeah, and the scene, I mean, I think like every scene in the films, it's heightened by the music. I mean, I, I, how, how well they acted they are and much research and work they did into the, the clothes and the scenery, the, 
the music take, takes it up to a next level, which yeah. sort of turns it into sort of superb piece of cinema. All the films are. If you cut away all the dialogue, all the sound effects, uh, and you just had the film playing out with just the music, it would be almost as impactful. Well, yeah, I mean, just just listening to the music on his own without yeah. any pictures is you. you it's got all the same um, emotions playing through it, and you know what's happening at each point mm. just from from how the, what the music cues are. Conversely, if you leech the music out of the film and just saw them with the dialogue and the uh, sound effects in a raw cut of it, nowhere near as impactful. Howard Shaw, absolutely to be commended for this. It is a lifetime worth of achievement all in one yeah i think every single part just happened to luckily happened to come together like the Mm. costume was perfect the scenery was perfect the acting was perfect the the music's perfect just i think it's just they they were incredible i mean peter jackson was was incredibly lucky that it all went as well and he had so many talented people to pick from if he didn't have weta it would be nowhere near as good as film as it was because they they obviously had so much passion if this whole film had to be made by ILM at the same time as the Star Wars movies Jesus imagine this whole film shot on green screen (laughs) even with the fantastic actors tennis ball on a stick you cannot pass stand out I am a servant of the secret fire Wielder of the flame of Arnor. The dark fire will not avail you. Flame of Ulun! Go back to the shadow.
Legolas, get them up. Give them a moment, for pity's sake. By nightfall, these hills will be swarming with orcs. We must reach the woods of Lothlori. I'm Boromir. Legolas. Gimli, get them up. On your feet, sir. Frodo? Frodo! Gimli's beside himself because he's been saying we should go through Moria for weeks before they ended up going through and of course when they did this befell them so he again blames himself yeah and he must look up to Gandalf because he I mean he, Gandalf helped his father and his, his family win back their, their mountain yeah. and he completely changed all their lives and if you know if they hadn't won back the Lonely Mountain Gimli would not have been on this quest. I don't think. Yeah. Wouldn't have been anywhere, you know, anywhere near. In there, they would just be up further north, just in their own ho- own caverns, doing nothing, and had no interaction with the, sort of the outer world and the, the ring at all. Not to mention the fact that Gimli's also dealing with the fall of one of the most significant dwarf cities in Middle Earth and the death of many, many, many of his kinsmen. Pippin blames himself because he dropped that dwarf corpse down a well, brought the uh, goblins down on them. Frodo blames himself because of having the ring. When you see his face, Elijah Wood's script direction was make it frightening. Yeah, well, it's um, ways on Frodo Helly because obviously he, uh, when they're in Karadras, uh, Gandalf said, "What does the ring bearer decide?" So he's Frodo's and it was his journey. decision, yeah. And it's his decision. He picks Moria, and I, mean, I think that's probably the correct choice. They didn't really have any other option, but he mm. he was the one that picked it, and he was the one that well, he you know he feels killed Gandalf, and because he knows more than the other hobbits, really, who Gandalf is, because he's got he's been told things by Bilbo, yeah. and they still, I think, in the, the mind that he is just you know, an old man that that has fireworks. Frodo knows he is like, an incredibly powerful being who just happens to, to like coming to the Shire and, and sh- sort of showing off with his fireworks. Legolas has difficulty dealing with the concept of death itself, but we'll talk about that more next episode. And Aragorn, while he has been leading the Dúnedain uh, on and off throughout his life, and he has fought in many wars and he's been a leader and a, a follower, he works best really on his own out in the world where he can take care of himself he's all about being entirely self-sufficient and now suddenly he's got the entire fellowship at his command and he immediately heads for Lothlorien so it, when he actually sees the golden wood he smiles in a kind of Christ I've got some place of recuperation that I can take us to at this point because I don't quite know what to do here yeah he doesn't trust himself yet and he, as you mentioned weakness in Rivno he still thinks that he could fall to weakness and then just betray everyone and, and he just can't have any position of power because he think he'll, he, he will betray everyone and yeah. just doesn't want that to happen and he's swarthy and bedraggled enough that I think regular people coming to this not knowing anything about the characters might think he was a shifty looking bugger and uh, suspect him almost as much as Boromir yeah 
So yeah, even even Lyra did when um, after Frodo got away from Boromir at the end of Amon Hen and Aragorn turned up, she was like, "Oh no, hide it." So then they get to your favourite place, Lothlorien. I really like how the wood looks, just like the sort of the normal part of the wood, not Cow's uh, Hong. It just it looks like a nice. I, I think they yeah again they lucked out finding a forest that had a covering of moss because it made it look makes it look safer. Because yeah, if you fall over, oh, there's moss. That's fine. And it but also looks, older and untended. It does. Yeah, it looks more mystical than yeah. the upper forest they've been in. Well, if not untended, untamed. Yeah. yeah. But not as oppressive by any means as say Fangorn. No. Which looked like a studio set. Yeah. <laughs> because it was. <laughs> yeah. But this, no, that no, feels, even, albeit briefly, like a, a real forest. Yeah. And we meet Haldir, your favourite. Yep. <laughs> I mean, you must be re- made up at this point in the film. Like, yes. I, I, he comes on with the best line. The dwarf breathed so loud we could have shot him in the dark. At this point, I'm going to play some footage I recently found on YouTube of the 2005 London Fellowship Festival. Actor Craig Parker gets asked about a single line in the theatrical edition as Haldir, and the person who scurries to the mic to supply it is none other than me. Um, how long were you with Peter Jackson when you found out that the only line that was left in Fellowship was the campus? <laughs> <laughs> what did you have to do for him to put back more manly? The good thing is, I know where he lives. And, um, yeah, but, but now, uh, what was the light? Um, I can't even remember. What was the light? Did I remember? Oh, <laughs> Craig doing the Gollum voice, not me. I wouldn't show him up twice in one minute. It sounds awful to say, but this could possibly be what Aragorn really needed at that point, because he needed something to kick him into, take this leadership position. You need to be making these big decisions right now. And you actually see with him as it it goes later on, yes, you're absolutely right, he bolts to Lorien. He's looking for wiser people than him to tell him what to do next. He's looking for Galadriel because he wants somebody to say, you now need to go in this direction. He knows where Mordor is. He's, you know, he's, he knows where they need to go and what they need to do, but he wants somebody who is older and wiser than him to tell him what to do next. And later on when he goes to, um, uh, Rohan, I mean, that's, it's slightly different because obviously that's, that's Theoden's, uh, territory. So it's up to him to make the decisions. But Aragorn very specifically does not take leadership role. He tries to advise, but he doesn't take charge to begin with. Um, and I think it is this lack of confidence. It's this not feeling that he has the right to take this this kingship role until 
much further down the line, Elrond says, there you go, you're ready for it. I believe in you. Take the sword. You can do this. Yeah. She he, believes in you. He do puts this for it her. Off. He puts it off and puts it off and puts it off. But this is the first thing that happens that really puts him in a position where he now has to make decisions. And that's why, Chris, it's not Elrond's sons. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, the uh, the elves are not particularly happy with them here. But as I said in the uh, earlier section, uh, you're coming to us as the footsteps of doom. E- whatever happens with this particular quest for the ring, it's going to result in calamity for the elves or um, diminishing for the elves. It's not going to be good for them. Yeah, I also, also quite like that scene because it's used in um, the, the Mirror of Galadriel. Yeah, and so it, it, he's uh, Frodo perceives it as a, a mistrust of him because you know he he's you know him bringing the ring has killed Gandalf and him bringing the ring brings Gandalf. evil everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, he started to see himself as tainted by the the ring, and and, and so he in, internalizes all this negativity and considers that it's it's his fault, of course, yeah. which is ridiculous because ultimately he's only doing what he possibly can to destroy this thing. But somewhere deep down, as you said, Sharon, he kind of wants to stay with it. Which is something that creeps up on him and he never really looks at and is his undoing at the very end. Oh, one of the other things, the thing you said yesterday that annoyed the hell out of me about Tom Bombadil could technically have been as powerful as Sauron, but he wasn't allowed to leave his forest. And I've called that a narrative contrivance. That's, it's terrible. It's like, like what, just, that is your third option right there. Give it to Tom. Just say, well, the ring can stay here then. Because if anyone comes calling for it, Tom can get rid of them. Simple as that. If Sauron himself comes calling for this ring, he can send them packing. Uh, I think the problem is that, that Sauron, even without the ring, could probably take over all of Middle-earth. Oh, right. So he would never need to come to get the ring. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he... He's already started pushback against Gondor with you know taking a Scalif and or, you know just got basically the whole east side of the Andorin is you know the east side you know, in the south is his and he's prepping for war even without the ring and he sends all those you know, two hundred thousand orcs to Minas Tirith without the ring and the only reason Gondor is saved is because the Fellowship of the Ring has set in motion uh, reinforcements yeah. without the reinforcements but you know especially as Sauron has also corrupted Saruman. He he can send hundreds of thousands of orcs uh, of Urukai from uh, Isengard, Isengard to to take the to everything west of the Misty Mountains. Yeah. So effectively, even if they find the safest place for the ring, then without actually straight up destroying it, Sauron will still win. Yeah, because I mean they could have taken it on a ship to the west. That would be safe. Sauron definitely could not get there but it would mean the destruction of Middle Earth well then in that case Galadriel needs to get off Frodo's case because <laughs> <laughs> you're coming to us as a first to do well okay Galadriel what would you do I don't think she means it in terms of you shouldn't have come though I think it's she's she's more just trying to explain to him that this is something which is inevitable I mean that's that's the thing about doom it's inevitable you can't get away from it I got a thing to do song now doom 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 it's possibly not the the kindest way to um uh, to discuss it with him but ultimately I think 
the way Galadriel talks to Frodo, she she treats him very much as an equal. Mm. She doesn't patronise him at all. She's yeah. very honest with him about um, where um, the the fate of the ring is going to lead everybody, mm. um, and it's she she expects him to be able to cope with that because he's a ring bearer, and as far as she's concerned, that that should make him. How do I put this? If you have a ring to bear, then that should automatically make you strong enough to bear that ring. If yeah. you see what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a sort of a, and sort of honesty is the best option way that she's looking at it. That you know, if she gives all the facts to Frodo, then she's yeah trusting him enough to to make the the correct decision. But she feels that he should know everything that's going to mm-hmm. happen. So it's not a shock to him that, that the elves are because he knows obviously a lot about the elves. So it's not it's not a shock that all the elves are basically destroyed by by him. But, but that but I think as part of the mirror scene, she does sort of say that you know that that's what should happen. Okay. That she should diminish and go to the west. We'll talk about that in just a second because we have to talk about Kellerborn first. All 12 seconds of his screen time. <laughs> he comes on and like Prince Philip says, Tell me where is Gandalf for a much desire to speak with him. And it's like, <laughs> Serious, seriously? Use your head. They all look really sad. Anyone could... <laughs> for God's sake. All Galadriel has to say, but I can no longer see him from afar. Yeah. I think again another line from the book which doesn't really work I actually work. think Galadriel said it originally and they made, they gave it to Kellerborn yeah. to make him seem more like it <laughs> and her seem a little bit more tactful about it yeah. she's elbowing him frantically she's at like, this point kicking his sake. ankle he's dead Ixnay on the Andalf gay I think it also emphasises the fact that in the film it's, it's her wood not his and there's uh, something in her eyes. If you look carefully, there's like like nine little uh, lights uh, in each pupil. They're called the Galadrielites. And whenever yeah. Kate Blanchett was actually on camera, they'd have these lights shining in her face, and so they had to sort of reflect those because Galadriel literally means Lady of Light. So she had to almost be exuding light herself. Yeah, and she she glows when she comes down the stairs as well. Yeah, yeah, she's radiant whenever she's on screen. I I have to say one of the things that although I didn't choose Lothlorien as, as my, my place to be one of the things that I really love about it is that slight melancholy feel to it does slight melancholy, that whole <laughs> thing's like a funeral dirge that very melancholy feel to it, um, it as you say, she, she lets them cry and that, that um, line to them about rest for you weary with sorrow and much toil mm. She's. This is basically the place where they can set everything down. They are completely protected here. They're completely safe. They know they can't stay here forever. But this is the point at which they get to do that thing where you just cry and cry and cry until you can't anymore. And then all you can do is sleep. And then when you wake up, you feel better. And it's really hard to explain. But it's there's just it's almost like you've got rid of the thing that was poisoning you. Yeah. And. Um then when she says, welcome Frodo of the Shire, one who has seen the eye, and then there's a sudden really smash zoom close up on her eyes, but completely different lighting, and I believe without the Galadrielites at this point, and it's one jump scare too many. It's like, it's just a little bit too harsh, a little bit too much, too literally in your face at that point. It's, it's not badly handled at all, but it makes Galadriel maybe a little bit more scary than she needs to be at this point. 
I think, though, it does hint at the power she has. Oh, no, I, I get why they did it. Yeah. It's, it's for first-timers. Mm. And then watching it again, you're like, actually, I probably didn't need this, because I get it. I know what's yeah. coming. And that we get a, a, a lovely scene with Aragorn and Boromir, and the, the conversation here, I, I was never a major Boromir fan. At, at this point, Sean Bean won me over with the, mm-hmm. have you ever been called home by the clearing of Silver Trumpets speech? Just trying to show you that underneath all the bluster and the fear, you know, obviously this guy's going to completely screw up the entire fellowship. There is a man, and he has ideals, and he wants things to be good, and he wants to save his people. The best of intentions that then go on to the, you know, to lead to his actions later on. Yeah, it's, it's, I a, think it's a lovely scene. I think it does also impact quite a lot on Aragorn. So I think he does sort of start to take on the mantle of this is my kinsman, and I have to protect him. And it, yeah, it's his, in, Boromir is his link then, to the White City. Obviously, later when Boromir is killed, he that that is when he says he will go to Minas Tirith because he has failed. Yeah, and he he thinks he he has to sort of uh, honour Boromir by saving his people. Yeah, and that's, that one scene is the one in Lothlorien is key to what Aragorn does in Return of the King. Take some rest. These borders are well protected. I will find no rest here. I heard her voice inside my head. She spoke of my father and the fall of Gondor. And she said to me, even now there is hope left. But I cannot see it. It is long since we had any hope. My father is a noble man. His rule is failing. And uh, our... Our people lose faith. He looks to me to make things right, and I would do it. I would see the glory of Gondor restored. (sighs) Have you ever seen his Aragorn? White Tower of Echthelion. Glimmering like a spike of pearl and silver. Its banners caught high in a morning breeze. Have you ever been called home by the clear ringing of silver trumpets? I have seen the White City. Long ago. One day, our paths will lead us there. Our guard shall take up the call. The lords of Gondor have returned. After that, just watching that scene today, that did make me like Sean Bean as an actor more, and make me like his Boromir more than than I had done previously. You haven't got many others to compare him with. There's a Viking. <laughs> I know. I, yeah, that, that, that again. Watching the animated series, I'd never watched before. Film. Yeah, the animated film series. <laughs> <laughs> it um it made all of the actors. So I was I was I'm a bit yeah you know, I was a bit hesitant about Elijah Wood as Frodo, a bit hesitant again as about um, Orlando Bloom and uh, Sean Bean. Wow, if even Orlando Bloom's getting an off from you, <laughs> I, I think the pro- okay the problem with Orlando Bloom and Elijah Wood is they have no face. <laughs> they've basically got no cheekbones, and they've got. The, the only descriptive bit they've got is their eyebrows, so they have to act with their eyebrows. And it just, it just, the, 
probably whatever all the other characters that they have sort of defined faces. They can act. They can do sort of um, uh, more minute sort of changes in their face. But Orlando Blue and Elijah would have to do massive things with their eyebrows to actually show any concern. Do you know, I think you've got a really good point there, Chris. I've never thought about this, but they're both considered to be very, very pretty boys. Yeah. But their faces are incredibly blank. Yeah, they just have... The only things they have, they have no cheekbones, they've got a small nose, and they've got a small mouth, they've just got the massive eyebrows. If you're listening, guys, I'm so sorry about this. Like, <laughs> criticism of your physical appearance you can't do anything about. Now, you're acting, Orlando, that's different. <laughs> <laughs> no excuses there. Well, Surely have enough money for lessons by now. Yeah, I think I, I mean, did like you in Elizabethtown. Also, um, Orlando Blue's acting in Lord of the Rings gets past because it was his first acting job. Of course, yeah. Um, going from acting school to being, and also there's not much the meat Lord. on Legolas. You can't. There's you. There's nothing Literally. there to act. Yeah, he's just a Mary Sue. There's nothing there. All it's like he's, a, he's a, a, some, someone has written themselves into Lord of the Ring as fanfic, as this, <laughs> the most badass elf who ever lived. Yeah. He, has, he has two opportunities to do grief, and on both, his facial expression just about compiles of, what's going on over there then? It's like someone's just told him they've cancelled CBBs. <laughs> <laughs> that was Kermit who said that. He's referring to him at the end of the second part of the Caribbean movie, but it's the same expression. Yeah, he, he, there's no excuse for the Pirates films, but... At least the Lord of the Rings, he gets a pass. Yes. Um, yes. And there's so many other people to, to look at and appreciate the acting of, so. Okay, yeah, so, but, um, we're... so the anyway, animated... moving on. You were just I was gonna... There was a point. Animated... <laughs> the animated films, just because they were so bad, has made me more forgiving, forgiving of the of... downsides of the, yeah, the film. The downsides of their faces. <laughs> God. That's so harsh. Will you look into the mirror? What will I see? Even the wisest cannot tell, for the mirror shows many things. Things that were, things that are, and some things That have not yet come to pass. The Mirror of Galadriel scene. Sharon, one of your absolute favourites? This, absolutely. I, I adore this scene. It's outstanding. And it, it brings tears to my eyes every time. Even just the dialogue. You played me the um, uh, the play. same snippet from the, the radio play. And I was I was welling up. Because I knew what was coming. And it just... it I don't... I can't really explain why. But there's just something about that. The, the power behind her performance is a, is a big part of it. Kate Blanchett in this, just absolute round of applause. She was outstanding. I think part of it is that I always, whenever I watch a, a film or a TV series, it, it is, it is in my nature to look at how they've handled the, the women, how they've handled the female characters. And so many films basically coast by on one stereotype. Fantasy is slightly different 
because they're usually working with um, archetypal characters anyway, which have the danger of becoming stereotypical if you don't give them enough to do. But basically, if a, if a, a fantasy film just has one female stereotype, it's not going to get much credit from me. If it just about manages to stretch to the Virgin in the Hall, slightly better, but not much. Um, but what I, one thing I tend to look for is if there's any representation of the, uh, the, the triple goddess, the maiden mother crone. Um, and you have that in the Lord of the Rings films because you've got Eowyn as the, um, the maiden, uh, Arwen as the mother, particularly after the, the scene where she sees her child um, and Galadriel as as the crone which seems a very inappropriate word to apply to, to Kate Blanchett <laughs> but the, in that context crone doesn't mean wizened and, and wrinkled it just means you know very very old and very wise which of course she is but then there's also um, there's another segment to that which usually doesn't get much much time at all which is the what's sometimes referred to as the dark mother which is basically the crone gone through the necessity of death it's the it's the the part of the goddess which is the destructive part um and her transforming into this this dark queen that she's if she took the ring and and became as powerful as Sauron that is who she'd be um it's oh it's just wonderful the way she recognizes that that's who she would become and then makes a conscious decision that she doesn't want that and she does almost seem to when she comes back to herself and she says no I, I will diminish you can see her visibly shrink but it's in a way it's it's incredibly sad but it's it's so essentially a part of, of who she's choosing to be and that she wants to continue to be good and to, to bring light to the world and not darkness I'm finding it really really hard to put into words because it's such a, an emotional connection for me but that's I love that scene, I love it so much I'm literally watching it now it's breathtaking even without any sound or music or anything uh, the, oh, the effects are just amazing The fact she looks like this sea queen when she says about um treacherous as the sea stronger than the foundations of the earth and she looks like she's got oceans crashing around her and and her dress hasn't changed exactly but the lighting has made it look like armor and and whoever devised the way that scene looks thank you it's just it's amazing i don't usually gush that much but I think it deserves it. I know what it is you saw. For it is also in my mind. It is what will come to pass if you should fail. The fellowship is breaking. It has already begun. He will try to take the ring. You know of whom I speak. One by one, it will destroy them all. If you ask it of me, I will give you the one ring. You offer it to me freely. I do not deny that my heart has greatly desired this.
place of a dark lord, you would have a queen! Not dark, but beautiful and terrible as a lord! Treacherous as the sea! Stronger than the foundations of the earth! All shall love me and despair! Briefly in the Mirror of Galadriel, you get to see their only real nod to the scouring of the Shire as well. Completely understand why it wasn't good in the films, because it, it doesn't work in the, the, the theme they were going for, but I, I like there's a nod to it. Yeah. Because um, it, is, it is an important scene in the book. It's just not, obviously, you don't, it's not actually important at all. <laughs> it's more about Meridoc and Peregrine becoming the most important hobbits in the Shire, and the idea of soldiers coming back after after a war, not necessarily the Great War, and finding their land changed and industrialised and scarred. Yeah, no, yeah cause I, I see that more a World War Two uh, thing, because, you know, obviously, especially British soldiers coming back to, to the the remnants yeah. of the Blitz is of course like, London was shattered no, at the point. nothing was the same you know you came back and nothing was the same the, the, all the buildings you remembered were gone and new buildings were sort of haphazardly built up just to, just to have somewhere for people to live and it's, it just shows you know war doesn't just happen on battlefields it happens <laughs> everywhere but after it, I, I'm, I haven't read it for uh, ooh, 11 years. Um, after the actual scouring is routed by the hobbits, when they they, they build their own battle force and uh, take out Saruman's um, thugs, they manage to return the Shire to some semblance of um, normality, right? Uh, yeah, they use uh, a massive MacGuffin, obviously. <laughs> In, cause in the gif, uh, Gladio's gif thing, uh, um, Sam a Malorn tree bulb. Yeah, and, um, soil, I think, I assume from Lothlorien, and then he uses that to sort of super grow all the new plants they have to plant. Oh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I suppose that does tie in perfectly well here then, actually, because it's getting to the giving of the gift and the departure. Again, only in the extended editions. I think the only thing that was given in the theatrical version is the, the actual item that was very specifically used later on, which is the uh, the light of Erendil. Not to be confused with Elendil, the king with a two-meter-long sword. <laughs> no, Erendil just has a silver reel yeah. around his forehead and he's flying around somewhere. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's a star in a bottle. And Strider gets that awesome elven knife, which I have. This is actually a really nice story. Back when... Um, <laughs> Back when we were, you know, looking forward to Return of the King, I um, ordered Anduril as a uh, Christmas present for me from Sharon. That came through the post, this beautiful, enormous sword. And for Sharon, I got in uh, turn the elven knife of Strider, which was um, because you wanted something that was much more daggery, didn't you, Sharon? I did, yes. When it finally came, you... I, I got to handle it and I was I, like it hurt it was like this is 
yours, but I feel so attached to it. But I thought I've, I actually had like a little mini breakdown because it's like I can't, I can't want this and want to keep this. It's, it should be yours. This is your present. I sort of gave it back to you, and then um, I, I, the best way of putting it is went up to my room and sulked. <laughs> And you, in your infinite kindness, came upstairs and gave it to me and said, no, no, this is yours. It should be. And um, you got Sting in exchange with its uh, sheath. So uh, so that is now yours. And um, I did. And I have had a fang as well. Yeah, our one sword. Yeah, and, and considering that at the, at the time I was looking for a new athame and it Sting works much, much better. It's longer and straighter, which it makes is, it yeah. much more good for directing yeah. energy. And it, it looks like a flame. Yeah. Which is, which is ideal. And uh, then they get into the uh, canoes, go down river, and um, the, the standout moment of this while they're... Um... Oh, actually, no, there is one moment between uh, uh, Galadriel and Aragorn, which is actually very important. Speaks to him in a slightly guarded way saying, you know, I, I can't give you a gift because the greatest gift that you have is, on certain terms, is Arwen. And uh, he says, I'd rather she left, I, I actually care about her safety more than me being with her at this point, which makes Galadriel happy. It's, it's kind of like speaking to someone's grandma. <laughs> well, it is. I know. <laughs> but someone's grandma who's Kate Blanchett. Yeah, someone's grandma who has immense magical power. <laughs> yeah. So what is she literally? Who's she? Elrond's mother, or um, uh, she's um, uh, Arwen's mother's mother. And the standout scene when they're uh, canoeing down—is this is the Anduin? Uh, yeah, the Argonath. Which, I mean, it's it's not a. I, they didn't even have to include it, frankly. They're entering Gondor at this point, and this is the, kind of the gateway to it. It's just a marking moment to say right you are now moving on to the next stretch of your journey things are about to happen I, th- I think they did need to include just as a, a, a massive piece of engineering it, it sort of is a sort of a nod to the power of old Gondor and and, and Ariel says that he he has sort of waited his whole life to, to look at to sort of you know come here you know he's basically saying he's coming here to be king yeah. he's already thinking about that and I really like the design of it. I like the, how they, you know, they sort of, sort of thought about how it was sort of carved out of the mountain. Oh, don't get it? me wrong. It's fantastic. It's phenomenal. <laughs> it's one of my favourite moments in the film. What I'm saying is it doesn't necessarily serve the narrative for your average person going in. It's just something immense for them to look at and go, oh, that's nice. But it's yeah, incredibly it's, symbolic as well. I think, yeah, I think, it, I think, it's, I think it serves just as a symbolic, sort of impressive precursor showing Minas Tirith. Yeah. So that's a massive piece of engineering. They're just sort of reinforcing that this is how far they stretch at some point. Yeah. Uh, the way they're actually designed, as you, as you uh, hinted at, it's they're carved out of the cliff face up to a point, but then when it gets above a certain level, the rock basically just stopped going vertically. So they've actually they've turned the sides of the cliff edges beside the Argonath into a quarry and mined these immense granite flagstones out and then piled them on top of their existing carving to make it higher and higher to actually... It, to make something like... You compare it to the Colossus of Rhodes, Joan? Yeah, in terms of, of sheer scale, human detail, is that what yeah. I mean? It's one of the nine wonders of the world, isn't it? Or was. It doesn't exist anymore. It's just feet now, isn't it? Uh, it was 30 metres or 107 feet tall, uh, making it one of the tallest statues of the ancient world. 
So that's obviously the kind of thing it was trying to evoke. And it was effectively a gateway in itself. The ships were supposed to sail underneath it. So this was absolutely very much a conscious decision on uh, Tolkien's part to evoke that. And uh, one of the nicest touches, once you go past it, the immense face of... Um, Elendil is um, the, the cracking on its uh, on its face, but then some birds which were nesting on his eyelid just sort of fly sideways, which gives you a sense of Im- just the scale mixed with the music. It's, it's it's astonishing, and like I said, it didn't really need to be in the film. They could just have gone downstream, and no one would have been any the wiser apart from the fans. But having it in there gives a sense of that they're traveling to that they have moved to another area, and there's a new step. Yeah, I think it's like, I mean, quite a lot of the film, there are lots of bits that don't need to be in there, but yeah. they wanted to make sort of flesh out a, re- a real world, and this is the part of the world they have to, as they're passing through, it, it is theirs, so they have to show it. Yeah. Um, as they're treating it as a, you know, as a historical recreation. And of course, it's playing the, uh, the uh, theme of the ring here, because the guy on the left is Isildur, and this is all because of him. Everything they're doing here is because he wouldn't just destroy it uh, when he had the chance. So obviously Aragorn's feeling a dreadful amount of this is all the fault of my great 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 grandfather. Same blood flows in my veins, the same weakness. Uh, in the original book, it was actually Isildur and Anarion, the two sons of Elendil, but they decided Anarion doesn't even feature in this story. Let's make him Elendil. Yeah. Then they park up, and the night before, um, Boromir again asks for uh, them to uh, take it to Minas Tirith, and, and he and Aragorn clash. And this is pretty much the turning point for Boromir. He is like, you know, I'm taking this thing no matter what. It's really preying on him at this stage. And Aragorn's yeah. super paranoid of him, so all he has to see is his shield, and he knows exactly what's up. Yeah, because he's, you know, basically, you know, he thinks now, you know, after that scene, he thinks that's the only way to save his people is to get the yeah. ring because he can't see any other option. Uh, so, yeah, then we get the uh, the moment where Boromir uh, confronts Frodo, and um, it, it fooled Lyra to begin with. She didn't. She wasn't immediately paranoid of him, and uh, it, when he started to turn, it was a, 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 a gradual decline of um, civility in, into him becoming a madman. It's a moment where he's starting to unravel. But if you um, know the character and you're watching him the whole way through and... There, there is a great deal of, of pity for uh, Boromir, from me at least, for, for this scene. I, I can I, I can see where he's coming from. It's just that he's he's too blinded by fear to be able to look at the big picture. 
Yeah, it's just, I mean, yeah, it's just, he doesn't see any other option to save Gondor, and he's, his father has built him up as the, the savior of Gondor. He is the one that it's all laid down, you know, he has won some wars for Gondor, you know, and recaptures a skillet, and he is, he's seen, he's seen as the only hope they have, because. Yeah, he's he, their champion. Yeah. And he's just sort of out of his de- out of his depth. He's good at fighting, but he's not good at the power plays and corrupting elements. And he's been told by his father, no on certain terms, come back with the ring. Yeah, that that doesn't help. <laughs> no, there is no other choice for it. And we already know what kind of person Denethor is. Boromir's death is one of the most impactful throughout the book, in terms of the fact that you meet characters, you know, several books from now, for whom this death makes huge life-changing difference to. Yeah. He's a very significant character. For both his brother and his father, he is retroactively used to add characterization to both of them. Yeah. In terms of what he represents in both their lives. Yeah, and it is the, the turning point to, for Denifor to go from being sort of overpowered by sort of Sauron, you know, he's using the plans here, and he's, uh, to, to completely breaking and going crazy. He's just, he can't cope with the sort of corrupting influence of Sauron and his, his favourite son. Yeah. Uh, dying. So, you know, it's him having sent him off. To his death, yeah. Yeah. And then Frodo runs up to the seeing seat. As, it just it happens that he was drawn to a place where the Palantir would have sat, or one of the seven. But then you get the, the Aragorn's temptation. And I don't remember this in the book being anywhere near as powerful in terms of the, the fact that when he sinks to the ground and he's got that pained look on his face of I actually do know at this point that all of the strength I'm trying to find I could feasibly mine from this ring and everything that all of my misgivings I could take this back and I could do what my great 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 grandfather could not and there's enough presented to Aragorn at this point that make taking the ring a good idea that it's a true temptation it's not just a case of I would not touch that thing if it lay by the wayside. Mm. He's tested and he proves himself to be far, far stronger than his lineage. It's interesting that there are three people in this first film that Frodo offers the ring to and they all turn it down. Yeah. The only people that he... It, it seems a little ironic, although obviously it's it's an important part of the narrative of the ring, that the only people that he feels confident and comfortable offering it to are people who reject it. I don't know why, whether he's really offering it to Aragorn at this point. He says, would you take it? And he holds it out, but it's in a very guarded, I'm not even sure why I'm doing this kind of way, but in a... look. All of you are at some point going to come to me and demand this ring. So what? You going to take it from me? Kind of way. I think. Yeah, I think you're right. But there is there is still the fact that he. I think the only way the ring can really pass from person to person with minimal negative effect is mm. if it's offered. Yeah. Is if it's if it's freely given. There is shading in how he does it as well. With Gandalf, he just wants to be rid of it. He just wants it to, to give it to somebody who is more um, appropriate to deal with it. Um, and of course, Gandalf says no. He can't. He can't possibly take it because of the the power that the ring would wield through him. Galadriel, he's he's not again. He's not exactly saying you take it. Take you know, take it from me. But he is 
offering it to her as a, a more powerful being than he is um, and somebody that he would trust to do the right thing with it and she says no I can't because I don't trust myself to do the right thing with it which is effectively the same thing as Gandalf was saying Aragorn almost seems to be the first person who says no but not in a sense of if I take it it will do great and terrible things more just I know I'm not supposed to have it you're supposed to have it it just seems like an interesting reaction and it, it kind of leaps Aragorn's character up a level in terms of his taking on the the, the mantle of being king I love it when he says I would have gone with you to the end he knows at this point that Frodo's leaving and he knows that they've got to part ways now. I think this is this is the point though where Frodo's taking it because or he's he's leaving because he doesn't want to see the ring corrupt anyone else. Yeah. yeah. And then the Uruks, the scouts who've been chasing them for miles, suddenly turn up at the bottom of the hill and start advancing towards them. And this is a genuinely frightening shot. It's like they we haven't seen that they're there, but throughout this altercation between Aragorn and Frodo, they've been creeping up on them and then when it the camera pans up and sweeps out it's all second unit stuff as well this isn't even Jackson directing Aragorn walks towards them there's a little odd smile on his face like you know this is to be my end then I am going to spend it guarding Frodo and letting him get away this is the right thing for me to do at this point he is sure of his role and it's a, it's a wonderful moment for Aragorn fans because he, he looks fearless and very, very capable, but at the same time he is absolutely overwhelmed in terms of forces and immediately starts to retreat then backwards up the steps. Yeah, and then sort of takes the last great sacrifice of that he knows they're getting past and calls on Elendil and mm. jumps in. Luckily, you know, gets saved by Legolas and Gimli, but if not, he would have prepared to kill as many as he could. Yeah. Just to just try and slow them down. Yeah. So, again, fantastic soaring music with a sense of real danger and, and, and uh, you know, foreboding at this point because there is going to be a very significant death coming up and it's it's not a lie the music it's not it's not thrilling epic sort of hey adventure this is you know life or death at this point yeah I do like how it's shot this there's it's sort of, sort of quite a few mini scenes sort of different parts of the forest it, it makes the forest seem a lot larger than it probably is Mm. you've got obviously Aragorn Legos Gimli fighting that bit and then Frodo running away meets up with Merry and Pippin who then run off in a different direction and Frodo runs back to the boats and And just like with Aragorn I'm looking at this scene right now Merry knows straight away he's leaving yeah just looking at him we sort of get a a, that's reminds me a bit of the the Buckleberry Ferry bit yeah earlier that you know he tweaks completely that what's happening and what he needs to do to save Frodo Mary's a very sharp Frodo. hobbit. They're not, they're yeah. not known for their uh, shrewd as- ascertaining of the uh, situation and the deeper emotional aspects of it. He's his cousin, so he's probably known him and how, what he's like for, for his very life. True. So it does does help. It's such a, 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 a despite what I said regarding you know, it's not just a straightforward adventure. It's a thrilling scene over and over yeah. again when I watch this. It's a, a fantastic way to actually end this first movie. And uh, there's just enough, just enough ancient architecture dotted around the woods to let you believe that there is something used to be much, much bigger here and is now ruined and it's been uh, overtaken by nature instead. 
And uh, the whole thing that uh, Aragorn tells Boromir later, you kept your honour, this was the only thing he could really have done to win himself back in the eyes of the uh, uh, people watching, to actually sacrifice himself for characters that we already love. Um, to, I mean, he's not willing. He's just, he doesn't want to die. He's trying to stay alive, but he is... He is prepared to give his life to um, to keep them safe. And it, every time he mentioned them before, he was like, "We must. This will be the death of the hobbits." It was like, "Yeah, yeah, you don't care about it. You're just saying, what someone please think of the children? You want <laughs> to go closer to Minas Tirith so you can get your plan worked out.'" But as it turns out, he genuinely cares about these guys. And there's a little shade of it earlier when they're having that sparring session for fun, and um, mm. and and you work out that that yeah, actually, Gondor. Boromir actually is a genuinely good person underneath all of this fear and all of these negative aspects to his personality. Yeah, I do. I do like that scene um, uh, earlier because it, it sort of it foreshadows the roles of the hobbits. That the, you know, Frodo and Sam are they they're not they don't care about combat. They they are there's just specific purpose. But Merry and Pippin sort of have started their training for the sort of for later times. Yeah. Which is a sort of interesting, you know, interesting that they they included that so early. At this point, they don't have specific roles; they're just the four hobbits. Frodo is the only one that has a role, really, and yeah. and it's nice, you know, they split them up before the before the second book. And the actual scene where Boromir, immediately after he gets hit with the first one of Lurtz's arrows, stalking figure of death, he's just loping towards him and not particularly eager to get there, firing arrows in a cruel and aggressive way it's almost like he's toying with him he's not going for a kill shot at this point he's just saying you know keep fighting that's fine we're going to get to you eventually in the end and mm-hmm. again it's shot like a, a war film with the, the the way the music sort of you know uh, it, it just pulls out most of the uh, sound effects you just get some of the the, the, the fighting sounds and the, the music's overwhelming
And uh, yeah, it's it's a necessary emotional release for this uh, final part of the movie. You've, you know, we've gone through with all of this. There needs to be a loss. There needs to be a sense of uh, failure for this mm-hmm. final part, just so that the that Frodo and Sam coming together can actually feel like something more of a victory. There needs to be something very much at stake because if they were just like Tally Ho, let's all go off on our own separate ways. That's that's not impactful enough by any means. And yeah, absolutely the most correct thing to do because this again was the beginning of the two towers. Could you imagine if this is how the two towers started? This, I mean, this scene isn't even in the book. You only hear about it as you know, past tense from a dying Boromir. Yeah, I think that they had to have this as the the, the ultimate, yeah, you know, the, the ultimate scene, almost penultimate scene, but in the film, just because that, yeah, that is that's the end of the fellowship. I've no idea why the books were were split up how they are because mm. this is the death of Boromir is the end of the fellowship. Yeah, so that has to be in the first film and the first book because that's called the Fellowship of the Ring. <laughs> yeah, so, does make the most sense, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. And ultimately, I think if he'd been questioned about it too much, Tolkien would have said, "Yes, fine, put it at the beginning, put it at the end of the first book." Well, yeah, he did. Yeah, obviously, he didn't want it as split. So, yeah, yeah. Originally, he wanted it just to do it all in one volume. You read it all the way through. Which it's a history, cra- for goodness' sake. Why would you? Cha- why would you divide it up? Which is crazy, but yeah. Well, it works better as an omnibus. But then again, I mean, things were completely different back then. Cinema mm-hmm. was not as anywhere near as attached to literature as it is now. And um, you didn't have to write episodically in that same way. And also he had no particular... Like, he was writing for himself. It wasn't about how would this be the most marketable. So, I don't know. I think it's almost like a sort of, oh, I suppose we need to give them a strong reason to start moving at the beginning of the uh, um, second book. If if we don't know and we aren't told, then you'd forget why they were running towards these uh, Uruks. (laughs) I think he was a bit Previously annoyed. Previously on Lord of the Rings, just a suggestion. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think he was a bit annoyed at how his publisher had, had insisted he chop them up, actually. Yeah. And I, I suspect that part of it was that he just wanted to mess with them. Really? Yeah. Uh, a little bit. It seems a bit odd. It's like, you know, uh, it, the actual, the, the first book ends just approaching an incredible climactic battle and the second book begins just after an incredible climactic battle it's like you are not getting yeah. this battle my friend doesn't exist only in the uh, the reports of others this is where cinema excels where they can actually show you whereas previously they could only tell you yeah it is then followed after Boromir is filled with arrows with Aragorn versus Lurtz a character created simply for this first film to be an antagonist and a stalking Terminator like presence since Boromir dies someone has to be punished there has to be a big bad and someone for Aragorn to fight and so again perfect idea have it just be a very very brief very savage battle one on one before this film maybe any sword fight that actually feels like this no no, because usually yeah. sword fights tend to be um, in films for yeah, for a family audience or for for children, and so that they've got the slightly cavalier attitude, and it, they, they're doing it to be entertaining. And so it's either like fencing, or if it's like Star Wars, there'll be a lot of sort of talking back and forth, and a lot of stuff going on there. But it's 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 two characters interacting. There are a couple of sword fights in in things like Highlander is not really for kids. But none of the, the, the none of them get this really personal. I think maybe him versus the Kurgan, which, as it happens, Bob Anderson. 
Mm. I was going to say possibly some of um, Mad Martigans in Willow, but most of them no. are done for comic effect. Yeah, no, those are just family sort of, hey, hey, swashbuckling, hey. Much more like Pirates of the Caribbean. No, this is, these guys are absolutely out to kill each other straight off and as fast as possible as well. There's no, like with the Pokergan, it's like he's hated the Highlander for all of these hundreds of years and the Highlander just realised that he killed his master, blah, 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 blah. This doesn't compare to Highlander. This is completely different. This is too characters who want to end each other as fast as possible and it's brutal and it's bloody frantic and angry and spectacular and brief which is exactly what it needed to be if this had gone on and you could have gone up and down and all around the forest but it just needed to be just straight away get dispatch this guy and then go straight to the uh, the Boromir death scene where um, a major character gets to die in the arms of the hero and say at least I got to hold you one last time I, I love it because um, it's it's one of the key Aragorn scenes. I can see both sides. I can see why people couldn't wouldn't like it. Um, I think it's okay. It, it is probably if, unfortunately yeah, it is a bit of an overdone cliche of you know the person surviving just long enough to defeat the person that killed them and then and then eulogise a little bit. Yeah, mm. but. But it's written like this. It's actually pretty close to how yeah, it was originally I, I think, written. So you could, you'd have to contravene what was written to do it any other way, really. Yeah, I think I think also they got to have a close to Boromir, hmm. and have got to have that impetus for Aragorn to to go to Gondor, which yeah, which comes from that that conversation. Yeah, which obviously is incredibly important <laughs> because otherwise everything would have, have been destroyed. Then Frodo leaves, and there's that wonderful bit of speech from uh, Gandalf reprise so that all you have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to you. This is very important culturally. This happened just a few months after 9-11, and the entirety of America and several parts of the rest of the world were looking for something to take them away from what they were... If you lived in around the New York area still seeing being cleaned up for years afterwards um, but if you were in America there was a, 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 a palpable sense of fear and the idea that terrorists were going to be bursting out of any door at any available moment to blow us all up and they needed the Lord of the Rings to take them somewhere else for three hours and to make them think about something else and the idea of doing what you can with the time that is given to you keys in very much with that notion of heroism that was attached to the firefighters and rescue workers of 9-11. And I think that really appealed to people. And it wasn't obviously uh, orchestrated like that. They had no idea that this was going to happen. But it was, in the words of Tolkien, very applicable. Uh, so Frodo leaves, and as far as he's concerned, he is sacrificing himself in terms of he doesn't want to taint anyone else with this. He doesn't want anyone else to become tempted to take the ring. And he doesn't want anyone else to die for him directly. Now, he's not the least bit practical at this point. On his own, he doesn't even have the supplies to get through this. But it's a move of panic, and it's a move of what he considers to be as, as selfless as possible. And thank the Valar that uh, Samwise Gamgee was the voice of practicality. It hones in wonderfully on the notion of what's at the core of the Lord of the Rings, which is this unbreakable friendship. It's not even friendship here. It's devotion. It's the fact that Sam will never stop, and he will never let Frodo go on alone. And it's the point in Return of the King, Frodo actually does break it off, and Sam keeps going regardless. 
the music that's playing here is for Sam. We love and care about Sam because he has this indomitable will and this unbreakable heart. This is just a wonderful moment. I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All you have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to you. you are. And I'm coming with you. You can't swim. Sam! Mr. Frodo, a promise. Don't you leave him, Samwise Gamgee. And I don't mean to. I don't mean to. Oh, Sam. Just to take us out of the moment for a, uh, a second, Sean Astin. This is the point where he pierced his foot, and there's a point in the uh, extras where he ran over a giant shard of glass or something, uh, wearing his little rubber hobbit feet, and it went straight up into his foot. And like, it's genuinely horrible watching the you know Sean yeah. limp out of the uh, water and, and have shards of glass. Pulled out of him. Kind of uh, brings into sharp relief when uh, Dom, in the uh, earlier part of the film, ran across the uh, jetty to get to the Buckleberry Ferry and got what he considered to be an enormous splinter in his foot. And when it was finally pulled out, it was a tiny little thing. (laughs) 
but yeah, Sean had to actually be uh, helicoptered away to, to hospital because ultimately he could just have got an infection and lost his goddamn leg. There is, it was bleeding yeah. a lot, so that that's and then they were miles and miles away from the nearest civilization, yeah, which is probably. unfortunately part and parcel of filming out in the wilderness in New Zealand. So I mean, imagine being Sean getting back on like a day later and going right now. I have to run into the water again. Has anybody checked it? <laughs> Of course they'd have checked it. They probably would have picked every stone off the bottom there and put a good, nice little From soft mat. From then on in, I would imagine they probably did. Yeah. And yeah, this is, it's this bond here and it's this, um, sense of purpose that Sam has to never let Frodo go unprotected and unguided and un, unsupported that then carries us through to the next two movies. And cause you're going to get a lot of scenes with the two of them together and you need a very good reason why they're staying together. And yeah, the, uh, as Tolkien realized, the, um, the rest of the fellowship didn't really have much to do at this point. So effectively, Merry and Pippin become MacGuffins for Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli to chase towards the Riddermark so that they can initiate the involvement of Rohan in the War of the Ring. But again, they managed to end on this sort of note of triumph even after Boromir's died, this, this sense of we will not abandon Merry and Pippin to torment and death. Aragorn has renewed purpose now. He's been tested by the Ring and he's found himself up to the task. They may not have much to do at this point, but they're going to stay true. And then we get two wonderful pieces of music. There's uh, The Road Goes Ever On, which is sung by uh, Ben Del Maestro, the um, choir boy. Goes in with the principal Sam and Frodo theme. And uh, then there's May It Be, which is by Enya, and it's clearly from Arwen's perspective. It makes her, again, a, a crucial background character to this story. There's, there's a reason, aside from simply that there are you know, awesome hot elf ladies in this, that she was on the poster. And that's what's going to be what we're, we're going to end on. I'm not even going to say Pimp Your Shows. They're called Game Burst and they're called Dorkcast. And you folks should be listening to them. Thank you guys very, very much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to go now. But we'll be back in a few days' time with The Two Towers, Part 1. Hurry! Frodo and Sam have reached the eastern shore! You mean not to follow them? Frodo's feet is no longer in our hands. Then it has all been in vain. The fellowship has failed. What if we hold true to each other? We will not abandon Mary and Pippin to torment and death. Not while we have strength left. Leave all that can be spared behind. We travel lightly. Let us hunt some walk. find a safer road. Strider will look after them. I don't suppose we'll ever see them again. 
Thank you.